This is Audible. Audible Original Publishing presents Kick Ass with Mel Robbins. Advice from the author of the Five Second Rule. Created and hosted by Mel Robbins. That's me. I'm Mel. And you're about to listen to live coaching sessions between me and real people facing real problems. And you'll have a front row seat as they experience real change. By the way, I want to tell you right up front, this is not something for the kiddos. The people you're about to meet, they're all adults dealing with adult issues. And personally, I use a lot of adult language. You and I are about to spend a whole bunch of time together. So let me take a minute and tell you just a little bit about me. Ten years ago, I was facing one of the hardest periods of my life. I could barely do the simple things. And the worst part of my day? Just trying to get out of bed. As soon as my alarm went off, I would lie there and think about everything I needed to do. My mind started filling with excuses, and next thing you know, I'm hitting the snooze button. Well, one night after a few too many Manhattans, I had this epiphany. There was a distinct gap between the alarm going off and my reaction to it. And I thought, huh... Mel, I wonder, maybe if you move fast enough, maybe you can close that gap. Instead of hitting the snooze alarm, maybe I could just launch out of bed. Well, the very next morning, the alarm rang, and that's exactly what I did. Five, four, three, two, one, boom, I launched myself right out of bed. It not only worked, but that's also how, by accident, I created the most powerful mind trick on the planet. I call it the five-second rule. It's simple, and there's so much science to back it up. Now, using the five-second rule and the 54321 countdown method, I learned how to change my decisions, my mindset, my habits, and day by day, my entire life changed. I first shared the rule in a TEDx talk, and 14 million views later, I decided I better write a book about this. Well, it got published last year. It became one of the most read books in the world, and it's now been translated into 31 languages. And yep, you can find it right here on Audible. The response was so incredible that I now reach 20 million people a month on social media. And every single day, people around the world post their five-second rule stories and ask for more advice about how to change their lives for the better. And that, my friend, is how Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins was born. It was born thanks to you. So you might be wondering, how do we choose the people you're about to meet? That's a great question. We did a global casting call on social media using the hashtag PickMeMel. We ask people to upload videos explaining why they're stuck and deserve to be flown to Boston in order to get the coaching session of their lifetime with yours truly. Now, we were blown away by your submissions, like this one from Parker. What's up, Mel? My name is Parker Texas Lewis. I'm a senior at the University of North Texas studying engineering, and um, I am in desperate need of being coached by you because I am honestly falling apart. Now, I've been on laundry in like two months. I have so many things that I need to do that I can't even get myself to start, and I can't keep the streak going. And the thing about streaks? Sometimes you're in a good one, sometimes you're in a bad one, and sometimes you get stuck in one for decades, like Joelle. Hi, Mel. I would love to come to Boston and be personally coached by you. Where I am stuck is in my relationship. I have been married 19 years, going on 20, and um, our relationship sucks. Parker, Joelle, that was just the beginning. We got submissions from around the world. 
Hi, Mel. My name is Luhan. I'm from Argentina. Hi, Mel. My name is Sandy, and I'm a meditation teacher. I had talked myself out of recording this thing two or three times. I'm 62 years old. I don't have 15 years to try to figure all this stuff out. My name is Norazin. Uh, I'm from Malaysia. Pick me, Mel. Hey, Mel Robbins. This is Yvette. I am tormented with self-doubt and fear, and I just have to stop this nonsense. What the fuck's wrong with me, Mel? I'm ready to go to Boston. My bags are packed. Please, please, please help me and pick me. So we weeded through all of these videos and narrowed it down to eight people. Eight people that we thought you could relate to. Now, these folks represent a range of problems, from simple to serious, hilarious to heartbreaking. And you're about to meet these people, hear their problems, and listen live as they get the coaching session of their life. My name is Kim. My name is Kyle. My name is Evelyn. My name is Jesse. My name is Marcus Ogden. I'm Ashlyn Nicasu. My name is Stephen Hill. My name is Tara Morris. And before we get started, I need to remind you, all eight people you're about to meet are adults. This has adult language and adult content, and when there are very serious issues, I will be sure to give you a trigger warning. I believe that we're all just one decision away from a totally different life. And that new life, it could actually start right now. You know what you need to do to improve your life. And you might even know why you need to do it. Now, I'm going to show you how. Welcome to Kick Ass with Mel Robbins. In this coaching session, you're going to meet a woman named Kim. Kim was very clear why she wanted my help. She's struggling with the fear of failure, and she is so tired of her own negative self-talk. My name is Kim. I'm 43 years old. I live um, just north of Los Angeles. I need some help in getting over my fear so that I can do things for myself. Fear of failure, fear of rejection fear of being laughed at. Just fighting myself and fighting my own mind and trying to get past that and the negative self-talk and the self-doubt. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely all comes from inside of me. Don't let her serious tone of voice fool you. Kim is one of the most hilarious people you will ever meet. It's about to get real. Okay, good. Raw, naked, exposed. This is going to get ugly. Good. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. I can't be the only person that does this because I think in my head, I am fucking crazy. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Louise. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh, shit. Now I really know what to do, and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Hey, Kim. Oh, my God. 
I totally was not nervous, and now I'm nervous. What are you nervous about? I don't know. What's going to happen? Tell me a little bit about um, what brought you here. And I know it's fear, but can you talk a little bit more and explain a little bit more for me in detail about the fears that are holding you back and how they hold you back? I don't even start something because I'm so afraid that I'll have to actually do something about it. You know, in my life, I have done what I'm supposed to do. I, you know, I raise my daughter, I go to work, I pay my bills, but I don't have anything that I'm super proud of for me. So I don't have any sort of sense of pride. I have no hobbies that I like to dig into. I don't have anything for myself um, because I'm too afraid to start anything. There's a lot of stuff that I want to do. You know, I want to do things like... Um, like working with wood and maybe creating furniture, maybe making something, but I don't know how to do it. So I don't even start because I'm so afraid that it's going to, that the couple of things that I have created, I think that they're totally stupid and someone's going to laugh and that. <laughs> so what have you created? Um, God, you know, I, I, my boyfriend and I built our little garden and now it's gone to shit because we don't take care of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So when did this type of fear begin? I feel like I've had it my whole life. Can you remember the first time where you really wanted to do something and this fear was there? Yeah. So when I was um, in fourth grade, I was a baton twirler. and um, Of course you were. Well, duh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I've always been big, right? I'm five foot ten. I've, I'm tall. I'm a big person. I have big hair and big features and I'm just big. So were you big in fourth grade too? Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. And of course I thought I was fat, but come on, you know, what 10 yeah. year old is, you know, whatever. So, um, I was, I was pretty good and I was the leader of my little, you know, troop. And, uh, and then, um, I was taking private lessons with my teacher, and I couldn't do what's called a two-spin. You throw your baton up in the air, you twirl around two times, and then you catch it. Okay. And I was having a really hard time trying to, to get that. We were going to have to do a performance in uh, for the Junior Olympics, which would have been in front of the whole school. Okay. And at that time, I was um, just mortified. I was like, I can't do it. I, telling myself, I can't do this. I can't get up in front of my, my friends and and perform in my stupid leotard with my big thighs and my butt hanging out and how embarrassing and so I quit and I, wait before you went yeah I told my parents I told my parents I I can't get my two spin I don't want to do this anymore I quit but I didn't quit because I couldn't get the two spin I quit because I didn't want to perform in front of everybody and have them laugh at me wow mm -hmm. so did your instructor say anything when you quit She's, yeah, she asked me, why are you quitting? You're doing good. You just have to keep practicing. This stuff doesn't, you don't get the stuff overnight. It's it's hard work. And I don't like putting in hard work. <laughs> well, because um, I, so that's how my history has gone. I, I stop before I even start because I'm, I, I already know I'm going to fail. It's not going to work. Well, you know, what's interesting about the story is that um, by quitting, you actually, like, you developed a strategy that really works for you. 
oh yeah, it's really working, isn't it? Well, not now, <laughs> but it, it really works for you when you are in a situation where you feel uncomfortable or you feel exposed mm -hmm. or you feel uncertain, then quitting or just saying, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. It's your way to protect yourself and to keep yourself safe. Absolutely. And the irony is that you keep doing it in the areas of your life that could bring you joy. Mm -hmm. 100%. And, and, you know, the other thing that's really sad is that, you know, when you, when you end up doing that to yourself, you end up having nothing but feelings of failure. Mm -hmm. So you're like, this is the irony of that strategy. And we're going to call it a strategy because you do it deliberately. Yes. And you continued to do it deliberately. So it became a habit. You start to feel exposed. You start to feel the unknown. You immediately respond by doing the same thing, which is saying no or quitting or disappearing or hiding or whatever it may be. And you do it to avoid failure. Mm -hmm. But the only thing you feel is failure. Mm -hmm. So the strategy doesn't work. And in fact, the strategy gives you the damn thing you're avoiding. Right. Where else have you done this? With everything. With take everything. Me, take me through your day. So what's what's how does fear in your day dictate how you act from the moment that you wake up let's go through like a day in the life of kim mm -hmm. and take me through the wackadoodle shit that's going on in your head oh man it's about to get real <laughs> okay good raw naked exposed this is gonna get ugly good. are you ready Oh, yeah. I can't be the only person that does this because I think in my head, I am fucking crazy. We all are. But I can't be the only one that does this. And I think maybe that's part of why I'm here because I'm, I don't, I'm not extraordinary. I don't have this fantastical life story. Like, I'm just trying to get through life like everybody else. So I am a smoker. I've been a smoker for 28 fucking years how disgusting is that? I don't know. You it's, must love it. It's totally gr Oh, love, hate. Total love, hate. You know my theory about smoking? <clears throat> no. So my theory about smoking is that smoking is a fuck you to life. Pretty much. That every time Pretty you much. light up, it's yeah. the rebel in you? Yeah. No, you know that you could that you will probably die from it. You yeah. know that you could die from it. You yep. know that it's bad for you. You know that the the cigarette companies have tricked you into an addiction that makes them tons of money and yeah. keeps you struggling financially. You know that it's stupid. You hate standing outside, but every time you light it up, you put that sucker to your mouth and you're like, "Watch me, fuckers! I'm yeah, doing it anyway." Pretty much. Uh huh. And that's how I've lived my whole life, and it does not serve me at all. Being a rebel is the worst thing that you can do to yourself. Why? I'm so rebellious. Look at me. Really? Because you just held yourself back from everything that you could have done because you think that you're so fucking awesome being a rebel. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Not at all. So here's my day. So let me walk you through my yes, totally I want to hear awesome this because I want to know I want to know if you're as nuts as I am. If you were to put a speaker on people's heads and broadcast uh -huh. that garbage, there'd be nobody on the sidewalk because we'd all be locked up. The stuff we say to ourselves, yeah. not so. So let's see if you're more nuts than me. Probably not. It is It is crazy. Like the shit I say to myself, I wouldn't say to my worst enemy. I would never talk to somebody like that. 
So, okay. So the alarm goes off. I wake up at five and I have to get up. I don't snooze. If I snooze, I'm, I'm out for hours. So I get up. I make my first cup of coffee. I sit on the computer, like literally on Facebook, YouTube, and, uh, Hold look shopping <laughs> for like an hour. Okay, I've smoked four cigarettes by this time. <laughs> Snuggling my cat. Now it's been an hour and I've done nothing. I have this three bedroom house and we have two bedrooms downstairs that aren't really used, but I call one of them my yoga room because mm-hmm. I'm such a yogi. <laughs> so, so over the whole hour, I'm sitting there going, "I should really go downstairs." <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I should really go downstairs. <laughs> I should really I should really go stretch. I should really go meditate. And I've made it all cute and, you know, like lovely and warm and inviting and I have pillows and couches and, you know, whatever. Ugh, it's so cold down there. <laughs> it's like it's like sixty-five down there. <laughs> I'll be freezing. I need another cup of coffee. Well, I don't really want to smoke down there, so I'll just keep smoking. <laughs> so then i make my second cup of coffee and now it's been an hour and a half and i've done nothing i've done shit i'm like ah i guess i better get ready for work okay so then so then i get in the shower and i stand there for 20 minutes going oh it's so warm in the shower and then i get out and i get ready i do my makeup and then i go into the kitchen and i make my protein smoothie because i'm so healthy (laughs) And then, and then I can't drink my smoothie while I'm doing my hair because you know that's kind of weird. So now I have, to, so now I have to sit there. And I also live on the water too, so I want to, I want to look at the ocean while the sun is rising. And you know that's like my that that truly is like my meditation time when I'm looking out at the ocean. But you know, sounds awesome. I have to drink my smoothie, which means I have 20 minutes to kill. So I might as well smoke four more cigarettes. <laughs> How many packs do you smoke a day? Like a pack and a half. Holy shit. <clears throat> yeah. Holy shit is right. So by this time, it's been two and a half hours. Okay. Two and a half hours of um, doing nothing. I could have, I could get ready in 45 minutes and drink two cups of coffee and my freaking smoothie and snuggle my cat. So now, so then I go to work and I do my eight hours at work and then I come home and I do a whole lot more of what I did in the morning. Do you want to quit smoking? Yes, and actually, I have the patch on right now. I've been trying for about a week, week and a half. So okay, I'm slowly, how's it going? I have quit before many times in my life, so I know that it's not hard. And the patch like does miracles for you for the physical body, which, which when you don't have the physical craving, keeps it kind of keeps it out of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like any addiction; you just it's so fucking hard. Well, you know, I I smoked in college. So I was a pack and a half a day smoker in college. And then I got a wicked case of bronchitis mm-hmm. my senior year. And I'll tell you, I was out there in the snow trying to, <laughs> you know, I guess the, trying desperately to smoke through the phlegm and the right. like congested lungs. Right. And I was so sick that for two weeks, I actually didn't have enough lung capacity to inhale. Mm. And when I was done with the bronchitis, I thought, okay, this is an opening. Let me just keep going. But it's now, it's hard for me to do the math. 1990, where are we now? 2000, what, 27 years? Mm -hmm. If the right Bruce Springsteen song comes on, 
My God. I want to smoke. There are friends of mine from college that if I'm around them, I want to smoke. I'll tell you why. There's some science behind this. Um, they, uh, The experts that research addiction and habits, they basically call addiction a habit dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And habits are automated behaviors that get triggered by other people. They get triggered by time of day. They get triggered by the environment that you're in. They get triggered by sound. They get triggered by a situation that you might be in. So for example... A really, but a really kind of neutral habit might be that when you're in a meeting at work, that's a situational trigger. If you're the kind of person that doesn't talk, you might have a habit of just taking notes. Mm-hmm. And that sitting in the meeting will trigger you without even thinking to just start note taking because that's what you always do. With cigarettes, it's really difficult because there's the trigger of the alarm goes off, I need a smoke. There's I've just brushed my teeth, I need a smoke. There's I've just poured a cup of coffee and the smell of the coffee, the time of day, the sound of it hitting the cup, that all triggers the part of your brain that goes into automatic. And so when you start to understand that that's really what you're dealing with, because the chemical dependency and the chemicals in your body from cigarettes leave in three days. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a little bit of compassion for yourself, that you're literally in a situation where everything in your house is gonna remind you of a cigarette. And the only way to deal with it is to redirect yourself the moment you feel the craving. So I'm asking you if you actually wanna quit because I think your entire struggle in life is going to come down to your story up until now. How old are you? 43. You look fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Even for being a horrible smoker. The first 43 years of your life, your story is the rebel. Yes. And there's part of the rebel, Kim the rebel, that really works. Right? But in order for the next chapter to begin, we got to figure out who you are in this next chapter. Mm -hmm. And then you will be able to figure out when the rebel has snuck in and when it's time for you to pivot and actually be the Kim that's in this next chapter. And so I ask you with all sincerity, if you actually want to quit. I do. I 100% do. Um, Why? I take what my boyfriend loves to say, cigarette breaks. So I'm at home and um, I need to, you know, clean the house or something. Okay, let me just smoke one more cigarette and then I'll get up and do it. And then I'm fucking around on the computer and 20 minutes later, oh, let me just have one more cigarette. So I don't do anything because I'm too busy sitting there smoking, doing nothing. So it it holds me back from actually getting up and doing things like Mm -hmm. like cleaning the house, like going outside, like taking a walk, things like that. Okay, it really holds me back. It's weird. Well, what it's become is become a very physical and repeated form of procrastinating. Yeah, that's what it's become. Yeah, whenever you don't want to do something. It's your way to quit over and over and over again from <gasps> life. Oh my God. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. So what did you just, what just happened for you when that, I said that, it that way? That was a huge realization. I am. I see. I don't even, it's funny. I can fully acknowledge um, 
that I don't start things because I'm going to quit. But I didn't associate that with with having a cigarette. Yeah, it's That's your my way, way of quitting. quitting. Uh huh. <gasps> Holy shit, Mel, you're a genius. Not really. <laughs> The irony is with the smoking is you're trying to quit. And so that's why you don't see the fact that smoking is actually the way that you quit and opt out of life. And that's why I was doubting whether or not you actually want to quit because I can see that it, it is it is like a, a, a fortress that you can put yourself in. Yeah. It's a protection mechanism and it is a fuck you to life and all the things that you need to do. And that's also really sad. Yeah, it's pathetic. I don't wanna be that person anymore. I don't wanna do that anymore. There's too much life to live. There's too much to enjoy. There's too much to explore. There's too much fun to be had. And you're a really fun person. I mean, if, if I think about how fun you are trapped in your house doing nothing but smoking and shopping online, <laughs> I can't imagine what would happen if we turn you loose. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get crazy on the online shopping. <laughs> One of the patterns for me that was debilitating, that took me a very long time to see, was that um, I was so hardwired to not want to disappoint people. And I was so hardwired to um, lie. I mean, I was such a fucking liar growing up i lied about every like stupid stuff mm -hmm. stupid stuff what'd you eat for lunch if i'm talking to a vegetarian i had a salad if i'm talking to somebody that likes hamburgers i had a hamburger i mean right. i just was a chameleon and it wasn't until i connected the dots and realized holy shit the reason why i do this is because it was a strategy that i developed when i was in fourth grade i had an incident where i was molested by an older kid on a ski vacation that our family had taken. You know, one of the other family's kids mm -hmm. had done this to me in the middle of the night. Very confusing, upsetting situation. I come downstairs. My mom is right there. I'm like, I got to tell her. I got to tell her. I got to tell her. And as I round the corner, I see the kid that did it sitting at the table. Oh, God. And she turns around and says, how'd you sleep? And you said, great. Yeah. Oh, my God. And it was this moment, just like your quitting moment with the baton twirling, where it cemented a strategy that I then used until I was 27 years old, uh, and, and which was assess the situation and say whatever it is that makes things okay. Mm -hmm. And until I kind of connected the dots between like the behavior as the adult and this strategy that I just, I, like this lying, like, why the fuck was I a lie? Why do I fucking keep doing this? Mm -hmm. Why can't I just be myself? Until I connected the dots between kind of that. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <clears throat> my shit away. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Tell me about the negative self-talk while you're sitting there having your coffee and your smoke. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. It's like, why am I still sitting here? Why, why don't I just go downstairs? It's downstairs. It's not far. You lazy piece of shit. Get up. 
Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. What the fuck's wrong with you? Get up, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, but the cat, she's so warm on my lap and this coffee's so good. And oh my God, I need one more cigarette. <laughs> oh my God, oops. Now it's been an hour and a half. I should probably go get in the shower. God, you're a piece of shit. You're so fat. No wonder why you're so fat, you dumbass. Go downstairs. You don't even have to go downstairs. Go downstairs, get your mat, and bring it up here, and then you can do some stretching. It's real hard. Stretching. (laughs) Idiot ass. (laughs) You're such a rebel that you're even rebelling against yourself. It's awful. Well, it's because you're not out in the world, so you don't have anything else to rebel against, so this whole fucking thing is turned on you. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, imagine if you, you directed the rebel... And all that energy at a cause or it's something that you actually cared about changing. Yeah. Imagine if all the time I sat smoking, hating myself, if I took all of that energy and I tell this to myself all the time, if you took all of this and redirected it into this hard thing called stretching, (laughs) you might feel better. (laughs) That's not going to do anything for your ass. I've been doing it for 15 years. It's not done anything for my ass. At our age, we got to lift weights, which you could do while you're smoking, by the way. Because if you can't get in a downward dog with a cigarette in your mouth, you're going to get ashes on your mat. But you could probably ignite my hair. Yeah, you could smoke and do bicep curls, though. Can you imagine going into 24-hour fitness? Is this a smoking gym? Where's the smoking section? <laughs> I actually think there's a business opportunity. Yeah. Forget the Fitspo on Instagram. Yeah. You should be, you should create an entire social media parody account yeah. of you exercising with a cigarette in your yeah. mouth and doing instructional videos about how to smoke and live seriously <laughs> and jogging down the beach with all these serious and i live next to a um next to a navy base too so there's all these military dudes like running <laughs> just be like what's up dude with my cigarette hanging out of my mouth hey <laughs> sorry i can only go 10 steps i'm winded <laughs> yeah, well, will it stay lit if you're running I've never tried to run with a cigarette. Well, have I? No. <laughs> I don't want to injure myself. <laughs> oh, my God. So the rebel thing is actually is actually um, pretty interesting. And I'm stubborn as shit, too. Most of the time, when someone is stuck, the strategies that they've been using need to go away completely. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The rebel thing doesn't serve you at all. You're too much of a fuck you mm-hmm. and you don't feel anything anymore. Then it needs to disappear completely. Part of the rebel thing really works and it's really great. And it's an absolutely incredible attribute in you. The problem is it's taken over every aspect of your life. So you're no longer using this power inside you called the rebel. It's using you. When you're in a situation where you can feel the automatic behavior kicking in, just like when you're in a situation where you're triggered to want to have a smoke, that you're aware that the trigger is starting to hook you and you've got the self-awareness and the self-mastery and the confidence to be able to be like, yeah, no, I'm the rebel's not going to handle this. This person is going to handle this. I can give you a couple examples. So I 100% had the rebel thing. 
one of the biggest things in law school is trying to make this stupid ass thing called law review, mm -hmm. which is, you know, if you have a stick up your ass and you care about whether or not the period has the right spacing behind it, which I don't. So why <laughs> I would ever even try to do this? It's literally like a, you know, some intellectual jerk off contest. And so I... Um, hate law school, but I'm going to go for this thing because I feel like I should. I procrastinate for three weeks straight on a paper that you're supposed to spend three weeks research, writing, uh, site checking, everything else. I pull an all-nighter and the thing is due at eight o'clock in the morning. It's 7.35. Oh my God. I've finished it. It's horrible. Like I don't even <laughs> like it is an embarrassment. The only reason why I actually turned it in is because you didn't put your name on it. It had to be blind graded. I realized at 735 that it's only like 11 pages. It should be 28 and spaced the right way. I don't have any <laughs> printer paper. Oh, my God. So I take my notebook and I rip out pages from the spiral bound. Oh my no, this is how much of a rebel I was like, well, fuck you. I'm still going to do it. I'm going to yeah. do it my way. And you watch it. Yeah. And I start to feed spiral bound. With all the frayed college, edges. With all the frayed edges. And so it goes in the first page. And then the second, third, and fourth started printing on a fucking diagonal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there's shit stuck in the so printer. <laughs> I literally cut them apart, paste it together with tape. Oh, oh my god! This was like a, an arts craft project. Kindergarten project. I did, it. and then I ran across campus and slid it under the door. I, of course, did not make it, but I—that was my life. That—that that was the kind of thing that I would do constantly, and then I would bitch about the rules and bitch about all the people that made it, and I'm too good for that. And the truth is, I was a—I was basically a walking disaster mm. around the things that required intentionality. And so um, I really relate to you. I have the rebel thing too, and it really serves me in business. I have turned it from something that runs my life into something that allows me to be rebellious enough to listen to my own instincts mm -hmm. and to be rebellious enough that I can um, be stronger than my excuses and stronger than procrastination. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I limit myself with everything. Everything. So I, I can get up, I get up and I go to work and I do my job. No problem. Yep. Um, there are days when I think that they're going to figure out that I'm a fraud, but I, but I don't, I don't live in that at work. Okay. At work, I'm able to go to work, do my job. It's awesome. I love it. Um, and that's like a non-issue for me. So I don't know why I can't translate that sort of confidence that I have at work into my regular life. I don't I don't know. When I try and think about it, it's like I hit my head against a brick wall. Why can't I just do the things that I want? Why can't I just find something that gives me joy? Why can't I just find something that is an outlet for me? Why do I not have any hobbies? Why do I not have something that's that's mine? But I can then share with everybody else. Why? Why? It's like a fucking brick wall. It's weird. How do you answer the question? Why do you think it is? The only thing that I can come back to is fear. Is fear of failure. Is fear of making an ass out of myself. Well, the reason why you don't have any of those things is you're not fucking doing anything. Like yeah. It, 
You're, I don't believe that people figure out what brings them joy because they have an epiphany. I think that people figure out what brings them joy because they force themselves to follow their curiosity, mm -hmm. to try, to learn. So for example, you said very earlier the piece about I'd love to be building stuff woodworking. Mm -hmm. That right there, that intuition about wanting to build something, that is gold. That's wisdom. And if you were to literally be a rebel about your wisdom and say, fuck it, I'm going to just sign up for a woodworking class on Tuesday nights at the community center. And you didn't stop for the smoking break and you didn't stop because you were afraid and you didn't stop to talk yourself out of it. That would start to open up your life in ways that you can't imagine. I'm not kidding. Like you, you are a natural, an absolute natural at making people laugh. The problem is it's become the way that you shield yourself from the pain. Big time. That you feel. It's a big time coping mechanism. Do you worry that your life is going to go by and you will have never figured this out? I, I think about it in terms of not am I going to be like this forever, but when? When am I going to get off my ass? What is stopping me? What is holding me back? Like I'm so focused on the why that I don't just get up and do it. The thing that's been missing is the how. And how do you break the habits. And one of the biggest insights for you is actually this insight around quitting with smoking. Mm -hmm. That that's the smoking has become the thing that you do to stop yourself from doing everything. What do you want the next chapter of your life to look like? It, it looks like self-love. It looks like self-care, not, um, and being, not being so busy doing things, but being busy enough <clears throat> where I don't have time to sit there and wallow, where I don't, I don't allow myself that, that time that is so comforting to me. That time that I'm sitting for an hour and a half in front of my computer is, is such a habit that it's so comforting. And so to leave that is super scary. So to be able to wake up in the morning and go to immediately go downstairs. So to fill your time with growth. Right. Instead of fuck you. Right. Maybe it's as <clears throat> simple and as stupid as the fact that something happened when you were in fourth grade. It's the dumbest story on the planet about the stupid baton twirling that you quit. And in that moment of quitting, it relieved all the anxiety that you had about putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And you said to yourself in your puny little brain at the age of nine with your ass hanging out of your leotard, <laughs> oh, I don't have to do anything that makes me uncomfortable. Yep. And when people push me, I'll just be a rebel. Yep. And it became like a moment of clarity for you and you stuck with it. Yep. And that the issue is really very simple. And the story looking back is very simple. And that is that you look back and you look at this and you think, holy fuck, I mean, how dumb is that? Mm -hmm. That I did something when I was nine years old and I've now been repeating it as a pattern, like an addiction, like smoking. Yeah. 
And I've never had control of it because I've never seen how I have a nine-year-old response to every single thing in oh my, my life. Nine-year-old response. I look at my nine-year-old nephew and think, oh my God, you're just such a baby. You're still a baby. Well, that's how you're acting. Like a fucking baby? Yes. <laughs> you are. But you hide it by laughing and by being a rebel. Oh my God. That's pretty gross, man. You're a baby about how many cigarettes you have. You're being a baby about the freaking going down and doing yoga. You're being a baby about going out and hiking. And you call it these big words like fear and, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. I don't love myself. I'm so educated. <laughs> big fucking baby. That's all that you yeah. are. And it's the next chapter is about growing up. Mm. That's crazy. How so? What are you thinking? That I would be stuck in that sort of mentality at 43. Who Do you does think that? you are? Everybody. Dude, I was stuck. I still get triggered by disappointing people. It's a pattern that I learned in fourth grade that worked really well, and then all of a sudden it didn't. But the problem is it became a fucking habit, like smoking becomes a habit. And even though you want to get rid of it, you can't because it's hardwired as a pattern in your brain. That's what a habit is. A habit is anything that you do without thinking. It's a pattern that you repeat over and over and over again. When you put on your jeans this morning, did you put your right leg in your pants first or your left? I don't know. Well, think about it. I mean, you do it, you put the same, imagine putting on a pair of jeans. My left. Yes. So that's a habit. When you pull on a pair of pants, you don't think about it. You see the pants, your mind is triggered. Oh, we're going we're gonna to pull the pattern off the shelf that she always does. She always sticks the left leg in first, but you don't even think about it. The same thing is true about being a baby. You don't even think about it. You just are one. <laughs> a funny, rebellious one, but you're still a baby. You got a lot of drama about all the shit you need to do, and you're like, but you're just being a, a fucking baby. A big whiner. Totally. A big whiner in my own head. Yes. Maybe everything was so awesome in your family that the only drama was the shit you created in your mind. Mm hmm I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't live your life. You did. But what I do know is that those old patterns do not serve you. And so I think maybe the language of being, I'm being a fucking baby, that that's enough to interrupt the bitching and make you just go downstairs and do what you need to do. As a 43-year-old woman, you're realizing you want more out of your life that you want to grow, that you want to experience the world, that you want to travel, that you want to be seen. Mm -hmm. And while that's scary, because your ass may be hanging out of the leotard when you try the spin. <laughs> Exposed. <laughs> this is about you retraining how you respond to the things that trigger you. The answers are very simple. Yeah. You're either being a fucking baby or you're being what? What's the next chapter? Let's put a label on it. So I, I have this funny thing that I made up. Tell me. It's my Kim Possibility list. Kim Possibility? Oh my God, it's like a superhero. I love it. Oh my God. Okay, so you either are a fucking baby or you're Kim Possibility. Or I'm a goddamn superhero. Yes. So everything that I think is impossible, 
I think that I can't quit smoking. I think that I can't um, get healthy. And so I've created my Kim Possibility list. I things that love I, this. I'm going to take the impossible for me, the things that I've thought are impossible my entire life, and I'm going to make them possible. And it's not that hard. You just told me that it is so simple and it's so, so simple. stupid. But this is, this is what you're going to walk out of here with. You're either being a fucking baby, and the attributes of the baby are this. You think, you smoke, you self-criticize, and you quit. Or you're Kim Possibility. Kim Possibility is in action. Kim Possibility is trying. Kim Possibility is learning. Kim Possibility is actually doing it. Those are the two distinctions. That's it. It's that simple. It really is that simple. That's crazy. That's crazy. You will never feel like not having a smoke. You will never feel like doing yoga. You'll never feel like exercising. You'll never feel like looking in the mirror and being like, you know, my ass is pretty nice for 43. And so when you start to understand that your feelings are going to rise up throughout the day, you might feel overwhelmed, you might feel stressed out, you might feel afraid, you might feel frustrated, you might feel lazy, you might feel like having a smoke. Those feelings will come and go just like the waves outside your window, but you have a choice. You also have a choice about what you think. So even though feelings might rise up and they might trigger you to think, I'm so lazy, I'm so stupid, you always have a choice to catch yourself and 54321 Kim Possibility steps into place. But Kim Possibility actually chooses what she makes herself do. And she chooses what she thinks about. And that is the difference. Does that explain it? Yeah. And so when you start to catch yourself hesitating, that's when Kim Possibility needs to show up mm -hmm. and just go, screw it, I'm going to do it. Instead of, because when the baby shows up, you've got a bias toward overthinking and then quitting. When Kim Possibility shows up, you know you're going to do the opposite of what the baby does, which is you're just going to do it. In every moment, you're going to get to choose whether you pick up a cigarette and quit or whether you walk away from the smoke and you step into your life. Mm -hmm. You're going to get to choose whether or not you're the asshole or the baby or the rebel or all those things that don't work mm -hmm. or whether you're Kim Possibility. You get to choose, and yeah. that's both the biggest hurdle and the most amazing gift that we've all been given. Yeah, and I want to have that feeling of like, you know, the people that d do the Boston Marathon that cross that finish line that just thought that there was no way in hell that they were ever going to get to that finish line. Well, I think it's every morning when you get down to that studio. Yeah. I know that the one thing that I will focus on is loving my physical body because I only get one. And for 43 years, I've destroyed it. I haven't helped it. I haven't loved it. This has been the biggest gift for me. It's like I can't go home and live with myself and, and keep repeating these patterns when I've been given such an amazing, simple gift. You I can. I can. The question and is, it would be really easy to. Yep. 
But I can't live my life like this until the last days of my life. Awesome. I hope you won't. I have been given the biggest gift. I can stop trying to figure out why. Why? 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 Well, it doesn't matter why now. Now the why doesn't matter. It I could I could break it down for forever and still probably never find the answer. So I'm going to give that up. And if I don't take complete advantage of it, I'm an asshole. Don't you just love her? I mean, first of all, Kim should be doing stand-up. I've never met anyone who describes self-torture in such a hilarious way. Now, she kept calling this coaching session a gift. So let me unpack this gift for you in three specific takeaways. Takeaway number one was the topic of quitting. We all have ways of quitting when things get hard or when we just don't feel motivated to push ourselves. Kim told you she quits all day long by grabbing a smoke. My form of quitting? I reach for a Manhattan. I'm sure you have a form of quitting, too. Maybe you've edged in front of the TV or you mainline social media. Identifying negative patterns as a form of quitting is a powerful step that's going to help you stop these patterns. Because when you identify the patterns as a form of quitting, you've got the power to stop it. The second takeaway is the topic of addiction. Now, we spoke a lot about Kim's struggle to quit smoking. And you probably remember that I called smoking a habit dysfunction. I didn't just make that up. People a lot smarter than me have been studying addiction and have determined that addictions are just forms of habit dysfunctions. And I think it's a really powerful explanation for addictions because here's the problem. There's many problems with addictions, but here's a problem with addiction that makes it difficult to stop them. And that is the fact that there's so much emotion tied up in the things that we do that are destructive. And it can become super difficult for you to change an addictive behavior because of all that emotion. But when you think about addiction as patterns of behavior, as habits, then we can use science to isolate the trigger and the behavior pattern you keep repeating. And that way, you can focus on just changing the behavior and you can separate the emotion from it and work on that with a professional. So in case you're struggling with addiction, here's how you can use this insight about addictions being a habit dysfunction and all the science around it to make a positive change. First, all habits have a trigger and then a behavior pattern that you repeat. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to identify all of the things that trigger you throughout the day to reach for that thing you're addicted to. Whether you're addicted to smokes or drinking or social media or porn or anything else, triggers can be anything like time of day, people, places, smells. It could just be stress. Then what I want you to do is I want you to sit down and make a plan for what you will be doing for every one of these triggers instead of the addiction. And I need you to do it ahead of time. This strategy is called if-then planning. And based on research, it is proven to dramatically boost your success. The final takeaway, it's about childhood strategies. Now, you're going to hear a lot about this topic from me. It's the idea that we've all developed strategies when we were kids in order to deal with the situations that were upsetting or abusive. Now, for Kim, you'll recall that she described a moment in her life when she quit baton twirling. Why did she quit? 
Well, she didn't want to be in a leotard in front of her entire school. And guess what? Quitting worked, and it became a pattern. Every one of us has a place in our lives where we are stuck in a pattern that we invented when we were kids. And by the time you finish listening to these eight coaching sessions, you will have likely identified that pattern in your life. Now, the way you can start working on it right now is to stop focusing on what's wrong with you and start asking yourself, what happened to you? And by the way, what happened to Kim? Well, Kim's doing dynamite. She quit smoking, she's doing more yoga, and she's got something she wants to say to you. I would tell them that they have no idea of how much beauty and how much potential they have and they have to weed through all their own bullshit to find that for themselves and there's nobody that's going to convince them of it but themselves but they have the power and they have the potential In this coaching session, you're going to meet a former NFL player named Marcus. He's here because he wanted my advice on kicking ass in business. My name is Marcus Ogden. I'm 37 years old. I'm from Washington, D.C. I played in the NFL from 2003 to 2009. I am a keynote speaker. Since Marcus is a keynote speaker, he's also a great storyteller. And in this coaching session, you're going to learn the power of owning your whole story in life and in business including the painful parts. And for Marcus, that means telling the story of what it feels like to go from being an NFL player to owning a business to then losing everything. Saying, my God, my God, why me? Like, why the hell did you basically just take from me everything? My house, gone. Both my trucks repossessed in the same week, gone. I was just trying to basically scrape to stay alive. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Liz. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck and experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh shit. Now I really know what to do and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Hey! There she is! Oh my god! How oh are my you? god! I need a hug. How are you? Oh, great to meet you. Nice to meet you. So tell me, why are you here? What can I help you with? I'm kind of stuck in my business where I'm trying to get to that next level. I get up at five o'clock every morning, go to the gym. I'm out there talking to people through LinkedIn. I have a lot of business through LinkedIn. I mean, I'm active on there all the time and meeting people and going different, you know, gigs, get gigs. And I get all that. But to become a like a, yourself, you really need to have that quantum leap. And I don't know how to get there. I can certainly help you. 
because it sounds like what you want to do, and I can relate to it, we're going to get into it, mm-hmm. is this idea that you put in the work, you check all the boxes, mm-hmm. and you grow, but then you hit the ceiling, mm-hmm. and you start to feel stuck, mm-hmm. and you have no idea, or at least I didn't at the time, how the hell do I create a quantum leap for right. myself Correct. when I feel like I've hit the ceiling and I don't know what to do next. So tell me your story. Ha. Okay. So I'm originally from Washington, D.C. I was raised by a single father. My brother, Jonathan Alex is in the, in the NFL Football Hall of Fame. I played in the NFL from 2003 to 2009. Guy, the NFL had a tremendous time struggling with the transition. Like, what do I do next? Like you say, you know, you're lost. Like, what is the next piece? So I ended up starting a construction business. I got a business partner, which was a mistake. He had been in this business of construction for almost 40 years. The problem was I was a commercial contractor. He was a residential contractor. By the time I realized he wasn't in the same stratosphere as doing work for commercial, it was too late. Gotcha. I already signed a bond. I was already on the hook. So everything was going great, though. We went from $0 to eight-figure business in five years. Holy I, cow. I was, I'm a people person. I can market well. I can go help close deals. That is my strong suit. So I was a CEO in charge of marketing, getting jobs, all collections, all that. So in 2012, we worked for a very large contract and took on a job for $4 million, hit a snag, and I had to spend millions of dollars in 90 days unexpectedly was not planned. It's okay. just in the end of 2012. So it was probably like August, September. So I spent the money. It's now December. Went to go get paid back my change order by the developer and contractor. They denied it. I never got a signed document because they said, Marcus, they, I shook their hand. Oh, we're going to take care of you. Oh, and by the way, if you don't do this, we're going to call on your bond. So they put pressure on me and I was young and my partner said, what do we do? And I, he said, let's go for it. And I didn't get a signed contract because I was really under the gun. The concrete contractor was pushing me. The developer was pushing me and I was very young and inexperienced. Right. So I did the job and I did not get paid back by the developer contractor. And I ended up going bankrupt in 2013. So then I go to Carolina with the NFL's help and I apply for what's called the Gene Upshaw Trust Assistance Fund. It's a fund that helps players that are in financial hardship that can prove it with tax documentation, bank statements. So when I moved down to Carolina from Baltimore, the NFL helped get me a job at Merrill Lynch. I was working there for a couple months. I got let go because I wasn't going to pass a series. I was failing on my practice tests. Now, hold on. You went to Howard. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy school to get into. Nope. And what did you... Finance. So how embarrassing was it for you to be a major in finance, Uh a Howard graduate, Uh and go bankrupt, Uh and then get a job with the trust from the NFL and the Uh collective bargaining agreement? Very nice. And get a job at Merrill Lynch and then get let go because you can't get past the Series 7. You know, I mean, what was it like in your head? It was a nightmare. It was, a, it was, I call it walking hell on earth. It's like you realize that what you did in school, you're not good at anymore because I had graduated over almost 10 years ago. And all I knew for that real time, for, for good, most of that time was football. When I got to Merrill Lynch, everything I ever studied in college, I forgot. And trying to reprogram my brain and reinvent myself in that lane was a mistake. Yeah. Horrible mistake. And I ended up getting let go. And I got to hire to a construction company. I'm like, yes, construction company. I'm all ready to go. I know what to do. We're hired on Monday, fired on Friday. 
Holy cow. Fired twice and within a week. So what did you make that mean? Because obviously you got to process it. I made it mean that I was in the wrong space and that I needed to go back and find my passion, which was football. Now, how the hell? Because that sounds like a transformed idea. Because if I got fired twice within a week, right. I'd be like, the world sucks. There is no God. This isn't fair. Oh, Fuck didn't... all of you. You know, what happened? <laughs> I don't believe that you were that transformed. Well, I mean, come so, on. Okay, okay. So let me go back. So I got like forget the. I'm going to tell you how to how to quantum leap your motivational what, speaking business. But I want to know you as a human. So being. when I got when I got fired the second time, okay, I got hooked on alcohol. I drank and I drank. What was your drink of choice? It was Miller Lite and Tangerine Tonic. If I couldn't really, couldn't really Tangeray. Could have, I How could the hell can you afford I could Tangeray? Afford, I, could, I couldn't really afford it. So it really was Miller Lite. I had Tangeray every once in a while, but it was Miller Lite. You gotta Lite. drink a lot of Miller Lite. Oh, Did you balloon? Oh yeah. How I much weight there. did you gain? I came down to Carolina probably about 280. Then you know, I got fired twice. I probably went from like 280 about 330. In probably about a th- four to five month period, it was just hamburger helper, middle light, hamburger helper, middle light. That's 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 all we could afford. We couldn't afford nothing else. Like that's what it was. It's been a lot cheaper to drink a handle I rather mean, than a rack of Miller Light. That's all I'm mean. saying. So that's what I did for about four or five months, and I coached football, and that was a retransformation because. I went back to what I knew, but it sucked because I'm like, man, like this is my life. Like I'm, I'm literally on, um, uh, what's it called, uh, Living Social, and I'm perusing Living Social, finding phone numbers of people to call and say, hey, you want to get some sessions on the side? Like, so basically, I scammed Living Social. And <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the damn story. <laughs> this, I, I scammed. You want to know how to have an incredible speech? <laughs> this is the speech. Well, I, I do talk about everything, like for alcoholism depression pain medication you know not wanting to get out of bed you know saying my god my god why me like why did you choose me i you know i i pay my taxes i you know i took care of so i was a community guy in the nfl i had a business i hired ex-cons i hired people who society had given up on i i was doing things in the community i was a minority business i was trying to give back why the hell did you basically just take from me Everything, my house gone, both my trucks repossessed in the same week, gone. Then to top that, coaching football wasn't enough. So what did I do? I became a part-time janitor in downtown Raleigh, making $8.25 an hour, cleaning baseboards, vacuuming, pledging tables, scrubbing them, taking trash out, pouring in 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 the dump. You talk about degradation. You talk about feeling like you haven't made anything of yourself. You talk about somebody that's which is hardworking, but hardworking with not a plan. I was just trying to basically scrape to stay alive. That's what I was like. You clawed your way back. Yes, absolutely. I remember when both cars got repossessed and we had to go get a car and we went to get this piece of what I want piece of crap it was okay this piece of crap all <laughs> thank you this piece of crap Altima that I had to pay like 30% interest because our credit was so shot but we could get nothing else and I remember my wife had a job at the learning center it was like a daycare she had to wear this blue bright blue shirt with an elephant emblem on her shirt and I would pick her up like I would be coaching football I'd be on the phone calling people training calling and I would drop her off at work I have to go pick her back up you know what? 
you can't see it when it's happening mm-hmm. but i so believe that if you're somebody that's going to go out in the world and do big things mm-hmm. there is a big breakdown that you have to go through mm-hmm. that life tests you mm-hmm. you don't you don't get to go out and inspire other people in my opinion mm-hmm. unless you have you have stood the test Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, did you stand the test. Oh, I I literally remember sitting in our house just thinking to myself, what am I going what am I living for? Why? If it wasn't for my 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 wife and my stepdaughter, um yeah. I mean you could literally say, Wow. Like when you lose millions of dollars in ninety days, well let me, let me tell you, when you spend it and you expect to get it paid back because you're doing I don't business. even think that was the big thing. Mm. I actually don't. I think the big thing was probably the moment that you were literally trolling Living Social, begging for high school coaching side jobs, and working as a janitor. That was it. Now, the the, the life-defining moment, I was taking out the trash at 3 o'clock in the morning. Someone spoiled milk and their trash got on my bare skin when I was taking out the trash because my glove had broke and it got right on my skin. And I was taking it out, and I went after that. After I dumped it, went and sat down on the curb, headed my hands, and said, "Is this going to be your life? Is this what you're destined for? To sit here on the curb? This is this is this is in 2013. This is in summer. Are you destined to spend the rest of your life coaching football, begging people for three sessions for 129 dollars? Are you going to always pay 825 an hour, or are you going to actually get off your butt?" And go out there and try to help other people. Try to help. And really, I started this mail to help other athletes not go through bankruptcy. 78% of us have filed bankruptcy two years after being retired. That's insane. 78%. And I became a statistic, not because I was blowing money on cars, blowing money. I invested in the wrong thing. And when you put everything into one thing... I work for the NFL now. I work with the player engagement department. I mean, I've seen guys, Mel, who've lost money in the restaurant business. Guys have lost money trying to become like a, try to start a, uh, a franchise that goes under. They're in the wrong place, wrong, you know, wrong location, you know, wrong timing. I could just go down the list. Guys that now just don't want to get out of bed. So let me ask you a question. What I want to know is what was your secret to making the turn? Because I think that there's, a ton of people who hit a rock bottom moment that in that moment your head is in your hand and you're sitting on the curb and you're thinking how could this be my life how could i have gone from the nf fucking l to a multi-million dollar company to losing it all to sitting here on a curb just a couple years later as a janitor Mm -hmm. How did you go from that moment of despair to actually saying the answer is helping somebody else or the answer is telling my story? So that whole time I was scrawling, scratching, scrawling, scratching, then I was like, wait a second. So when the trash got on my skin, I said, oh my God, like this can't be it. So I sat down, I was like, okay, all right, what what are you going to do? And then it's like some voices came to me. It's like my father's voice said, Marcus, this is where you are going to have to go back to what I taught you leadership skills are the only thing that can get you out of this because if you keep blaming other people you are going to always be sitting right here on your ass 
always getting second best, third best, whatever the hell you want to call it. The worst, you know, the bottom of the barrel. You will always get what life throws you, not go out and get what you want. Well, you know, what's so interesting is I'm going to show you that you're at, you're not, you're at a very similar moment in your business now. Mm-hmm. That all quantum leaps that happen are caused by getting out of the weeds mm-hmm. and looking ahead. Mm-hmm. And that when you're in the zone of hustle, 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 get by, claw your way out, claw your way out, claw your way out, blame, 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 you cannot see where you're going. Right. And we're gonna be thinking bigger because that's the answer to any leap that you manufacture. You've already done it in your life. Right. And now it's time to do it again. Let's go back to that moment where you're sitting on the curb. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing that you did? Because leadership skills sounds like such a big concept. Well, okay. What does that mean? All right, so what was the first thing I did? You want the truth? Yeah. I cried. Okay. okay. I cried. I was like, damn. Like, I just cried. Then after getting over that, I went home. I sat at my at my little table, my little broke, you know, whatever table in my office. It was more like a little my little sit room. And I wrote out a action plan. Five-step action plan. Number one, I'm going to be a speaker. Number two. Why a speaker? Because when I was in the NFL, did a lot of speaking for them. I had a comfort in it, and I was very good at talking, and I also knew I was a people person. Gotcha. Okay, so, so you went right back to, to what am I good at? What am I energized correct. by speaking? Correct. Well, I'm going to be a speaker. Right. So you're a janitor, but you write, you have the, the guts to write on a piece of paper, I'm going to be a speaker. Correct. And you know what? That was number one. Number two is I had to identify my verticals. I didn't have the other two at the time, but I knew leadership was going to be my first one. So I I focused on that. Number three, who am I trying to help? Wanted to help athletes because that's what I was. That's what I knew. And I said, okay, these people can relate to me. Number four, who, and I said, who was in my inner circle? I wrote down names of people of, of kids I was training for football. Then number five, I just said every single day, I'm going to tell one to three people what I'm trying to do every single day. Either they can laugh at me, mock me, which most did. Mock? They mocked you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Marcus, why are you doing this? Like, like you know how hard it's become a speaker? Marcus, like, you should be a football coach. You did exactly what you should do, which is you trust that first impulse you start to get clarity by writing things down and then you practice the clarity by speaking it out loud and then you get the avalanche, the avalanche of people that say, oh, no, 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 no. No, you're making a mistake. Yes. May- oh, you're That's you- a test. What are you thinking? Oh. See, life is full of tests. Mm-hmm. And that was a test to see if you're actually serious. Yep. Because all you get when you tell people what you're up to is them reflecting back exactly what they think you should do. Right. And you were... Like there, there's so many signs in this that it's going to happen it's because you didn't listen. You didn't listen when people said you should be a football coach because that makes perfect sense. Sure it does. It's easy. Yes. It's, it's comfortable. It's comfortable. It's comfortable because I can now put you in a box mm-hmm. and that's how I know you and that's what you should do. And that feels like the easiest thing to do. And so first of all, I got to applaud you for the fact that you didn't listen. Mm-hmm. And second... I, you know, also have to applaud you for the fact that you kept telling people. Yeah. You kept telling people. Absolutely. So, um, tell me, so how long have you been in the speaking business? About five years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what is the ceiling that you've hit? Define the ceiling that you've hit. 
The ceiling that I've hit is I've been doing some jobs, but it's not consistent where I'm really having a, I'm having the struggle going up to that next level where you're getting paid the larger amounts more consistently. So in other words, the ceiling that you've hit is that you are at a point where you know what you're doing, Mm -hmm. you know what you want to be doing, Mm -hmm. but you're not doing enough of it. Correct. So you need more sales. Correct. And you need more exposure. Correct. Okay. So when you hit a ceiling, Mm -hmm. whether it's in business or with a relationship or in your career, in order to cause this leap to the next level, one of my favorite things to do is time travel. (laughs) Okay. And the reason why I love time traveling is because it gets me out of the weeds and I think you're in the weeds. Okay. And that what I want you to do is I want you to travel forward and let's go two years out. Okay. And I want you to describe exactly what does your business look like? How many speeches are you doing? Mm-hmm. We need to quantify it. So go out two years and tell me where you want to get to. This is a critical piece to causing the growth. So I would say is in two years, I like to be doing five or six a month, you know, with corporations all across the world. You want to do about 60 speeches a year. Give or take, yes. So when you have benchmarks Mm -hmm. through time traveling, Mm -hmm. then it becomes much easier to back yourself up and figure out what do you need to be doing now? Because you're still in the mode of hustle, 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 hustle. Right. And the things that, that you do when you're hustling, they dig you out of a hole but they're not strategic. Correct. And in order to cause that leap, you're going to have to cause a shift in your behavior. You're going to have to cause a shift in the habits that you have. You're going to have to cause a shift in your focus. And that that shift that you're going to cause right now in this moment is anchored to two years out. What I want you to do is I want you to find three or four other people that have consistent bookings that are basically doing what you want to do. Right. And then I want you to take a look and see what are the things that they're doing. Okay. And then whatever habits they have that you don't have. Add them. You need to pivot right now. Mm -hmm. You need to act right now in this moment consistently with the person that's already got 60 engagements. Mm -hmm. And what you're going to find is those people are doing certain things on social media. They have certain types of positioning. They have certain habits. They have certain events that they go to. They have certain relationships. You're going to observe all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yes. And then you're going to start to do it. Got it. And the reason why that works is because what we want to do is get you out of the pattern of doing what you're doing now because it's only giving you the results that you have. Mm -hmm. In order to reach the next level, particularly when you feel stuck, you have got to time travel you have to identify some goalposts and some people that that are doing kind of what you want to do, not people that have been doing it for 35 years. Right. That that will that's, just deflate you. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. You want to pick somebody that's within reach, that you admire, that's the next step. Okay. And then look at what they're doing. There are things that you want to emulate. Right. Got it? That makes sense. Okay. Um, the other thing, and this is an observation, I suspect that there is a subconscious imposter syndrome thing 
that is at play here. And let me explain why I suspect that. When I was first getting into the speaking business, my insecurity started to creep in because like you, I started out and I wasn't paid at all for the first couple of years. And then I realized, wow, people get paid to do this. Right. And then I started getting paid a small amount and I became very insecure and shy about making the jump to go to the next level, to double my fee, to be a little bit bigger. And so in that time period, when I started to feel self-conscious, I had hit a ceiling, just like you've hit a ceiling. My insecurities were right there because I hit the ceiling. The imposter syndrome was right there because I hit the ceiling. I started to lean too much on credentials. I started to talk about the fact that I was with CNN, which has nothing to do with speaking. I started to talk about, you know, the TED Talk or the the Dartmouth, the Ivy League credential, which has nothing to do with speaking. Uh-huh. And I led with that for a long time because I thought I had to be smarter than the audience. I thought I had to be a leader. I thought I had to be this person with all these fancy pants credentials. And that's what justified me being on the stage. It wasn't until, and I didn't realize this until probably two years ago. Wow. It wasn't until I realized, holy shit, there's a hundred thousand people that call themselves leadership experts. There's only one Mel Robbins. Nobody can tell my story but me. And when I did the exact same exercise that I'm telling you to do, which is time travel, time travel two years ahead, look out, see who you're jealous of, see who you admire, see whose business, man, man, I, I would really love to have a business like that. See what the hell they're doing. And then have an honest conversation with yourself about what that looks like. I realized something very specific. At the range that I wanted to speak at, there are a couple kinds of speakers. There are celebrities, that legit celebrities. That's one kind of speaker. You've got the people that are intellectual firebrands, who are researchers, that are super cerebral. And then you have people that are personalities. That's me. Nobody can tell my story. I'm not smarter than anybody in the audience. I'm not an expert in leadership. I'm not an expert in anything, actually. I'm a motivational speaker that uses my story to entertain, to educate, to inspire people on subjects around resiliency, around change. And I think part of the reason why you're stuck is because you are so focused on credentials and leadership that you're forgetting your number one asset. And that's you. Me. You know, that Marcus's story is a story that I want everybody in my organization to hear. Not that Marcus is the leadership expert that I'm going to hire from Howard and the NFL. And blah, 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 I love blah, the voice. Blah, blah, blah. I love the voice change, but you know, that's awesome. But yeah, right? No, that that. But that your story that's spot on is powerful enough, and you don't make the leap until you have a spoiled milk moment, like you had sitting on that curb where you said, "You know what? Something I'm doing isn't working." And you went home and you time traveled and said, I am going to go back to something that inspires me, which is being a speaker. And what I'm here to tell you is 
leadership experts, innovation experts, they are a dime a dozen. Uh Being a personality that inspires people, that takes care of people, those are one in a million. And when you embrace what's unique to you and you marry it with the habits of people that are two years ahead of you, you win every single time. What are you getting out of that? I'm getting that my approach has been all wrong. A hundred percent. When you're in the beginning, you got to hustle. You got to do anything you can possibly do to get somebody to pay you a dollar to do the thing you want to do. And by the way, for two and a half years, I didn't get one paid job. Yeah, so, me either. So I get me either. Yeah. But, but see, that's what I mean about earning the ability to do something that makes a difference. You got to be doing, you got to be willing to do it for free before somebody is going to actually pay you. Sure. Then once people start paying you, you got to take all those clients and you got to use them for credibility. That's marketing. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I am talking about the internal anchoring Mm -hmm. that you use to propel yourself forward. You're at a point where the marketing has worked. You're in the game. Mm -hmm. The reason why you've hit the ceiling is now it's time for you to become yourself and fully own it. And that takes a lot of courage. That makes, wow. I was talking to someone who said, Marcus, you know how many people would love to hear, event players would love to hear from a, and he said the same thing you did, an NFL athlete to a multi-million dollar business owner to a janitor. They said, "There's you, you can't hear that. For the rest of your life, be on the hunt for where you're trying to be someone you're not. Mm. Be on the hunt for where insecurity is taking you out of your lane. Insecurity is always there and it will kill your dreams. It will kill your momentum. And so you've got to be on the lookout for it and squash it wherever you see it. Never lose the special sauce that is the fact that there's only one you and you have a unique perspective and a unique spin on things. There's so many mental notes I've taken today. It's just unreal. It's unreal. Awesome. I'm feeling positively overwhelmed with great information. If you're stuck in anything in life, look forward and then pull yourself out of the weeds, the rut, the clutter, the, you know, the craziness and be a forward thinker. To start forward thinking and that's going to help put you to a place where you want to be. Don't you want to go see him speak? I know I do. By the way, he not only was filled with great information, but I also heard from him less than a week after we had that conversation. He took everything we talked about to heart. He changed his sales strategy. He's now pitching the Marcus Ogden story rather than trying to position himself as a business leadership expert. And guess what? He just landed the biggest speaking engagement of his life. Now, there are three main things I want you to take away from this coaching session. Number one, be on the hunt for wherever you are not owning your unique story. Because of insecurity, Marcus was positioning himself as a leadership expert, and he was missing the point. His real power was in telling his story. You see, if you rely too heavily on credentials like Marcus did, like I used to do, it might be because of insecurity. There's a time and place for credentials, and it's when you're starting out. 
But over time, your power is never in your credentials. It's in you, your story, your instincts, and the unique things that you bring to the table. So wherever you're shying away from who you really are, I hope this coaching session gives you the kick in the ass that you need in order to embrace yourself fully. Now, the second takeaway I want to highlight is the power of time travel. How do you engineer a quantum leap or take anything in your life to the next level? Simple. I want you to travel forward two years. Envision where you want to be. And then list out all of the thinking and behavior patterns that you've changed. Then we're going to bring that all back to the present day. And I want you to start shifting your thinking and behavior now to align with the patterns from the future you. Now, what if you have no idea what direction you're going to head in? Well, there was a little gem Marcus shared that I want to highlight and make sure that you picked up on, because I sure picked up on it. Remember when he talked about that life-defining moment? He was sitting on the curb, working as a janitor. He had spoiled milk on his hand, and he was so down and out, thinking, this just can't be my life. Do you remember how he identified the new direction to head in? This is the final takeaway. He asked himself a question, and you need to steal it. He said, what in my life came easy or energized me? That's where you start if you don't know what direction to head in. For Marcus, the thing that came easy, the thing that energized him, was when he was speaking in the community when he was in the NFL. That was the answer. Go back to the thing that came easily and energized him. And that's how he began his quantum leap. And guess what? That's how you can begin yours if you don't know how. This is a real tough love coaching session with a woman named Jessie who's been struggling to lose weight for decades. Now, I need to give you a trigger warning because, boy, is this a tough love conversation. The way I talk to this person, it's intentional and it's aggressive, but I do it for a reason. My name is Jessie. I am 33, and I am from Syracuse, New York. I'm just not comfortable in my skin um, on a physical level. It's difficult to fit into certain chairs, um, to do normal everyday um, activities with my kids. Um, I'm always the one that stands out in the crowd, typically as the bigger girl in the room. And um, I'm ready to not be dealing with the extra weight that potentially could set, you know, could take my life in the end. If you're struggling to lose weight, you're probably going to hate me as you listen to this. Just promise me you will listen all the way to the end because the issue that she walked in asking for help with isn't the one she needed help with. I was labeled as an emotional eater, as an overeater. I had like an eating disorder. And I'm not saying I don't, but I don't. Why do you get mad when people tell, when people say that what's true about you? Because um, I want to decide what's true about me. I don't want other people telling me um, who I am. You're going to hate talking to me. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's why I'm here, because I need, 
You know, I said I needed to push. And let me tell you, she got one. <sighs> oh, shit. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Liz. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh, shit. Now I really know what to do, and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Good. Welcome to Boston. Thank you. Tell me why you're here. Why do you want to talk to me? Okay. I need to get over the self-sabotage of my weight loss. Okay. So that's the main reason. Okay. Well, let's talk about your weight. How much do you weigh? All right. I am 293, maybe. Is this the heaviest you've ever been? Absolutely. Have you always been heavy? I was healthy weight up until my first, second grade. And then I had um, some abuse happen. And since then, I have always been overweight or obese. And what happened in second or third grade? Um, I was sexually abused by a teenage boy in the neighborhood. What happened? I was at a sleepover. Uh And um, the girl that I was friends with, her older brother was babysitting us. Mm Mm-hmm. He brought me into his room, and he did some sexual acts to me um, and and his friend also to his sister. Did you and the friend ever talk about it? Uh, no. No. After that, um, she started to bully me, and um, I started to gain weight. So our friendship was over at that point. And, uh, what did she do to bully you? Oh, we were on the same softball team and it was just, she was just snotty towards me on the bus. Um, you know, she would make comments about my weight. This is in first and second grade. This is very young. So like the details are foggy, but that's the truth. And it's really only been until recently that I've started talking about it. And had you always remembered it or had you suppressed it and then it came back later? I suppressed it and it came back later. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, You know, you got more choked up when you talked about the bullying than you did when you talked about the molestation and sexual abuse. Why? Um, I think I'm more disconnected with the abuse. The bullying has been that was something that went on for years so that was more of a a constant and when i got older and older and it wasn't until middle school when i started to sing so i had like a positive thing i was known for that i was able to build my confidence oh interesting yeah okay so um when did you remember the sexual abuse nine months ago that's it how old are you 33. Well, it was 27 when I remembered mine. I am a survivor as well. It was an incident at fourth grade. 
Oh, okay. So it's right about good. the same sound there. Um, and how did you remember it? What happened? Oh shit! Really? Yes. Oh my god. Why? What? what? This, this is a dramatic story. Well. Okay. Um, I was being intimate with my husband, okay. and I had a flashback while we were being intimate. Wow. Yeah, it sucked. But as I learned, that's normal. Yeah. Like, that's a way that trauma can come back. And uh -huh. my husband's a safe place. And he was awesome. He's a great man. Um, but yeah, so I had this flashback. Um, I was going through EMDR therapy. Oh, so you're going through therapy for your weight? I was and going... And that stirred up a bunch of stuff that had yes. you remember being sexually abused while yes. making love to your husband? Yes. You can laugh. <laughs> All right, we'll laugh because I don't know how else to handle it right now. Well, yeah, I mean, look, our issues can be heavy or you can actually try to bring some levity to serious issues so that you have, you get in touch with your humanity. Yeah, yeah. You're still here. You're yeah. still breathing. You're still on the right side of the soil. Like, so, and you survived. I so did, I did. We don't, the, the incident itself has enough heaviness to it. That if you can find the humor yeah. in life, it can be helpful. Absolutely. Okay. So you discover it, and then you go back into therapy, and what do you learn? Um, I learned that, I, I, this is essentially when I learned that this is the reason I'm blocked with my weight loss, and also with my, my businesses, that I, you know, my entrepreneur businesses, um, that I sabotage myself a fear of really being seen mm -hmm. um so whether that's being acknowledged in my business like it's what i want it's what i know i can get but then it happens and then i retreat and i sabotage all the hard work i've done so same thing with the weight loss like um so that's what i learned after i had the flashback and okay, I, and so now that you have this insight, which makes a lot of sense. Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> oh, yeah, it makes a lot of well, sense. Well, that's the fear is you I'm talk about because, it. Because, you know, like I, the reason why I'm fat is because I don't want anybody to touch me. Yeah, and, and people go, oh, but you're just lazy. Like, you don't are follow. You? No, I'm so fucking hard worker. I then do... why are you fat? <sighs> because I sabotage myself because what I'm afraid of people. Yeah, but what does that mean? Um, because I eat. I will eat stuff from my childhood. Like, those are my favorite foods to go to. Um, why did you get mad at me when I said you're lazy because people have said that to me what if it's true um there's a difference between being busy which you are and being lazy which means you actively avoid doing the hard stuff oh okay okay do you see the difference mm-hmm and I think that part of the issue is being busy. And you strike me as somebody who... It's sort of like this energy that if you just keep moving, no one can catch you. <laughs> yep. I do understand what you're saying about the weight and how it can become... A protection and it can become a sense of safety and identity and it also allows you to not be seen which makes you feel safe mm -hmm. but I do think there's a deeper level to this that you haven't uncovered about what you're actively doing that will help give you the self-control okay. 
and the power that you need that you can't find. Okay. Have you ever had a period in your life where you did lose weight? Yes. What happened? I was like 23, I think it was. Okay. Um, and I was, it was the only time I was a healthy weight. And how much do you weigh? Did you I was 150. Weigh? Okay. Which is pretty How tall good. are you? Like 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, yeah, it's a great weight. Yeah, I'd like to be back there. <laughs> okay. You can get back there. I know. Do you believe that? I do. I know it's going to be hard. And I don't necessarily think what's going to be hard is the physical work. Um, what's going to be hard? Letting go of the fear. Of what are you afraid of? people seeing me what does that even mean I, I see i don't buy that i don't think that's true i think you're dying to be seen mm. you're a singer for crying out loud <laughs> it's true <laughs> right i think there's something else going on entirely the way in which you're describing this stuff okay is too convenient and seeing the things that you've seen it's not making a difference. And that tells me that we haven't discovered the truth yet. Okay. Not necessarily okay. about what happened with the trauma, but actually what you did in response to it and the patterns that you started to develop and the strategies that you started to use. Does that make sense? Sure. Yep. I was labeled as an emotional eater, as an overeater. I, I had like an eating disorder, and I'm not saying I don't, but I don't. Why do you get mad when people tell when people say that what's true about you? Um, because I want to decide what's true about me. I don't want other people telling me um, who I am. You're gonna hate talking to me then. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's why I'm here because I need. <laughs> you know, I said I needed to push. I like I need a big push and so okay um there has been this defense mechanism is like i don't need anybody i can do i can do it on my own and my poor husband has been the uh has gotten the brunt of that a lot so um what do you think you're angry about like so what's <laughs> okay. interesting is you're 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 lovely and funny and you got a great personality. And I would imagine that when you walk into the room, your energy and your personality is what's in the room. Yeah. But underneath all of that, there's somebody who's very angry. Yeah, I could see that. That's why I don't really have a lot of deep friendships, probably, um, for this reason. Because mm -hmm. it gets to that point and I say, fuck you, and I leave or I move or I go to a different church or I go to a different job and mm -hmm. it gets too, too, too close. Yeah. Catch me if you can. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how my husband You're constantly stuck. testing people. You. Yeah. To see if they're going to stick around. Yeah. 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 How's it working? <sighs> not great um yeah and i guess i'm afraid that my husband's gonna go you know i'm gonna push him have you um i haven't pushed him far enough yet but i know he has said um he's not happy he wants more of an intimate relationship and i just like 
close it off. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're fine. You know, <laughs> um, the cool thing is that, you know, a lot, you know what you reach for when you get emotional. Yeah. You know that the sexual abuse makes you want to hide. Yeah. The thing that we haven't figured out is the real pattern. Okay. I think it has to do with anger. Okay. When I think about what we've been talking about so far, the piece that that um, really jumps out at me, though, is the, the theme of friends, the theme of bullying. And it's striking to me that that upsets you more than the sexual abuse that you remembered, that this lack of connection in your life. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk more about that. Okay. So why do you think you don't have any friends? Because I feel like if I am, am really honest with them, then they won't want to be friends with me. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, like they'll see my ugliness and then they'll run away. What's your ugliness? Uh, what is my ugliness? All right, let's go. Let's see. Um, I'm selfish. Okay. I'm definitely selfish. Um, I want to be the center of attention. Um, I want to be the most, the best in the room. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, what would people say right now? I love this. <laughs> I love it because you're actually, this is the first time you're being honest. Okay. I think the last, I think the worst thing that actually happened to you is when a therapist told you that you're fat because of sexual abuse. Hmm. I think it's the opposite. I don't think that you want to hide at all. I think you're pissed off when you're not the center of attention. Hmm. You just admitted it. Mm-hmm. I used to be just like, I used to be the world's biggest narcissist. It's why I have very few friends from high school, very few friends from college, very few friends from my 20s and 30s. And it wasn't until I realized, holy shit, I wouldn't want to be my friend either. Because I don't like to share the attention. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't like it when other people are doing better than me. I'm catty. Mm -hmm. I'm jealous. Mm -hmm. I'm gossipy. And it's all because it's got to be about me. And I think the reason why you haven't lost weight has nothing to do with sexual abuse. You've been heavy your whole life. Yeah. You didn't even remember this. Right. Very Freudian of a therapist mm -hmm. to tell you, oh, conveniently, now we have the answer. No, we don't. You like your weight. Because yes, that's true. Oh, tell that's me true. more. <laughs> I do like my weight. Um, Why do you like being fat? And I'm going to use that word. That's okay. It is fat. Yeah. Why do you like it? Why do you like being the size you are? Oh, maybe it's because I'm... Oh, shit. Because I'm the fattest person in the room. Oh, my. Uh huh. <laughs> so that makes me special somehow. Uh huh. Oh, this is very interesting. Um, it almost gives me a reason to be angry at people. Like, I feel like people are judging me, but they, they're maybe not even saying anything, but they look at me. And then I'm like, oh, they think I'm fat. I hate them. You know, and I'm like, I don't even know this person. 
I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, let's say I'm on the airplane mm-hmm. sitting next to this businessman. Mm-hmm. And when you were a fat person, <laughs> like, oh, my God. I did have anxiety sitting. Like, who am I going to sit next to? Why? Because my chub goes over into their seat. You love that, though. <sighs> Admit it. Oh, because they see that I'm there. Like, they have to know I'm here. You take up space, man. If you lost all that weight and you were just a 150-pound pastor's wife, <laughs> look, you're even disgusted by that idea. And you're, you you have the audacity to come in here and tell me, I want to lose weight. <laughs> oh, sad, my God. Mel. I want to lose weight. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah, you're right. I don't, because I know how to do it. What is the power that you get from being the weight that you are? Tell me all the things that are good about it. Oh. Tell me the ways in which you, you get to use your weight to boss your husband around. <laughs> oh, boy. Gosh. How do I use my weight to boss my husband? Um, or to dominate him. There is a sense of, like, you need to pity me because I am fat. Bingo. And I'm fat, so I need to take a nap. Yep. And what else? And you need to do the dishes. Yep. And you need to do the laundry. And can you just take one of these effing kids for so I can take a break? Because I'm fat. What? What? Does that? I mean, what? are you kidding me? This is unexpected. It always is. You haven't gotten down to the core root. And the root is not sexual abuse. The core is narcissism. And it's a desperate desire to dominate the hell out of any situation. And yeah, maybe you got some rage in you because you got bullied like everybody got bullied. But it spiraled out of control. And when you started to get fat, you got people's attention. Mm-hmm. Was your mother worried about your weight? Um, yes, but it was very like... It was very uh, tiptoe. Everyone has to tiptoe around me. Oh, because you're special. I'm special, and I'll, I will, I did, I was, I should, shouldn't say I was. I'm good at tantrums. Um, they've gotten less and less over the years because I have tools to better to deal with my anger. But I was known as, like, the uh, door slammer. So if you were going to take my cookies away, like, <laughs> No one wants to do that. So there was a lot of like walking around eggshells around uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Um, so let's go back to your husband. So do you deny him sex because you don't want to get naked? Um, you know, I'm actually okay being naked. I, I know. Great. I am. Well, you know why? Because you're proud of how you look. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it suck oh when you see God. the truth? <laughs> Oh, my God. Some people say, I hate being fat. I'm so fat. And I'm like, no, I am body positive. Like, it's okay to be big. You know. (sighs) I want to be honest with you about something. Okay. I don't care what you weigh. I am all for body positive and people feeling amazing in their bodies. What you have to come to terms with is that you are using your weight to punish other people, to dominate other people, 
and to be a big fucking whiny tantrum throwing adult. I can't believe it. I mean, it's true. Like, I'm shocked right now. I really am, but it's true. Are you actually shocked? Uh, um, Meaning, I, don't know. I find it surprising that a therapist would not have, that somebody wouldn't have pointed this out, but maybe they haven't. My husband's been trying to tell me. You think that? I wasn't listening to him. Like, he would, he's been trying to tell me this. I mean, he's been living with me. Um, but you're, if you're a narcissist, you don't hear it. Like, that's the thing you don't understand. You are a power-hungry narcissist who's using her weight to control everything. Shit, you're right. <laughs> like, that's true. That is true. So, wow. here's the question. Do you want to lose weight? Or do you want to be fat and not a narcissist? <laughs> um, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, because like, when I was skinny, I was still a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. I was still a bitch. Mm -hmm. Not that I like to call myself that, but I acted like it at times. Mm -hmm. um, so do I want to be... Who do you want to be? Like, what do you want? Like, so the first 33 years of your life <laughs> was you were a tantrum-throwing fat narcissist. I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to be a mean well, person. Well, you're going to get a divorce. <sighs> Narcissists don't stay married very long. I, I believe it. I... I don't think we've completed the list. What are you okay. doing? What do you do with your husband to dominate him? <sighs> oh, um, criticize. Yeah. Uh, when he tries to help, what do you do? Shut up. I don't need your help. And I run away kind of thing. What do you do at your husband's congregation to be noticed? Because I bet it just burns you up that he's the one that gets all the attention. <laughs> just hate that they love him so much. It's true. Uh, Why does that upset you? Um, because that's true. <laughs> it's. I want to help people, but then, um, like, this has been a huge argument in our marriage. Um, my resentment for not being seen or appreciated or acknowledged. It bothers you. Yeah. That he's the one up front of that church. Yeah. Because I can do it better. Hello. I went to school like he did. We went to Bible school together. Like, I can preach like you can. My God, this sounds so bad. It's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. And he is. This is nothing new to him. So, um, you know what's uh, should that? Say? say that. <laughs> say it. It's disgusting. Let's hear it. It's so. What I did a year ago. Oh, this is so crazy. I dyed my. Oh God, I dyed my hair blue and like purple, like mermaid. It was really pretty. No, it wasn't. Oh, fine. I no, okay. It wasn't. After a wash, it looked like shit. Um, Why'd you dye your hair blue? Because I wasn't getting attention, and I got a lot of negative attention from the church after that. Um, yeah, 
I got a lot of attention everywhere because of that. In my business that I was in, I wasn't getting any attention and I was pissed because I'd been with the company for four years. I had met these big goals and there was like no acknowledgement. So then I was like pissed. Mm -hmm. So then I dyed my hair blue to get, and I got actually some recognition from the company I was with. Because you weren't getting the attention. I wasn't getting the attention because it had grown, the company had grown so big that you know, I was just another number. Mm-hmm. Yep. But if I really wanted the attention, wouldn't I work harder to get more recognition? Nope. It's easier to throw a tantrum. It's what you've been doing since you were little. You don't know how to work hard to get attention. You only know how to throw tantrums to get attention. That would be a true statement. The good news is, I think you realize that this is getting to such a serious state with your marriage that the gig is up. Yeah. And you are starting to realize that you are single-handedly destroying your marriage. And it has nothing to do with your weight. It's true. And the fact that you are courageous enough and honest enough with yourself to admit that you're angry about your husband's success because he's getting more attention. And when they parade out of that congregation and give him the hugs and tell him that was an amazing sermon and thank you for what you said to my father last week at my mother's funeral and what a community builder he is and how this he is. It just enrages you. It's okay. It's ugly. Okay. It is ugly. If you can have a sense of humanity for yourself, like, oh man, holy shit. I've been doing this shit since first grade and people have let me get away with this? (laughs) Holy cow. I'm a really good tantrum thrower. Wow. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, if you can kind of have a little, I th- you can laugh at the weight because the weight, that's not the issue. And neither is the sexual abuse. The issue is narcissism, attention seeking, and tantrum throwing. That's why you have no friends. That's why your marriage is failing. That's why you're not happy. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. It sucks. Dude, I remember when I saw this shit in myself. The worst. I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. Like, I really don't. I bet you're exhausted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's a lot of work to throw tantrums and to push people out of your life. And someone will confront me and then I'm like, fuck you. And then I'm gone. Like, you're out. Like, delete from my friend list. See you later. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Yeah. 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 It's it's everywhere. That sucks. It's an easy thing to fix, believe it or not. Okay. Well, I'm good. I, I want to fix this. <laughs> well, first, I'm curious. Do you actually want to lose weight? Uh, I I need to lose weight. Like no, physically. No, no, I said, do you want to? I didn't ask you if you need do I want? to. Oh God, that's a complicated question. I feel like um, doesn't have to be. Do I want to lose weight? I don't. 
I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> We're not going to talk about your weight because I, I, unless it's something that you want to change, you're not going to do shit about it. And it's a waste of our time to discuss your weight. And you see, until you deal with this attention seeking, and because I think that it's true that you're an emotional eater, mm -hmm. but the emotion that triggers you to eat is anger. That would be a fair assessment. That every time you stick food in your mouth, it's like somebody who is a is a you know a smoker. Every time you shovel in the uh, mac and cheese or the ice cream or the cookies or the mashed potatoes or the Sour Patch Kids or whatever it is that you reach for, it's an F you to everybody. It is. That is exactly true. And so you have one of the greatest sources of power in your life is overeating mm -hmm. and your weight. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think it would rock your identity to the core if you actually lost the weight and if you got control of your eating. I agree. I absolutely agree. So, you know, again, I'm going to ask you, do you actually want to lose weight? I do. I do. Why? Because I want to leave behind that person. I want, I, I, I want to leave that identity of I'm defined and by my weight and the control and I'm tired of doing that. If you want to save your marriage and if you would like friends and if you want to be happy, you have got to lose your weight and you have got to break the habits around eating for power because it is so tightly intertwined with this narcissism. I know in my heart that is true. That that I that is here. I've never been able to to identify that, but that is very true. Yeah. So, you know, I think the massive massive distinction that we've gotten to is that your weight is not the result of pain. It's the result of power. It's true. It is true. I promised myself before I came in here that I wasn't going to say that's true to anything that I didn't feel was true. So I want you to walk out of here and actually have a clear direction about what you're going to change and what you actually want. Yeah. What business? You're a network marketer, right? Yes. Yep. So what do you sell? I sell ketones. What are ketones? Ketones help your body get into ketosis. So basically, my whole my whole business is about living optimally. Um, <laughs> well, why is that funny, Mel? <laughs> why do you think it's funny? Because I'm a fake. I'm a phony. I've been hypocritical. Yeah. Like, buy this shit from me. I don't do it. I don't follow it. I do whatever the fuck I want. I don't, I don't even drink it every day because I want to be in control. And I've told myself it's because I want, I'm sabotaging my own weight loss. That's why I'm not drinking it every day. 
But really, it's nothing to do with that. It has to do with the control. But business isn't about success for you. It's about narcissism. It's look at me, 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 look at me. And so that's why you don't care. Because you don't care about selling ketones or using them. You care about the attention that you either get from the parent company or from the marketing or from your upline or the attention that your downline needs. That's what it's about. And it's why you're not as successful as you want it to be. Yeah. And so the secret to fixing your marriage, the secret to having friends, the secret to being happy, the secret to being healthy, the secret to growing your network marketing business is to complete the chapter of your life where you are a raging, tantrum-throwing narcissist and turn the page and actually live the next chapter as somebody who is connected, somebody who cheers for other people, and somebody who truly does the work to be happy, to be healthy. That the tantrums are in the past. Yeah. What are some things that you really want for yourself? I mean, you love to sing. Is there a way to expand that? Could you be the choir director at the church? I could. But you don't want to? That's correct. Because you want to be the center of the attention or because you don't like the people or why? Um, Because I'll give an idea and then people will criticize it. They're not criticizing it. They're actually having what we call a discussion. I'm in charge. Listen, if I'm not in charge, then fuck it. Like, I'm not doing it. All right. Well, you're going to be in charge and alone and divorced and fat and unhealthy (sighs) with no friends. That's your choice. You're either in charge of everybody else or you're in fucking charge of yourself and putting all of that crap and that narcissism to the side so you can actually get what you want. Look, if you're a happy narcissist being alone and fucking up your marriage and being a total bitch to everybody you know, go for it. (sighs) No, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. Well, then that's what this battle's about. It's not about your weight. I agree. I totally agree. I'm mind blown. Yeah, it's very clear. You either fix this and you get the connection that you want and you build the business that you want and you become the kind of mom that you want and you get healthy or you are going to die alone as a cranky, righteous narcissist. I don't want to do that. I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. Well, that's the fight. Okay. The old chapter, the narcissist was in charge. Okay? The narcissist gets defensive when she is asked about her weight, asked about what she ate, asked about exercise, or is shown any other form of support or love or curiosity. Okay? You see how that is like the narcissist diet? that's a book totally i don't want to write that book anymore (laughs) honey you already did damn it (laughs) so let's (laughs) (sighs) okay 
let's turn the page. What do you want this new chapter to be defined by? If the old one was the tamper tantrum throwing, attention seeking, narcissist bitch, that's my title for your old chapter. What is the new chapter? What do you want? I want to be loving. Great loving. Like genuine. Terrific. And what will your marriage be like? Sweet. You are very sweet. When you're not pissed. <laughs> That's how I got them, you know, by the way. It's also how you'll keep them, by the way. The hardest thing for a narcissist to learn, this took me a long time, do not wait until you're 41 to figure this out, okay? Other people want to be with you when you make them the center of your attention. Mm. The second you invert it and you realize that when you focus on the other people, you become the choir director, you become beloved because everything you're doing is elevating everybody else. Mm. When you walk into a room and you are not the loudest, but you're cheering the loudest for everybody else, you become loved. When you go to a party and all you do is ask people questions about their lives and you don't say a single thing about your own, even though when you leave, you're gonna be like, those motherfuckers didn't ask me anything about me. Five, four, three, two, one. Control, calm, love, and connected. When other people are talking about themselves, they think, oh my gosh, that Jess, she is just the greatest ever because she's interested in me. That is the that's the simple secret to every single human being. Hmm. And when you're a narcissist, you do the exact opposite, which is what makes everybody run from you and makes you just angrier. So it's not going to feel natural. But trust me when I tell you, if you take all those skills that you have around attention and you use it to deliberately cheer for and elevate others, you will be shocked at how quickly your friends grow, your business grows, and your happiness grows. Awesome. It works for everybody and anybody. Even the biggest curmudgeon narcissists on the planet, you pay attention to them, they love you. It'll work and you can do it. So name this next chapter. The new chapter I want to be the sweet, the sweet fairy, the sweet Jesse. I love it. I do see you as a fairy flitting about and spreading magic and joy and elevating other people. So I want you to keep this very simple because the patterns that you're trying to break have been worn in over 30 years, okay? Right. And so that's why I talk about old chapter, new chapter. You're gonna slip up. You're gonna step into the old chapter because you've lived it for 30 years. Right. The second that you realize, oops, I'm being a narcissist again. No problem. Turn the page. We're sweet. We're the fairy. <laughs> we're, we're, we're okay. Apologize. Lift people up. Be connected. Have some humanity for yourself. Okay? Okay. 
Change is simple and it's even faster when you keep the distinction simple. Old chapter, new chapter, whoops, I slipped. Laugh at yourself, clean up the mess, fly away like a fairy. Okay. okay? I feel light. I feel um, grateful, calm. Yeah. I'm excited to call my husband and thank him for not giving up on me and uh, give him some hope <laughs> of what I've learned. And uh, I think there will be provided some relief for him. I'm excited to do that. I'm so excited for Jessie, too. Weren't you so moved by her honesty and her vulnerability? One of the things that I love about Jessie is, boy, she took that tough love coaching to heart, and she is now kicking ass. I've been following her on social media, and I'm so proud to tell you that she's made a 180-degree turn. All she's doing now is cheering for her husband, her friends, her kids, and she's also become super transparent in her business. So let's talk about the big themes from this coaching session and what you can do with it. I know we spoke a lot about narcissism, but you don't have to be a narcissist to apply one of the biggest takeaways from this session. And that's the secret to improving your relationship with anybody. Take the focus off of you and put it on everybody else. How do you do it? Start cheering for people. The second takeaway from this particular coaching session is that if you have a problem that you have been trying to fix forever and you're not making any progress, just like Jessie and her weight loss struggle, maybe you don't have any interest in fixing it at all. You know, I used to do this when I suffered from anxiety. I would use my anxiety as an excuse to not have to do anything that scared me. And I also used it to manipulate my husband. You see, when I was anxious, the attention was on me and he was on eggshells and boy, oh boy, did it work like a charm. So if you're stuck and you can't make headway, just consider maybe it's not a problem. Maybe you're using this as an excuse to not take responsibility. And finally, I think you know by now my commitment is to try to make change simple and fun. And one of the tools that you learned about during the conversation with Jesse is naming the old chapter that you're stuck in versus the new chapter you want to step into. Now, Jesse's old and new chapters are super clear. In the old chapter, she was the narcissist. In the new chapter, she's light as a fairy. Creating these kind of archetypes of old and new, it makes things super black and white. And the more descriptive and fun you make these descriptions, the easier it is to catch yourself when you slip into the old narcissist. And the more fun it becomes to be able to switch into the new you. And that's just going to help you make change simple and fun. If you struggle with procrastination, this coaching session with Evelyn is a must-listen. My name is Evelyn. I'm 27 years old. I came from San Francisco, California. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall and I can't go through it. It's just killing me inside. It's affecting my career choices. It's affecting my education. And I know I could do amazing things, but 
for some reason, I just can't get out and just go and do it. I'm in a big hole right now. That's another reason why I guess I procrastinate because I already have I've made a big hole in myself in within my life that I don't know how to get out of that hole. Like, Evelyn and I have a profound conversation that's going to shatter everything you've ever thought about procrastination. You're about to learn that chronic procrastination has very deep roots, and this session, it may trigger you if you've suffered or witnessed abuse, like Evelyn has. There was this one time we were upstairs in the house, and my dad just body slammed my mom. And my mom did not get up. (laughs) So, never since that moment, everything else just erased, and I just picture that in my mind. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Liz. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck and experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. (sighs) Oh shit. Now I really know what to do and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel, you blew my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. All right, well, hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you, thank you so much. How do you feel? Uh, nervous. nervous. Really? Yes. What's happening in your body right now? Uh, I I can't explain it. I can't, you know, I'm just very nervous. I mean, I'm seeing, you're right in front of me. <laughs> so tell me why you wanted coaching. What are you struggling with? I'm 27 years old and I haven't finished college. I haven't even stepped foot into my career plans and goals. And because I've been procrastinating my whole life, pretty much. I just don't know what it is, why there's something that just does not click. And I guess the thing that sucks is I've tried everything, schedules, to-do lists, reading, writing, journaling, meditation, a gratitude journal, and exercising, and I I just, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) And um, I just hope I could find out why I'm procrastinating. We're going to figure it out today. Oh, yay. I'm 100% confident. You can stop worrying right now because I know we'll figure out the answer. Okay. What did you think your life would look like at the age of 27? I was always this environmental friendly person. So I knew I was going to have toilets that saved water and a shower that saved water, a house, somewhere in the Bay Area with my Toyota Prius and just just like an eco-friendly house and a garden and um, not a family yet, but um, traveling. And then I didn't finish that, dropped out. And then, you know, just been working around. You feel the pressure? Absolutely, yes, I feel the pressure. I'm 27 years old, I don't have a college degree. I'm not, you know, making the income that I want. I am not confident, I have a low self-esteem. You know, I just, I'm 27 years old. I feel like I had enough time to figure it out by now. Do you have a question about whether or not you're going to make it? I want to say no, but the way I'm heading, it's most likely a yes. You know, like in the morning, I tell myself, you know, like I'm going to be successful. I ask God, 
for or the higher power to use me for something use me for something i know i could especially with you know the life that i lived i've seen things i've you know i want to help other people but i don't know i just want to be used for something i i think we all feel this calling mm -hmm. to want to be used for something important and we all feel this tension between where we are and what we hope to be doing and that tension and the space between where you are and that next chapter and that place that you want to get to that can be either a really healthy thing that becomes a path that's lit that calls you forward or that distance can start to feel like a sledgehammer that keeps pounding you in place because the distance feels so big and my concern about where you're at is that because you had a defined vision about where you thought you would be at the age of 27 and you're starting to convince yourself that it may never happen and that we've got to change immediately because it's very hard to build momentum and to rebuild your confidence if you're having to fight the sledgehammer that you're hitting yourself with it makes a lot of sense do you remember one of the first times that you procrastinated Yes, um, I could go back uh, to elementary school. Okay. I remember uh, there was a scholarship, right? I, I used to do a lot of volunteer work since elementary school, high school, etc. Um, and I had the most hours out of all the students in my whole elementary school, the most hours. And there was a scholarship for students who uh, volunteer, right? It was like a $5,000 scholarship. Wow. And um, it was the only person that applied was this other girl who volunteered at the library probably like three hours like not even nowhere near amount of hours i put into how many hours do you think you had done i've done at least 500 500 hours or, or more yes i've done yes a lot of hours <laughs> okay and, so you've got the yes. scholarship no i didn't apply to it and did you want to apply i did i and i knew i i was gonna win but i never submitted it and she won and I knew, like, I knew that I, that was my scholarship, but I didn't do it. I did not submit it. Well, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back. Mm -hmm. You have the application. Yeah. And was there any issue with you being able to fill it out? I think I just got nervous. Was there a part of you, you think, that didn't feel that you deserved it? Or did you not want the attention? I, I definitely do not like attention. What do you mean? I don't want to. I just, you know, kind of like sit in the corner. Like, for example, when um, when I got an internship at NASA, all my friends were super excited, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people. And my friends like, you, you, you're interning at NASA, girl. Like, say it, you know, <laughs> you know, like you're a girl from, you know, you grew up in in North Richmond, where there's not not a lot of people who get that opportunity. And North Richmond is a very bad neighborhood by the way and um not a lot of people have done especially from where i grew up what i've done and you know i mean i just i don't like the attention i don't like t telling people things well i think that it's it's a problem if the fact that you don't like attention means that a you don't celebrate what you do mm -hmm. b you don't talk about what you do yes and c that you don't actually go for opportunities 
where you get celebrated or where you become more visible because of it. So not seeking attention isn't a bad, it's, it's not a bad thing if it's not limiting your life. Okay. The problem is, I think, that your discomfort with having the attention on you is severely limiting your aspirations and your ability to achieve your goals. You know, what it would just happen, you just started, like something went <laughs> off in your head. I just, I, I never thought this, that was ha- me, subconsciously, I never knew that me not wanting the attention affected me. I just, I would have never, I've read, like I said, I've read dozens, a lot of books, and this has never been brought up, I guess. Well, see, I think there's a really interesting <laughs> thing in your story that we're going to explore. So one is that you, you've, you've raised now where you came from, your neighborhood, the stuff that you've achieved versus where you've come from. So that's a huge piece of this. The second thing is that you talked a little bit about how your confidence is is shrinking. Absolutely. And I see you as somebody who is trapped in this cycle of having huge dreams and aspirations and this desire for a super big, fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. And you're like in quicksand. And with every day that passes, you're sinking deeper and deeper into it and getting further and further away from actually achieving what you want. Yes, absolutely. That that sounds exactly how I feel. I um I don't I don't look down at, at no one, but the other day I went to the store and there was this older lady working at, at a, as a as a cash register and she just looked really tired and um, I looked at her and I was like, "If I don't change my life, that could be me in the future." I'm not. I'm not trying to talk bad about her. You know, You're I don't not. want to put her down, but I just got extremely scared and I was like, "I don't want to be a cash register at a store." But the way I'm go- where I'm going, that's where my life looks like it's going to end up. Well, you know, what's interesting is that you're going to make it end up like that. Yeah. And instead of being the one that got out of the neighborhood you're going to prove that nobody does. Exactly. And, and and I always told myself, I never want to be part of statistics. I'd never want to be part of, um, I think I read a while ago, I'm pretty sure CNN, and it said like 70% of the people don't get out of their social, economic... Whatever or, group or class yeah, that you're you in. Exactly. And I was like, I'm not going to be part of that 70%. There's no way. But, you know, I'm the way I'm hitting, the way I'm procrastinating, the way I'm not doing the things that I need to do to get out of the cycle is, is, um, is, I, I don't want to say it. It's hard to say. say it. I, um, I could end up being part of that 70%, you know? And if you are, it's because you actually made yourself. So were you told when you were, when you were growing up, were you told that you were smart all the time? Yes, I was told I was smart all the time. I'm I know just... exactly what happened to you, by the way, now. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> okay. I actually do. We're going to fix this. Okay. So um, I was... so you went to a special school? No, no, no. I went to San... I was in San Francisco, and um, it was completely different. So you grew... did you grow up in like a really rough neighborhood? Uh, no, when I was in San Francisco, well, yeah. I was in Daly City. I went to a good school, and then I moved to Richmond, California. Okay. 
and that's when um, everything changed. How old were you? I was nine. And I remember I was like two or three grades above math, English, and, and all that. And then, so I would have classes with um, the older students. Yeah. What happened to you when you started to see that you were the youngest in the classes and that you weren't getting challenged or pushed the way that you had in the better school? I slowly started just kind of just giving up. Just like, okay, well, this is this is how it is. <laughs> I, uh, I just pretty much, I remember looking to my class. I, I was sitting down, I was looking at my class, and I was like, I could predict everyone's future. Pretty much all the girls were teen moms. Three of the guys went to prison. Two of them are dead, if not more are dead. So... I guess just being around that environment, coming from a great San Francisco, great education, great school, great teachers, loving teachers, supporting teachers too, teachers that don't care and parents that don't care. And um, I guess that that was a shift for me. It was different. I think that you're still there. I'm still there. I do. Okay. I think you never recovered from the feeling of what it's like to have hopes and dreams and people that push you mm-hmm. and to feel your potential getting tapped and to feel yourself growing and to then go into an environment where all of that disappears mm-hmm. and it's up to you to push yourself. Yes. You know, tell me a little bit more about your family. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You got this. Tell me more about your family. So, my mom and my dad, just my whole life, they were cats and dogs, just fighting. I've seen my dad beat up my mom. And I saw an angry woman in my mom because of that my whole life. I... I, I would say I never enjoyed my childhood. I've never been happy. And then in 2008, when the whole economy crashed, my parents split. We lost a house. My dad left my mom. We were pretty much homeless. And if it wasn't for me, like, my mom couldn't use the credit, her credit, because her credit was messed up, but... Everything was on me. I got I got us a renter home with my credit. Um, that's one thing I always always took care of my bills just because I seen my parents live paycheck to paycheck and I never wanted to live that lifestyle. Then I had to go to school. I was still volunteering. I was taking care of my little sisters and I just I guess my I wouldn't really call my mom and my dad a family. Um, don't get me wrong. I, as much damage my dad has caused, I do love my dad, and I and I and I love my mom. If you were telling me what's the happiest moment in your life, I couldn't think much of it. I would say the little. There's very little things that I enjoy about my family, like just my mom. 
you know, she used to save up, I don't know, um, she used to save up, like, all month, and she'll go buy, buy me some tacos and burritos in San Francisco, and then take me to Twin Peak, and look at the view, and we would eat the burritos, and, and look at San Francisco, and I would say those were one of the few, just, few moments that, that I was, that I'm ha- that made me happy. What made you happy about that moment? What was it? Um, just not seeing hate, anger, pain. Mm. Just, just not seeing that. And those, and then there's not a lot of moments like that. So, well, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry that that was your experience. I mean, that fucking sucks. And it's a lot. It's a lot for a kid. It's a lot to watch your dad beat up your mom. That that was, that's, that's... Did it happen all the time? It did. It did. It happened, well, they're very different. My my dad, my, my mom would would say horrible things. Horrible, horrible things. Just horrible things. And my dad would just hit her. Um, I think the way I can't I can't really answer if he did it a lot just because I just I get kind of numb I know there's a lot of times I just numbed it out and I just could replay this one time like I just there's this one time we were upstairs in the house and my dad just body slammed my mom and my mom did not get up (laughs) so never since that moment everything else just erased and I just picture that in my mind do you find yourself kind of going numb a lot as an adult i would yes i would say so i would you know like like i would say when i procrastinated when i procrastinate i go numb Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know there's so much that you're carrying the experience that i have listening to you is first of all, I'm really moved by just how courageous you are and by how successful you are. How old were you? 18? Yeah, I was like, was, yeah, 18. Based on your credit, yeah, you were able to rescue your mom and get her housing? Yeah. I mean, that is unfucking believable <laughs> I was, I mean, uh, it's, I, haven't, I don't really tell people. I mean, there's just, I, I think, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I just. I guess it's just again, survivor. That's this, this idea of <laughs> the discomfort that you feel with being seen, mm-hmm. and so the things that that I think really started to cement this trap that you're in mentally, mm-hmm. and you call it procrastination, and it's very clear that the form of procrastination that you have is one where you know exactly what you need to be doing. You know exactly what your aspirations are, and then you get trapped in your head thinking about what you need to do, and then as the time ticks away, you start to become numb about your ability to get it done. Yes, absolutely. I think there are two massive things that happen to you that have never been properly put in the past or properly explained 
so that you as an adult can understand what you survived as a kid. And the first one is you went from a school in San Francisco where people saw potential in you. Right. And you were motivated and you were inspired and you were the kid that was going to be the first in your family. Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember one time I said I was going to be the first female president. <laughs> Fantastic. Can you run right now? <laughs> we need you. <laughs> yes. um, but I, like you had all of this inside of you and an environment that was really coaching you to grow how you think. And, and then you get to a place in Richmond mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you were in a place where nobody saw you. Was the abuse happening at this point? Definitely when we moved to Richmond, there was, there was a lot of fights. And Did your grades start to drop when you went to Richmond? That's when I noticed that, that everything just you know went down. And did the fighting and all the stuff with your parents ramp up at the same yes, time? Yes, absolutely, yes. Especially, I just remember 08, like, I don't know why, <laughs> but I just remember 08. It's a pretty shitty year for a lot of us. <laughs> yes. And, um... How old were you in 08? 18. Okay. 18. 18. But my birthday's in February, so... So, you're, you were a great student, you end up, you're top of the class, super pumped, going to be the first female president. <laughs> you move to a shitty neighborhood. Your parents' marriage starts to fall apart. Yes. Your dad starts beating up your mom. Yes. You start numbing out. You start withdrawing a little bit from school. And this is the mo this is where you start to become invisible. Yes. That's, that sums up my life. <laughs> and maybe you didn't want attention yeah. because it meant something would happen at home. As your grades slipped, did you get in more trouble at home? See, the thing is, I wouldn't tell my parents. So in addition to <laughs> your grades dropping and your own self-esteem about it dropping, you now have a giant lie going on. Yes, 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 yes. And the abuse yes. and the violence and the financial pressure. Yes. Have you ever stopped to consider how much you've survived? No. No, not at all. I feel like it's just, uh, I kind of see it just, you know, it's just life and I'm surviving. I, but I, the one thing I do hate is because I remember my, I would, I would beg my mom to leave my dad. I would beg her. There was always an excuse. So I try not to say excuses. I know procrastination is an excuse, but I just, I hate saying excuses because I saw where. Well, that would where my mom ended up <laughs> excuses I'm asking you all these questions because I don't think that the core issue is procrastination one of the things about witnessing abuse like that is you went numb mm -hmm. so any moment in your life the way that this can play out is that any moment where you're about to have to do something that's kind of scary where you're going to you know put yourself out there it can trigger these feelings of fear yes and the thing that you have trained yourself to do is to go numb and so i think one of the issues may be that you are in a pattern where you are getting triggered in your life because of stress 
and you go back to responding to it like you did when you were nine years old. You need to go talk to somebody about the fact that you may suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. That witnessing what you witnessed as a kid has given you PTSD. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that feel like it could be true? Does it feel... I kind of... I kind of want to say... I want to say no because I don't want to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I love your honesty. <laughs> but it sounds right. What are the things that you procrastinate about? Always school. Um, just, you know, I wanted to learn how to do calligraphy about a year ago. I said I was. I never, I'm still in letter B. <laughs> <laughs> It's just... At least you did two of them. <laughs> yeah. But everything you, you did just say it's true. So I, just, I think there's some denial, maybe. My business partner and my best friend mm -hmm. had a upbringing where she witnessed and experienced a lot of abuse. Okay. And it wasn't... It was only recently that a very skilled therapist connected the dots and made her realize it's not depression, it's not anxiety, it's not procrastination, it's not bipolar, it's not all this other shit you think it is. You suffer from PTSD. And there are triggers that happen to you in your day-to-day -day life, like the moment you think you're going to get in trouble, the moment somebody's going to call you out, the moment that you're sitting in a class and a teacher's going to call on you and you don't know the answer and oh shit, yeah, that, that triggers something innate in you and you immediately go numb like that's your go-to the thing that we know about procrastination mm -hmm. is that it is not it has nothing to do with school it has nothing to do with calligraphy it has nothing to do with um completing things okay the reason why you procrastinate is because procrastination is a form of relieving stress it is. I definitely, it is. It's just, it is. <laughs> what are all the stresses that you have right now in your life? Just list them. Finance. Okay. Uh, my mom. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. She's a single mom. Uh, my dad. My fa my little family. Me not accomplishing the things I need to, mm -hmm. such as, you know, school. I just, just not graduating from college is always in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. That's always in the back of my mind and not being happy and just having a really low self-esteem like all those things just every day well that's a shitload <laughs> anything else you want to add to the list of stresses <laughs> that you carry around with you i do but i don't i don't want to talk about it keep going <laughs> that one <laughs> um not loving myself What else? <laughs> uh, I feel like I can't love other people how I want to love them. I feel like I'm an angry, bitter person. You? Yes. How <laughs> <And> you are? <laughs> yes. I feel like it. Like I feel like I'm just an, sometimes negative. <coughs> well, I I think you have good reason to be pissed off at your dad. <laughs> And your mom. Yeah, and that's who I take the anger out. 
Um, is there any smidge of this that is motivated by your anger at your parents? I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of watching me succeed. I do want to prove them wrong. Not that they ever was like, no, you can't do it, but I just, I, and, and I don't want to make them proud because I feel like they don't deserve that, but I, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I think that there's a part of oh, this <laughs> that is subconsciously working against you that you're so pissed at your parents and actually completing college would make them proud. I know it's weird. But I do think that that's a small piece of this. If you're worried about finances and your mother and your father and your family and whether or not you're ever going to finish college and your low self-esteem, you got a ton of stress. So you've got your checkboard and if you check off all the easy stuff because you're already holding on to all the hard stuff. And then you're supposed to turn your attention to history. Mm -hmm. And history requires your brain to turn on and focus. And your brain looks at you and says, girl... Do you see all this shit I'm worried about? I don't want to think about history right now. I want to zone out and I want to watch cat videos. I don't want to, like, get on social media. I don't want to read or tech. What? I need a break. I need a break from worrying about mom. I need a break from worrying about dad. I need a break from beating myself up. Can we just zone out on social media? That and sounds, you're like, that sounds what? That sounds exactly how I feel. Like, that sounds, like, that's, that's the lottery right there. <laughs> that is procrastination. It's it's a way to relieve stress. You zone out on social media and you zone out on Facebook and you zone out and watch cat videos and viral videos as a way to A, avoid doing anything that makes your brain work and B, as a way to combat the general stress that you feel. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. It's kind of like getting to the root of it. And when I never saw it, I always saw the stump everything you have just told me i can never i've never dug the roots i've never seen it never felt it i just maybe i tried numbing it but i never felt it or i've only seen the stump right the stump is procrastination and, yes, yes exactly and, you know see here's the thing that i love about you is that you you you're so relatable and it, i mean even though i don't have the exact same story as you i can relate to everything that you're talking about and the fact is we're all working on the stump we're trying to like knock the stump down and the truth is you got to dig out the roots because it's never about procrastination it's about the stress that's causing you to procrastinate it's about the unresolved bullshit from your past that is still with you right now and in order for you to get all those things that you want and there's no doubt in my mind evelyn that you can get everything that you want that you will be a very successful and a very happy woman and you will get all the things that you dream about but you will not be able to do it until you free yourself of all of the burden from your past that you are still carrying forward right now like it, the reason why you can't get your history homework done is because of what you witnessed as a nine-year-old the reason why you cannot complete school is because of the pressure you felt as a high schooler to take care of your mother. The reason why you don't seem to be able to break through this 
habit of procrastinating all the time and this numbness that you feel is because of the fear that you felt in that school and in your household. What do you, as a 27-year-old right now, need to go back and tell the nine-year-old? What did no adult tell you that you wish somebody had? As simple as it sounds, I just want to say, like, I would tell them I'll hug myself and tell myself it's going to be okay. It wasn't okay. <laughs> it wasn't. Did you feel invisible in that school? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, there's something else that, that I think it's really important for you to understand. So there's a professor that uh, teaches at Stanford. Her name is Carol Dweck. Okay. And she's written this incredible book called Mindset. And she is the badass PhD that about 20 years ago discovered that there are two kinds of mindsets that people have. So there's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And one of the things that I want you to understand is that when you have a growth mindset, what a growth mindset means is that there's really no limit to what you can learn. There's no limit to your potential, that you're the kind of person that knows deep in your bones that if you try, if you work a little bit harder, if you keep at it, that you will succeed, that you will get the hang of it, that you will learn, that history will get easier, you know, that it'll all work out. That's a growth mindset, okay? Through hard work, you can achieve what you want. A fixed mindset is when you think that your potential has a limit. One of the reasons why I asked you if you were constantly told that you're smart is because if you're told that you're smart early on and you are praised when you get good grades, what can happen is you can develop a fixed mindset. And what that means is through no fault of anybody, you're told that you're smart through first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth grade and then suddenly you move and suddenly things get hard and suddenly your grades start to plummet and suddenly you now don't think you're smart enough to succeed. That's exactly how I feel. I, I, I tell myself that secretly. Do not do that anymore. You're no longer allowed to do that. There's a number of things going on that we're breaking apart because I want you to understand that there's some simple things and there's some deeper things that require you to talk to somebody professionally. The simple things is fixed versus growth. So you have been suffering from having a fixed mindset. This is a very simple thing to change, by the way. A fixed mindset means you're stupid or you're smart. And if you get a bad grade, it means that you're not smart enough, right? If you get a good grade, it means, well, I'm smart enough for that. It'll be life-changing for you if you get away from saying you're smart or you're dumb or you're stupid or you're not good enough and you switch into having the kind of mindset where you say to yourself, well, if, if I didn't succeed, it's because I didn't work hard enough. Right. And when you do well, when you do well, this is really important, whether you do something great by your mom or you do something good at work or you do something good in a class that you say to yourself, I worked so hard. I deserved that. I've always wanted to say that. I want to say that. Like, I've played it in my mind, my vision. So that's one thing that I want you to walk out of this with, 
Okay. When you tell a kid that they're smart and then suddenly they start to fail, they think that they're not smart enough. And then it becomes stressful to be in academics because you think that you're going to be found out and you think that you're not smart enough. And nope, it's really, it's a very simple fix. We just have to teach you to realize it's all about how much work you put in. Yeah. That's it. That's, it's exactly how I feel. I, I mean, I understand there's bigger problems, but you, this right here is the stump. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the reasons why you don't go back to school is because you don't think that you're going to succeed. Yes. And that, and I just feel like just dug myself in a big hole that how am I going to get myself out? Mm -hmm. And the thing I want you to know is while you've done it for 27 years, you don't have to do it a day longer. You can be happy. You can finish college. You can have a toilet that's eco-friendly. I <laughs> <laughs> just made my day. What are you present to right now? I just... Uh, everything. I, 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 I'm trying to just soak it in. I'm enjoying it. And it feels like, hey, Evelyn, you're not stupid. You're not... You know, like, I can't explain it. <laughs> it's just, it's, it, it does feel like, feels a little free. So a lot of what the show is about is helping people figure out the next chapter. Mm -hmm. And in order to start the next chapter, you have to complete the chapter you're in. And until you get the lessons from the chapter that you're in, you ain't going forward. The interesting thing about you is that if we can get you to start to describe who was Evelyn at the age of seven and eight before you moved, those are the characteristics that will define the next chapter. Okay. And then all the work that you really need to do with a professional because you are a victim of abuse. You witnessed abuse. You moved to a very toxic environment. You became the adult in your family. You are a survivor and you need to process this stuff with somebody, okay? So that you can really own it and be proud of what you've survived. But what I want you to talk about right now is describe Evelyn at the age of five, six, seven, the kid that was in that school, what were you like? Um, I, so I, I would say, I remember I just loved singing, dancing, enjoyed going to school. Um, my, my mom couldn't afford a car, so she would walk me to school, but I loved it. I loved every step of the way. Um, you know, just being in a safe environment. I didn't feel like there was going to be a drive-by. Believe it or not, there was drive-by in my elementary school in Richmond. I mean, I didn't know what drugs what. I didn't, I didn't know what, at that, I, I knew, when I moved to Richmond, I knew what drug, what drugs look like. I knew what a dead body looked like. I, I knew what a gun looked like. And I never, before, I was safe. I was safe and... And going from a safe environment to a scary environment. Mm -hmm. 
I guess, I guess I, I could say that I was happy when I was younger. <laughs> so Richmond Evelyn versus Daily Evelyn. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay, so Richmond Evelyn, very angry, and doesn't love herself. Now, Daily. Daily City. I just remember spending hours and hours in that park. I called it my park. <laughs> uh, um, just remember, just I was very independent. That was a light. Wow. Making me get <laughs> Yeah. It's hard when you're a light when somebody or something dims yeah. that light. You're really hard on yourself. Yes. And so anytime you catch yourself procrastinating, I want you to, number one, for stop and forgive yourself for a minute. Okay. So if you're being light and if you're being curious and if you're being, you know, happy mm-hmm. and if you're willing to try anything, what are the things that you're going to do when you get back home? I do know exactly where I need to start. Where's that? Um, the roots. Yeah. I didn't realize how much damage that caused. And I I feel like that's that's the first thing I need to focus on. So are you gonna get a therapist? You need you need to go talk to somebody professionally about this. This is bigger than trying to sort it out yourself. Okay. I can't diagnose you. Truly, I mean, you are a survivor of abuse, and you have never actually properly addressed it. A year from now, you've gone to see somebody and you've really dug at these roots. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what are you doing? What's uh, your life look like one year from now? Yes, um, I love I love myself and everyone around me and I'm happy because I'm getting closer to finishing my bachelor's at UC Berkeley <laughs> UC Berkeley holy <laughs> shit girl you must work hard yeah. Woo! <laughs> I've been using Richmond daily but I want you to put a label on the, ne- the next chapter I'm gonna call it my glow up that's fucking hot <laughs> my glow up Let's say that you catch yourself procrastinating. What do you do if you're in your glow-up chapter? Ooh. Five, four, three, two, one. A blast off is party time. There's no time to procrastinate. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes. And what else have, has changed about your life in the glow-up? I've accepted my past. I forgave myself to know that it was not okay. yeah how do you feel i can't even explain how i feel i feel i feel bad for beating myself up i feel amazing that i know why i procrastinated when when this whole time i thought i was just a loser (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh And I'm just excited. I am really excited. 
I'm so excited for her, too. And you know what? Evelyn is on fire. She wrote to us the very next day. She's already signed up for sliding scale therapy and registered for an information session about returning to Berkeley. The key takeaway I want you to understand and embrace is that procrastination has nothing to do with your ability to get things done. It's just a form of stress relief. And if you suffer from procrastination too, you got to understand that stress is the problem and you've got to go to the root. And the second takeaway reinforces something we talked about in the first coaching session with Kim, and that is the power of focusing on what happened rather than on what's wrong with you. What's wrong with you is the stump. You got to go to the root and that's what happened. And when you go on this kind of deep inquiry, it might be dark, it might be painful, and it's really important to do it with a professional. The final thing I want to say is, you know, when you hear the word PTSD, it's easy to think that PTSD is limited to people who have experienced trauma during war. But what we're discovering is that childhood trauma creates PTSD too. And you know who can do a much better job summarizing all of this up for you than me? Evelyn. Guys, <laughs> try to find the deep problem, the root, whatever that is. Go back, you know, as a young age or whatever the problem is and figure that out first. Because I feel once Mel talked to me about like my family, Richmond, Daily City, it just all clicked. It just all clicked. Like, it's, it's like, okay, that's the problem. Not my procrastination. And just know that you're not a procrastinator. There's something else out there. If I could get through this, because I honestly felt like I could never get through this, that they could also get through this. In this coaching session, you're going to meet Steven. Now, this guy is literally paralyzed by the fear of what other people are thinking. My name is Stephen Hill. I am 25 years old. I am from North Carolina. The last two years of my life has been, it's been torture. You know, um, it's been a very long two years. It's been like a, my own personal hell. Locked in my mom's house at 25 years old, laying on her couch for two years. I'm here to meet with Mel Robbins because I feel like meeting her and her helping me pers with personal issues would just help push me into becoming the person that I want to be. Well, I'm going to give Stephen a push, all right. We don't call this show kick-ass for nothing. But before anyone can become the person they want to be, you got to first accept responsibility for your role in keeping you stuck where you are. And Steven's about to discover that ain't easy. What's happening? Why are you getting upset? <sighs> Not upset at you, just... <laughs> I don't give a shit if you are. <sighs> You're revealing things to me that I need to hear. Like me being manipulative, 
you know, I thought others were manipulative. I thought they were the bad guy. Like, they were the bad guy, but I'm manipulative. I never thought of it like that. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Lisa. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh, shit. Now I really know what to do, and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Hey! <laughs> oh, my God. This is crazy. I'm actually meeting Mel Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to cry. Oh, my God. Look at you. You look like really. It's you. It's me. See, oh I'm, I'm real. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's yeah. like looking at an angel. I'm so excited to oh see you. My oh, my God. God. Tell me, why are you here? What are you struggling with? I am struggling with living my to my fullest potential. Okay. Um, I, I sit around and I wonder, are people judging me? Are people looking at me like, look at him, look how much weight he's gained. You know, whenever I'm back home and I go out in public, which is very rare, very rare. Like describe very rare. <sighs> Maybe once a week. I mean, once every two weeks. Wait, wait, hold Sometimes on. Sometimes once a month. You don't leave your house more yes, than once yes, every two weeks? Yeah, I'm at home the whole time in my mom's house. And you don't like leave? A, yeah. Yeah, I might go because out. Because you're afraid people are going to yes, judge you? Yes, yes, Whenever I go out in public and someone sees me, they're like, look how much weight you've gained. Or someone said, hey, fatty, one time. I are just, they right? I feel like they are. I feel like they are. I feel like, you know, I used to be, I used to be in, I used to be in shape. I used to be this person that was really involved with the church. I was the preacher boy. I was the perfect person to everybody. Even whenever I was the perfect person, I was worried at that time people were judging me. So I've got to live the way they want me to live. Go to church every Sunday. Go to church every Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday, whenever it was. So what happened? Well, um, got involved speaking at church. What happened? <laughs> yeah, what happened was, is I realized eventually down the road that I'm gay. Okay. When did you know that you were gay? When I was a little boy. So tell me the moment. <laughs> when I I was very young. Okay. And I like I just realized I like boys. Okay. I didn't like sports. I didn't like, you know, rough housing. It's very sensitive kid. And um I, I believe it was under five years old when I realized, you know, I'm different. You know, than the other guys in school didn't have guy friends. I mostly hung out with the girls, mm -hmm. and uh, it was it was really young when I realized that. But in my mind, I was like, "This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong." And I suppressed it for years and years. Suppressed it or hid it. So suppressed it, it kind of means hit like it. you forgot about it. Or it. I'm not trying to be academic, no, 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 but no, no, I want to make good. sure I understand no, what you good. actually did. So you hid it. 
So when you would go to the Baptist church and you would be sitting in church and and I'm assuming you went to a Baptist church that was not in the front of the line leading the marriage equality marches and they would be talking about homosexuality or about marriage equality and uh, what would they be saying? They would say it was a sin. You okay. go to hell for it. And what would you think? I I thought to myself then what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to do if I'm, you know, to myself, I would think that if I'm, if I'm gay, I guess I'm going to hell as a little boy. I thought that Yeah. for years, I thought I was going to hell, especially if I acted on it. So you know? did you think, did you buy into the lie that being gay is a choice? Yes. So you bought into the bullshit and the lies that people peddle about that. I felt judged. I felt like I wasn't normal. I felt like an outcast. And I felt like if I acted like myself, then they would say, oh, he's gay. He's gay. He's definitely gay. I mean, and most guys, other guys could tell I was gay by the way I acted. You know, I'm a very feminine guy. And uh, it was it was a lot of... Um, very, very fearful to be seen as gay because I felt like this is the worst thing in the world. This is, you know, this is, this is just as bad as murder. How did it impact your personal relationship with God? I personally, as a kid, thought God loves every single part of me. If God loves every single part of me, then why not this part? What is, what is, what, you know, what's so bad about, what's bad about this? I'm not out hurting people. I'm not out causing pain. It's just a part of who I am. And they, they get in the the pulpits and churches and they preach. God loves you regardless of, of your sin, but not this one thing. This is the worst thing. That's the way it felt. What's interesting is that it's pretty clear that even at a young age, because you were able to question and say, well, that makes no freaking sense. If he loves everything about me, then why this one thing? Like you, I think, intrinsically know that he loves everything about you, right? Right. This is a really important distinction for you because you seem and you are extraordinarily caught up and consumed by what other people think. And it's not surprising because you grew up in a church environment where you hid. Right. And you hid in order to not be judged and you hid in order to protect yourself. I never thought of it like that. And dating girls. <laughs> oh, how'd that go? <laughs> Not good at all. <laughs> at all. It didn't. Because uh-huh. I thought if I have a girlfriend or if I get married, oh, he's not gay. You know, he's straight. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. there was never, there would never be that question. Yeah. Took a lot of lying. I'm a really good liar too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> It takes one to know one. <laughs> right, right. You saw right through me, didn't you, Mel? Uh, yeah, you know, I 
I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes no, and to that, think about what it would be like to sit in a church several times a week and be told that I can't be who I am and to then suppress my very being out of shame and fear and to go into hiding. Eventually at that church, um, the leaders of the church mm -hmm. had, had found out that I was. What age were you when this happened? I want to say... 18, 19. And uh, when they found out, it was like the world ended in my world. What happened? Um, they had found out that someone and not someone else and I were together. So there were lots of gay people hiding in this church. <laughs> if you only knew. Um, and uh, this, the word got out about us. And all of a sudden... It was it was like my world crashed. What happened? The leaders of the church, the pastor and his wife, were both like not happy with me that this happened. And you know what really got to me was the time when um, the pastor's wife had had looked at me and said, "You need to get this under control because some parents are not even going to want you to be around their kids." What? I'm that bad of a person that I can't even be around to hang out with kids. Like your the parents are going to judge me like whether or not I'm good enough to say, Hey, to your kids. I was a Sunday school teacher at one point and they took that away from me. I was no longer a Sunday school teacher. That was uh, not a fun thing to hear. Honestly, it's just a sign of somebody being completely ignorant and stupid and prejudiced. It's ugliness is what it is. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. They didn't kick you out of the church, though? No, the, 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 the pastor did look at me one time. He said, do you want to leave this church? And you stuck around after they did this to you? I didn't know who I was outside of that. Like, I didn't... I didn't think I could survive in the world outside of going to church. I thought if I leave church, you know, God's going to strike me dead. I, I had that thought in my mind that if I leave this church, I'm going to get in a car accident or, you know, something, some horrible thing is going to happen to me. It's going to be because God was not happy with me. You know, have, has it ever occurred to you that God is waiting for you to find yourself and be brave enough to do what you need to do. It's a good way to look at it. I thought he I thought, you know, God does want me to live my live live as who I am. Why wouldn't he? Because that would be lying. Of and course. God doesn't like liars. <laughs> well, right? I know you tell me. That's your relationship I mean, with God, I mean, not mine. I mean, that's how I would see it. I mean, I think God wants us to live who we are. Well, what do you want? I want to be Stephen Hill. And what does that mean? To unapologetically, in every way, in every sense, love myself. That when you look at me, okay. When 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 if you want to judge me and say you're you're not you're not uh, following God or the religious version of God. You're going to hell. Okay. 
Look how much weight you've gained. Why okay? do you care so much? I, have, I guess it's just... I want to be accepted by others. Well, I think it's probably the, the, the result of for years sitting and hiding. Hiding, 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 hiding. Shame, 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 shame. That's what was getting preached to you. And so you did exactly what you were told to do. You were a great choir boy and, you know, whatever, assistant preacher, whatever the heck your church calls them. You did a good job. You hid just like you were told to hide. You felt the shame just like you were told to shame. You branded yourself a sinner just like they told you to do. Yeah. That's right. And the problem is that for a long time, it was the church and probably your parents and maybe some friends that were doing it to you. And now that nobody else is doing it to you, you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. Laying on the laying on the couch or sitting on the couch or, you know, just in the house. Nobody's telling me these things. Like You are. Yeah, exactly. It's me. It's me. It's nobody else. It's somebody taught you to think this way. And you can you can break the pattern. You can break the habit of thinking this way. You can become a totally different person that accepts himself. And the thing you have to understand and frankly get pissed off about is that you sat in a church for that many years that pretended to be a place that was about love and actually did tremendous damage to you. Right. So after the uh, pastor and the pastor's wife shamed outed you, and then shamed you, and then stripped you of the privilege of being a Sunday school teacher. What happened next? For a while, I just kept going. Then fast forward a little bit, and an opportunity came up for me to go to a church in Atlanta. And okay. I was there for a few months. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like to be in Atlanta? It a place was, that's a little bit more diverse. Yes, a absolutely. A place that's a little bit more liberal. I went to... Uh, I went to my first gay club, gay bar, mm -hmm. and I loved it. <laughs> to I be, bet you did. <laughs> you know, here I am. I've never been to anything like that. Um, and I loved it. Every minute of it. Eventually, I, ha I had moved back to North Carolina. Why did you have to move back? Um, well, again, with the church thing. Here I am, you know, starting to accept myself. And I think the pastor was starting to pick up on it. And uh, just, what did he say to you? He told me he actually told me this. This guy told me that I needed to change the way I sound. <laughs> so instead of, you know, talking like this, like my regular voice, he told me that I need to make my voice like really deep to make me sound like a man. And did uh, he ever ask you if you were gay? Yeah. And what did you say? I said, I said, um, that I, I that I did feel that way, and what did he say? And he told me that I needed to, um, not act on it. To resist my son. Resist, resist. Did you ever go to the uh, illegal therapy that they do? No. Good. All right. So, um, I kind of have the timeline as it relates to the church. Now let's talk about life at home. 
So you figure out really, really young that you like boys. You're very aware that you're gay. So your mom, did she have any idea that you were gay? I mean, she must have known. I remember her telling me, uh, if, if you ever are gay, I will accept you. You know, I remember her saying that to me when I was a little kid. So how and when did you finally tell her? I posted it on Facebook in 2015 that I was gay. So your mother found out that you were gay by your Facebook post? Yes. That is a really mean thing to do to your mother. Well, I felt like if I would have told her in person, it was just going to, you know, it was just going to be one big argument. I understand. But I want you as a man to understand how manipulative that is. Yeah. The thing you're not going to like about yourself is how manipulative you are. And it comes from a place, just like my lying came from a place of self-protection. But when you can start to own what a manipulative son of a gun you are, then you will have the power to change. But right now, you're in the zone of what happened to you and what got done to you. And that victim feel to all this is what's keeping you stuck. And here's the irony, dude. (laughs) You're actually manipulative. (laughs) I never thought of it like that. You are, aren't you? I think I think I I think I could see that. <laughs> of course you can. I, Do you know how much you love sleeping on the couch and using this pity party for a reason to not get your shit together? It's a form of manipulation. What's happening? Why why are you getting upset? <laughs> Not upset at you, just... <laughs> I don't give a shit if you are. <sighs> You're revealing things to me that I need to hear. Yeah. Why is this sting? Why does this make you upset? <sighs> like me being manipulative? Yes, you <laughs> You know, I thought others were manipulative. I thought they were the bad guy. Like, they were the bad guy. But I'm manipulative. Of course you are. You lie to people's faces. (laughs) You tell people exactly what they want to hear so you can stay in their stupid church. You're not honest about the people that you love. You know, you're acting like a victim to make it easy for your mother. You're manipulating the hell out of this situation. (sighs) Do you see that? Yeah. So let's talk about, let's name some of the ways that you manipulate people. Let's have some fun. Okay. Tell me some of the things you do to manipulate people. Oh, okay. Um, Let's have a confession. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, goodness. Um, The way I manipulate people. Um, I guess one way is, is when my mom says, you're being lazy. Yeah. And I give the excuse of, 
I'm depressed. Oh, yeah. High five right there. There's some manipulation. Okay, what else? I have anxiety. Oh, yes. That's a big one. Manipulate. I care too much about what people think. Oh, yes. Manipulate. Manipulate. Look at the things I've been through in life. You know, just all these these excuses. Uh Uh-huh. And she's like, okay. It works, doesn't it? Yeah. You're a genius. And whenever it's time to go out in public and they want me to go out with them, I'm like, I care too much about what people think. Excuse. Manipulation. Ooh, yeah, manipulate. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Well, it takes a liar to see a liar. And it takes a master manipulator to recognize another one. And the best excuse to hide underneath is the victimhood thing. And look, you've been through a lot. And the stuff that you have been put through and the shame that you felt, it's not okay. But there came a moment in time where you were old enough to know better. And there came a moment in time, and you probably might even remember it, where you thought, this is, this is the moment for me to just say, yes, I am gay and to leave the church and to be brave. And instead... You chose to manipulate the situation and hide. Like I get a five to a 16, 17 year old sitting in a church pew hiding because you're living at home and you're a child. Right. And you're not living in Massachusetts in a Unitarian church. You're in the deep South in a very conservative church. And so you got a lot of evidence by a lot of adults telling you a lot of stuff that isn't true about what it means to be a gay, you know, girl or boy. And so I understand hiding in that environment. But there was a moment where you knew it was time. And that's when you flipped from victim into master manipulator. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Do you remember when it was? Posting on Facebook? Maybe. I don't know. I think it might have been when you lied to somebody in one of the churches. Mm. That when they kicked you, when they stripped you of your Sunday school position. Preaching position. All of it. Yeah. And you stayed. Yeah. Like instead of saying, screw all of you, I'm going to go down down the street to the Unitarian church where God loves everybody and they fly a rainbow flag i'll see you assholes you know later instead of living in the truth you were like okay i'll just lie to everybody i get it's all logical it's all understandable which is why i can call you a manipulator because what i want to do in this conversation is i want to give you back power I want you to understand you're not the victim of all this shit anymore. And in fact, maybe the last seven or eight years, you are 100% responsible for all of this. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Every lie, you own it. Every avoidance, you own it. Every excuse, you own it. The anxiety came from the lying, by the way. When do you first remember feeling like an anxiety or a panic attack or something? Uh, whenever, oh goodness, the first time I think 
was whenever I had went back to church. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I had went back to church and uh You're walking in. Yeah. They're going to find me out. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. Don't tell them my secret. Yeah. I'm going to go in here and manipulate these people, yeah. but I'm going to have a panic attack the entire time. Yeah. Looking around, worried. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and now that you're not walking into a church and you don't have that to hide, you've basically created the exact same situation in your life everywhere. It's like this just keeps manifesting itself uh -huh. in my life. It's a pattern. It's uh -huh. like... That's yeah, all it is. It's, it's a pattern. Well, you've just gotten to be very good at complaining and about manipulating. You've basically locked yourself into a fortress, and it's everybody else's fault. And you did this to me. So I'm pinning it on others when actually I should be looking yes. at myself. The gig is up. It's like somebody cheating once and not fixing their ways. And now cheating becomes a way of life lying and manipulating has become a way of life see i want you to get out of the habit of saying you have anxiety and saying you have depression i want you to start looking at all the ways that you're really lying to yourself you may be afraid to go in public but that doesn't mean you can't you may be afraid to get a job but that doesn't mean you can't you may be afraid to start to take your health seriously. See, I don't even think you're that lazy. I think as long as you're overweight, people feel sorry for you. So it's like a protection. Or an excuse. An excuse. Do you want people to feel sorry for no. you? No. I was sitting on the plane and, and I said and I actually said I might have to get off. Why? Because I thought the seatbelt wasn't going to fit. Uh -huh. and the ladies beside me said, it's okay. They'll bring you a seatbelt extender. And, you know, I kept saying, you know, you know, I just I'm too big for this seat. I wanted them to comfort me, yes. to calm me down. Everything's all right, honey. And it worked, didn't it? Yeah, it worked. Well, see, that's why I would have panic attacks, too. Because if I had a panic attack, they were very manipulative. Not in the beginning, like they kind of came because of some unresolved stuff, just like we're talking about with you. But when I have a panic attack, it is a foolproof method to make everybody else rescue me from whatever I'm dealing with. Does that feel right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. What are you thinking right now? Like I can see the wheels spinning upstairs. That I'm not actually a victim. And that this is just... <laughs> It's all excuses. It's it's all excuses. Everything. Laying on the couch all day. It's an excuse. Mm -hmm. Being overweight is an excuse for me. Mm -hmm. Not going out and going on dates is an excuse. I've been lying to myself and manipulating others. Mm -hmm. That's why sometimes I'll... <laughs> I'll get on social media and I'll post a, a really sad post or something. I'm looking for comfort in other people. Mm -hmm. And this right here, the, the, my weight mm -hmm. is looking for comfort. Mm -hmm. My mindset, my words, the way I act, not wanting, it's, it, not wanting to go out in public. It's manipulating people. <laughs> Isn't it kind of funny? It, it's it's like, whoa, the table has definitely been turned. Well, look, me feeling sorry for you 
it's actually not going to help you change. No, absolutely not. I also want to make sure you understand something. Okay. The fact that you're a manipulator, it's a really good thing. I know it sounds like a bad word, but you developed that as a strategy to survive. You got two choices when you're about to be found out, right? One is fold, admit, have the courage, go out into the open, live your truth, all that stuff. Very difficult for a lot of us to do. The other thing, if you're going to continue on with the charade, is you start to manipulate the entire situation. To me, that pattern is something powerful because you made a choice and because you are in control of the things that you're doing. What's good about that is that that pattern becomes a habit where you're in control of it, of your excuses. You're in control of being lazy. You're in control of hiding. You're in control of manipulating everybody. And that means that we can actually teach you how to do the opposite so that the habit becomes not hiding and not manipulating and not, you know, listening to excuses, but it actually becomes becoming the Stephen that takes action, the Stephen that doesn't have excuses, the Stephen that is off the couch. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, I'd rather have you be a manipulator than a victim yeah. in this situation. Because when you're a victim, it feels like the weight of the world is on you. And it feels so overwhelming to overcome it. When you can fully embrace, holy shit, like I'm like actually a little bit of a liar. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Oopsie. I'm pretty good at this. I can hide in the most conservative churches in the world. That could be used as like a, a superpower, couldn't it? Like, Of course, if you use it for good. For good, yeah. Well, and you used it for good. You were hiding from judgment. Do you understand me? Yeah. I mean, I'm walking a fine line here because obviously manipulating is not a good thing to do to people. But you did it to yourself and you did it because you were afraid and you did it because you didn't want to be judged. And that means that if you got this superpower where you can navigate things and where you can make yourself do things that you don't feel like doing, and maybe it's hiding, then you also have the superpower to be able to manipulate your excuses and manipulate your laziness and manipulate your anxiety. I think that's genius. Why? Because if you can be lazy, manipulate yourself to be lazy, then you have the power to manipulate yourself to get your life together. Stop being lazy. Yeah. Wow. Like, (laughs) that's awesome. Well, it's just this idea that you're in control. When you decide that you're a victim, which you have for years, you basically are convincing yourself over and over and over again that you have no control. When you can start to own your own part in it, then you have the control to change it. See, the cool thing is that that when you're open about who you are and what you're thinking about and what you're doing and just you're, you have this level of, of badass honesty, if people react negatively, it's their issue. Right. The hardest piece about being a manipulator 
is that when the pastor and the pastor's wife find out, and when the minister up in Atlanta finds out, and when people that you've been manipulating find out that you're actually a liar, their upset is on you because you weren't upfront about who you are. And this is a critical distinction for you to understand because those of us that lie and manipulate, we think we're doing it for other people. We think we're doing it to make it better for our moms or for our dads or for the friends around us so we don't tell the truth. And when you make a decision that you're going to manipulate who you are because you think it'll make everybody else comfortable and you think it'll save your ass, if people react negatively when they find out, you're 100% responsible for that breakdown. But when you live fully open in your truth, Stephen, as a gay man, if people react negatively, it's their bullshit. Do you understand? And that will be one of the most liberating things that you will discover. I would be willing to guess that a lot of your anxiety comes from constantly being in a situation where you're worried about being found out, where you're worried that you're going to find that people are going to react negatively because for so long you lied. That's the source of the anxiety. And the second that you own that you lie, that you manipulate, and that means that you also have the power to manipulate your excuses and manipulate your laziness and manipulate your anxiety and say, yep, I feel lazy, but I'm going to the gym anyway. Yep, I feel nervous I'm going to bump into somebody, but I'm running to the grocery store because my mom needs my help. Yep, I feel anxious about getting a job, but I'm going to manipulate my way right through that anxiety and I'm going to go apply anyway. When you start living like that, the anxiety will disappear. And you'll start to care less and less and less about what other people are thinking because you're actually doing things that you want to do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems like the freedom that I would feel just, I would feel amazing. I thought growing up life would be so different. What'd you think it'd be like? I thought I was going to be this amazing, bright, living my dreams, traveling the world, you know, meeting these amazing people, doing huge things. And here I am living on my mother's couch. Mm-hmm. And it and it makes me feel like sick of myself. Okay. Because it's like everything I go after, I end up failing at. Is that true? Or at some point you get scared and you start to hide? Because it's an old pattern. That right there. Scared and I hide. Let's think about a really irritating, annoying blabbermouth. Use uh, one of the judgy preachers first. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. The wife. Are you sure? Yes. Why, you still go to that stupid church? Well, I just... <laughs> They might watch this. I, I don't give a shit. Her Maybe name. they'll learn something about how you should treat people and what it actually means to be gay and how to talk to somebody when they come out of the, the closet and have the courage. Her name is Sharon. Sharon. Great. So whenever you have your thoughts drift, okay, to some bold cocky, I want you to picture Sharon. Okay. Is that a good name? 
Yeah. So is it annoying when Sharon talks and 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 gripes and like tells you to worry about all this stuff? Mm-hmm. So when you start the pattern of thinking stuff that doesn't serve you, I'm fat, I'm lazy, no one's going to hire me, I'm going to get a speeding ticket, uh, I'm going to be sweating, you're going to be like, go away, Sharon. Yeah, yeah. Can you own this? Yes, yes. So when the when the when the nagging thoughts come, uh huh, shut you're up, gonna... Sharon. Yes. <laughs> and then just go back to that feeling of I'm a great person. Yes. You've got to start to see that the old chapter is about hiding. Hiding who you are, hiding from the things that scare you, hiding, hiding, hiding. And that as we turn the page and we look at this new chapter, you talked about feeling awesome. You talked about feeling powerful. And you also have got to be seen. And that means leaving the house every day. Where's the place that you're the most worried to go? Grocery stores. Grocery stores? Because everybody, you know, every time I go to a grocery store, I always see somebody that I know. Okay. Or who knows me. Okay. So let's let's role play a little bit. Okay. You walk into the grocery store. Who's somebody you're scared to see? Someone from church or from high school. Okay. So Sharon is in the aisles. She's pulling some cereal down. Mm-hmm. You walk in, you see her. What are you afraid she's going to say? Why aren't you going to church anymore? Or maybe look me up and down. You know, you can, yeah. you can see uh-huh. when somebody's observing you. Yeah. You know. So what do you do if somebody's observing you and then they say nothing? I try to hide. Okay, good. That's the old chapter. The new chapter is about being seen. It's about power. It's about awesomeness. So what do you do if you see Sharon and she looks you up and down? What do you do? Just keep, you know, hey, Sharon, how you doing, girl? Perfect. You know, make her uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. How you doing, girl? You yeah. know, so <laughs> 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 you doing good, girl? How you doing? What you doing? You know. And then if she says, why haven't you been coming to church? What would you say? I've been living my best life. Perfect. Or, you know, I don't feel comfortable coming to church. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I've embraced myself, just loving myself. Yes. This is who I am. Yes. And it, you even got like the head cock going when you do this. <laughs> How you if doing? she says, boy, you've gotten heavy, what do you say? Girl, yes, I have. Yeah. Now, there's one other thing. Your mom. Yeah. I want you to talk to her. And not through Facebook. <laughs> In person. <laughs> well, you live with her. You're chewing on your lip. Why? That conversation in my head can go one or two ways. It can go really good, or I don't want to hear that. That's not true. You're not gay. So I'm. it's like there's some angst about having that conversation. I know. That angst is normal. Remember, what's the rule about telling people the truth and being exactly who you are? What ha- who's, whose problem is it if your mom has a negative reaction? That's hers. Why? She's in charge of how she responds. Correct. And who's responsible right now as you're manipulating the situation by not talking about it? Me. Correct. I... 
don't know if it'll be an easy conversation. I don't know what she's going to do. I suspect that since you've been out now for almost three years and you're sleeping on her couch, that she has made some level of peace with it. But I don't know. What are you afraid of? sorry will she still love me (laughs) will she still accept me will she kick me out (laughs) sometimes sometimes I still feel like that little boy who just wants his mama's love. I'm sorry. You don't need to apologize. You're being honest. You're being honest. Uh, it's, it's when you were sitting there. I'm sorry. Go don't ahead. apologize. <laughs> this is how you feel, Stephen. As you were explaining how scared you are, I was envisioning a seven-year-old boy sitting in church being afraid about whether or not God still loves him. I don't want to be that little seven-year-old boy anymore. Every day that you don't have the conversation with your mom, you're that seven-year-old sitting in a church pew manipulating the situation out of fear. It's totally understandable. I, that that fear is real, real. But it's a choice to live there. Right. She knows you're coming to Boston. She knows you're probably going to come back and want to talk about this. Or does she not know you're here? She knows I'm here. She's very excited. She's very excited for me to come. Why? Um... She thought this would help me get unstuck. This would be that push. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if she knew that you and I were going to be talking about this. How could she not know? <sighs> Maybe she doesn't know how to bring it up either. She's already accepted you. You live with her. She's already told you that she loves you no matter what. This is about you making it right. And then you're going to start doing that in every area. You're going to make it right with your body. You're going to make it right by getting a job. You're going to make it right by getting your ass out of that house every single day. When you get home, I want you to go to the grocery store every single day. It's going to be busy. You're going to be bumping into all kinds of crazy people. Thanks, Mel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. And most importantly, we got to get crystal clear about what the old chapter was. The old chapter in description is a person who manipulated others so that he could be lazy. So that he could have the excuse of anxiety, uh-huh. have the excuse of 
not wanting to live to his fullest potential. Mm-hmm. That's a very sad chapter. Yes. Can you now do that chapter in your grocery store voice? Girl, that person was so lazy. He was nothing. He was always whining, always complaining, never wanting to do what he needed to do, just sitting around all the time. And it was all excuses. Every time somebody would tell him something that he didn't want to hear, he'd get mad and go go cry somewhere. Girl, (laughs) it was too much. I'm done with it. Now moving into a more serious voice. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 just loving himself. Awesome. He's not hiding. I always saw everyone else as like the bad guy when it was just my decisions. It was my choices. It was up to me. It was no one ever had any power over me to make what was in my mind to make me believe anything. It was just me. There is a light in you. You're the one that turned it off. And in this next chapter, you get to turn that light back on. That is power. That is awesomeness. And that is what it means to be seen. Everyone deserves to be fabulous. Everyone. You're, you don't des- you, you're not supposed to be pathetic. It's not who you're supposed to be. You deserve to be the light that you were born to be. Turn the light on. Oh, turn the light on. Isn't that beautiful? I get chills thinking about the possibility that's now in front of Stephen. The thing that he said that I love the most is this. No one ever had the power over me to make what was in my mind, to make me believe anything. It was just me. And that brings us to takeaway number one from this episode. Stephen was manipulated by other people as a child, and he was victimized by it. So it's natural that he would start repeating the pattern of victimizing himself as an adult. But now that he sees that he's repeating these patterns, he has the power to change it. So ask yourself, are there patterns that you learned from the adults in your childhood that you're still repeating that don't work for you? Because seeing the destructive behavior as a pattern is the first step to owning it and ultimately ending it. And that brings me to takeaway number two. It's a tool you can use to actually destroy the pattern. And that's shut up, Sharon. One of the ways you can take control over your mind is to exaggerate and make the negative things that you say to yourself into a character. Stephen, for example, told that negative voice in his head to shut up, Sharon. And you can do the same thing. If you have a problem with negative self-talk, Here's what I want you to do. First, pick a name. And it could be someone you don't like very much. It could be a fictional character. And then I want you to borrow the shut up Sharon concept. You might say to yourself, knock it off, Mike. Or perhaps you're going to say, I'm not listening, Lisa. It doesn't matter the name you use. It doesn't matter the little phrase you come up with. Just name it and tell it to shut up. And whenever you catch yourself... Speaking negatively, that's when you're going to pull out this character and you're going to cut it off. Now, our 13-year-old son has used this exact same strategy to fight his anxiety, and he's done it by naming his anxiety Oliver. Whenever anxiety comes into his head or he feels it coming in his body, he knows that Oliver is there. Then he tells Oliver to go away. He might say, shut up, Oliver. 
I've heard him say, Oliver, you're not invited. I've heard him say, Oliver, you're not allowed. Oliver, you're not coming. By naming it, he takes control of his thoughts and he overrides the anxiety in his mind. And I'll tell you what, it's pretty amazing how effective it is. And let me also make one more point about this naming tool based on some of the other coaching sessions that you've listened to. You've probably started to notice that we've been naming behavior. We did it in Kim's coaching session, in Jesse's coaching session, and in Evelyn's. During those coaching sessions, I asked each one of them to not only describe the old behavior patterns that have them stuck, but also to label them and the new positive behaviors that they wanted to adopt. So for Kim, for example, she's either acting like a big baby, like she has in her past, or she's Kim Possibility. Jesse, same thing. She's either stuck as the fat narcissist or she's living her future self light as a fairy. Evelyn is the Richmond Evelyn or she's in her glow up as Daily City Evelyn. When you turn old behaviors into a caricature, you actually remove your emotion and drama and heaviness around it and it makes the behavior more objective. Now, that's going to help you not only identify the negative behaviors quickly, but it's also going to help you move into the new behavior, the new chapter, instantly. It's like flipping a mental switch. You can snap out of the old behavior or the old chapter and into the new one the moment you see it. Now, the concept that we've just discussed in Stephen's coaching segment, shut up, Sharon, it's just an extension of that tool only we're teaching you to use it to change negative thought patterns. By turning your old negative thinking pattern into a caricature, you can then use it to change your thought process in an instant simply by saying, shut up, Sharon, and moving on. Now, the third takeaway is really, really important, and it's on the topic of manipulation. When you're afraid to upset other people and you use that fear to justify not being yourself, not telling the truth, not showing up, it's actually a form of manipulation. So let me unpack this for a minute. If you live your life in a way where you avoid upsetting people at all cost, so you keep quiet, that's a form of manipulation. If you're afraid of hurting people's feelings or disappointing them, and so you lie, that's a form of manipulation. If you hate confrontation, so you don't tell the truth about how you're feeling, that's a form of manipulation. And what's the golden rule of manipulation? Well, you learned it in this coaching session with Steven. When you manipulate people, you're responsible when they get upset if they find out the truth. But if you have the courage to just say how you're feeling, or to tell them what's true for you, when they get upset or they react negatively, it's on them. You know, having the courage and the clarity to just be yourself, that's what it means to be truly fabulous. In this coaching session, you're going to meet Kyle, 
a guy who's hell-bent on finding love, growing his real estate business, and making a difference in other people's lives. My name's Kyle. I'm 33 years old from Chicago, Illinois. I'm a realtor. I also drive for Lyft. I came here to help me finish some things in my life, and I'm excited for the opportunity to come and hopefully inspire some other folks to understand what's already inside of them. Now, I fell in love with Kyle's enthusiasm. And one thing I know for sure is you can't inspire other folks unless you get your own shit together. This coaching session is a master class in why it is critical to make peace with your past if you want to have a powerful future. And here's another thing that I know having coached so many people. It's that you always know when you hit on the truth because people react viscerally when you call them out on shit they don't want to deal with. And boy, do I call Kyle out on how incomplete he is about his past. And it sounds like this. First of all, it's it's terrifying to, to tell people I'm sober, especially, you know, it still is. It's still the, the fear of being Why? rejected for a good choice. Who the fuck cares? I get it. I mean, I in the I, talking about it objectively, it totally makes sense. But see, you don't own the sobriety yet. You're not proud of it. Because I feel like I feel like I got on the defense early in this in, in these relationships in these new relationships, and I'm like, like like people are like, well, why are you sober? Why this? But hold on. <laughs> Sorry. Do you see how rattled you're getting? Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's something that I'm like I'm pissed off about. Why? Because I shouldn't have to fucking defend my decisions. Excuse me. Why are you? Why, did your whole body language just yeah, changed. I'm sure it did. Uncross your fucking arms. <laughs> Nobody is attacking you. It's totally vulnerable. <sighs> You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Asha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Louise. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh shit. Now I really know what to do and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Yes, we are. I love that you're giving me a pep talk. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. So tell me about your background. Like, where did you grow up? My parents were married, but my dad split pretty early, um, about six months in. My grandmother, who is my heart and soul, um, was the other parent for a long time. There was always a constant flow of love and things like that, but um, definitely didn't have a male role in my life until I was uh, about eight. Um, my mom met someone, which is great, and we love each other today, um, but it was a hard transition. They met and got married within a year, and um, all of a sudden, I had this male role in my life, and I was used to being the, the star, the center of attention. Um, sharing that space was definitely tough. So how old were you when your dad left? Six months. And I've never met him. Ever? Ever. Someone from his camp reached out on my 26th birthday. Some woman uh, called my grandma's house and, and wanted my phone number. And my grandma was like, who is this? And she's like, well, it's from his dad. And she's like, well, okay, you can leave your number and I'll give it to him. And if he'd like to call you, he, he will. And she was flabbergasted. But 
Um, I chose that he chose to miss out on the awesomeness of me. So if you don't get to be there when I need you, you don't get to be there when you might need me. So it's not something that's complete for you, though. No. No, I eventually one night, I mean, we, we'll get into the fact that I used to drink quite a bit. Um, when did you start drinking? Oh, I mean, early we like, we go in my house. I was like a latchkey kid and, and my friends and stuff would come over and my, my folks had, you know, booze in the house and um, we'd be like, ooh, let's see what gin tastes like. This had to be probably like 12, 13. How much were you drinking in high school? Every weekend, definitely, by my... To blackout? Sure. Most days. So Does your mom know? Uh, I'm sure she suspected. Yeah. Wow. Tell me a little bit about your evolution yeah. drinking. Totally. Because it sounds like it started as a curiosity. 100. However, I don't know of a lot of sixth graders that are really hitting the vodka out of curiosity. Totally. So what I I haven't mentioned yet too is that I I had um, OCD as a kid as well. I would do things in sets of eight. Do you remember when that started? Yeah, it was like eight or nine, right when my right when my stepdad came in, right when the change of of living situation. There was like how the, did your mother tell you she was getting remarried and he was moving in? I didn't meet him until right before the wedding. I like they we were kept separate. Like like two dogs about to go to a fight or something. How did that make you feel? Like shit. It was it was rough. First of all, like I was losing my control and power in the house. I was losing my relational power with my mother. There was a, a more important male coming in her life. Um as somebody who also didn't have a father, it was tough. It was really tough to do that. You know, it's interesting because clearly you've you've been through a lot of therapy. <laughs> I have. I can tell because the way in which you describe this has a very clinical nature. Sure. And so when you describe the fact that um, your mom was meeting, had met somebody new, you talk about it from the lens of power. Yeah. But you don't actually talk about it in terms of how a seven or an eight-year-old actually feels. What did it feel like truly mm -hmm. in terms of the abandonment or the fear yeah. that this was happening? There was fear that somebody I didn't know is now in my house. Mm -hmm. um, there was a fear that um, I'd lose my mom too. Um, there was fear that um, I wasn't good enough for him either. Even in that fact that I feared him and feared the change, there's still a child in there that just wants to be loved and just wants to um, wanted somebody to say, you're cool, man. You're the shit. Go on, grow, be great. Let me support you. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, there's a lot of that that that's stayed in there for a long time well it started i'm sure with your dad leaving yeah and when your mom didn't introduce you to him and didn't make it safe and kept him away yeah. i'm sure it actually just made it scarier i remember just being like but why why can't i meet him why and there wasn't an answer so when did you go from sad to angry 
it was had to be quick. I was angry and I was sad. So my, there was a kind of perfect storm also too of the stepdad coming in mm-hmm. and the change of circumstance where my grandma actually moved to Colorado at that almost oh. overlapping. And so then it became this vacuum of like new parent figure and gloss of rock, strong, most stable love bond that I have ever had. Being a thousand miles away. Holy shit. Yeah. It got you were eight. I was eight. Eight is great. Eight's still my lucky number, but eight is a place that How the fuck is eight your lucky number? Who the fuck knows? Seriously. I don't know. It is. It always is. It always is, and it shows up everywhere in my life. One of the things that I love about you immediately yes. is how positive you are. But the thing that really it's just it's just right in my face when I listen to you is that there is something that is so unresolved underneath the surface. My fear about your ability to truly start the next chapter of your life yeah, and to put this chapter in the past and to be able to turn the page is that you've missed the real lesson of all of this. The drinking on some level became about power and became a gigantic fuck you, but it actually started as a desire to disappear. And then I think when nobody notices that you've disappeared, it becomes even more painful. Wow. That's some shit. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly were, like, um, <laughs> there was a lot of things I would do too, to just like, like, fucking look at me. See me. I'm right here. I'm right here. There was a lot of things that I... I... Wow. That's a, that's deep. That's the real... That's some shit. And I think that's the shit that's still here. Yeah. And that's where you don't have power, and that's where you're not happy. Yeah. And that what the next chapter for you is about is is to really complete that for yourself and to see a different angle on all those ways in which you behaved in the past that were coming from a really deep place of hurt and then seeing how that gets carried forward. You were screaming for somebody to pay attention. Come back. Like, Don't leave me here like this. That's it right there. Yeah. You're going to make me cry. Come back. Just come back. Take me with you. <sighs> yeah. It's okay. Yeah. That's some shit. It's the truth. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, it's pretty clear what happened. Dad leaves at six months. You never, ever meet him again. Your mom remarries shotgun style in terms of you didn't get to meet the stepdad. And in fact, he was kept away. And that created all this fear and this rejection for you. And then all of a sudden he enters the house and it's a totally different dynamic. And your mother basically disappears because she's now with the stepdad. Totally. And then your grandmother, who is your rock, who raised you with your mom once your dad left, moves 
across the country to Colorado. And here you are eight years alone and you start drinking with friends. Totally. So how does this story roll forward? So I end up moving to Colorado. Um, How old were you? uh, I was 18. I started as like a manager at a Target store. I was like a front end manager. And then I moved to like clothing retail. And then eventually I start college two years after I get there. Drinking is crescendoing at this point. We are stepping it up. We are going full bore. On How this. much would you drink a day? Uh, let's go with nine drinks a day. Like mixed drinks? The gay bar drinks. Yeah. What are those? Strong as hell. We are out. Wait, when did you come out? Oh, I came out at 16. Okay. I was still in the house. And how, what was your mom and stepdad? I reaction? had the most gossamer, beautiful coming out story. I mean, mom made let's one. Hear it. Yeah, so I, oh girl, I met a boy, my first boyfriend online um, uh, back in the AOL chat room days. Christmas time was coming up and I was like, I'm going to get him a DVD player. And so I had my mom take me to Best Buy and help me, like she front, like asked her to front me for this DVD player, the brand new technology. And she just questions me. She's like, what's your relationship like with Adam? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm gay. And the next line out of her mouth was, well, I guess I'm not having any grandchildren. So that that was like, oh, let's make this about you. Two middle fingers in the air, stomp up my room about 45 minutes later. I get like the knock on my door and like reconciliation starts right then. And what did she say? She apologized. She realized, I think, the air of that statement and that... Through all of this shit, Mel, there's still there's a lot of love in in this house. There is a lot of love. And so tell me more about the drinking. Was there a tipping point? Yes, absolutely. What so, was it? Um, we in Denver. I'm living in Denver. I'm, I'm almost through college. Um, all of a sudden, one night, I am feeling like I'm going to die. I, I have, like, this wave of, like, holy fuck. What the fuck? What's going on? Holy shit. And later learning this is what a panic attack looks like uh, <laughs> i didn't know i thought it was it was dead i thought the walls were caving in were you plowed at the time or was this yeah, like was you just okay. girl i was fucked up so when you lived in denver you were drunk seven nights a week i was bartending at this point <clears throat> i was when i wasn't bartending i was bar attending and we were just out there having the time of our life we we're doing it what was the tipping point I was freaking the fuck out like regularly. And so now it becomes a point where panic attacks start becoming regular. And now we're doing this fun little game where we wake up, we have a panic attack. So we start drinking in the morning. And then we go in for our meeting at, I'm doing outside sales at this point. And, oh, now you're out in the field. Oh, girl, stop at the liquor store. Grab a little airplane bottle. This will calm you down. And then we do that. Then we go have a couple meetings, sell some shit. Then, oh, guess what? 3.30, get your calls in. Calls are done. Whoop, meet you at the bar. See you there. And then we go drunk. And then we wake up in the morning. And then we rebound anxiety. And all of a sudden, it's seven days a week. And we're going down and up and down and up. And it's just rebound anxiety to drunk. To balancing out the anxiety with the drinking. And then waking up from that drunk stupor with a fucking panic attack every morning. So much so, I can't even get out of bed. There's days I just call into work just like, nope, nope, not doing it. Can't do it. Wow. Rough. How the hell long did you survive that? Two years in this cycle, in this pattern. And I hid it from everyone. It was just my thing. It was my beast to bear. 
I can't believe you kept your job for as long as you did. Oh, girl, I've been through 97 jobs. I have drank my way into getting fired out of pretty much every experience in my life. I have had some of the best jobs. I've had some horrible jobs, but I was an aide to a senator. I was... I have done a lot of things. I have done many, many things. And continually, continually in my goddamn life, fucking drinking had gotten in the way. What is the thing that you are the most ashamed of that you did drunk i've alienated many friendships i've manipulated my family i've manipulated friends i've said things to people that when they tell me back the things i've said i'm embarrassed it's not they didn't deserve some of this shit this place that you can get to when you're an alcoholic when you're drinking where you just are in your zone and I would just tear through life, not caring who I stepped on. It was shit. I treated people like shit sometimes. I treated myself like shit. I'd, I'd eat like shit. i put on a ton of weight. People would call me fat, and I would fucking agree with them. I started losing my hair, and people would make comments on that. And I would just sit with it, and I would just be like, you are a fucking piece of shit. And I accepted it. That's the worst thing I ever did. So true. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get sober? Well, all of a sudden my life was just, it was so hard to maintain my drinking relationship, my anxiety relationship, my primary job and my secondary job. At this point, I was pretty much drinking 24-7. There was barely a time I was sober during my day. I was at a place where I was throwing up straight vodka. I, I, there wasn't even, I didn't even need ice at this point. I didn't even, really didn't even need the glass that it came in. I could just drink it right out of the bottle, right next to my bed. And I'm sitting in my room, and I'm just looking, and I'm like laying at the foot of the bed, almost fetal. And I'm like, this is fucked up, girl. You are fucking worth more than this. So let's talk about ways out. And I I was able to break it down to there's four ways out. I'm in jail because I hit someone with my car. Uh, I'm dead. Um... I continue going until something else horrible happens. I, I and there's there's some unknown, or you get sober, and I don't know who, what energy, spirit, God, whomever, someone clobbered me over the head that night, and they said, "Call somebody." Who'd you call? This girl Ingrid that I worked with, who I knew would not judge me, who I knew would take my text at two in the morning and say, could you please be here at six? I need to go somewhere. She, without question, said, I'll be right there. Give me the address. She knew. Everyone knew. I don't know why. It was her. We were never close. It was a weak tie. We'd, we'd have nice times at work. We'd talk. We'd, it was great. She was very nice. We don't talk much anymore. But she was there. She was there when I needed her. How did she make you feel? Like, what was it about her that made you call? Before this, before that night, she, you know, she was like, Kyle, she's like, I worry about you. She's like, I love you. You got to, she's like, she would say like, you can, you might want to make some changes. You know, she'd say, say things that were not of a judgmental nature, not of a overstepping her line. She didn't try and do it from an authoritarian standpoint. Well, I wasn't ready to hear any message like that at that point, but God damn it. If I didn't call her first when I knew, I knew it was time. Tell me about that call. 
oh fuck it was like a facebook message i think i just was like i was sitting there so like with one eye open and barely barely able to see i looked up a place and i found a place i didn't know what the hell i was doing but i said well this looks good i researched this and i was like hey girl i just messaged and i was like this is done i was like i need help i can't do this alone and i said i need you to take me there and i said i'm gonna be drunk as fuck when you get here i'm gonna just drink tonight i'm gonna keep going and just grab me just come in and get me if i'm not awake and do you remember her arriving I remember, kind of remember her being there. I remember in the car, she was just like, hey, how are you? Good. She's like, do you want to go to McDonald's or anything? Like, are you ready? Like, let's do this. And she's just like, she kept me out. I'm like crying at this point. I'm like a mess. I'm like scared as fuck about what this looks like. Scared as fuck I'm going to fail at this. Scared, scared, just scared. Scared of the guy on the other side of drinking. It's going to be the same fucking loser that I wasn't a child, that I felt in my mind. The same inadequate, not good enough, broken mess of piles of partial human that doesn't know how to be whole. We were quiet for a while, and we talked for a while, and we listened to music for a while. There was a little bit of a drive, and it was just me getting ready to start. Wow. So who is the guy that you discovered when you got sober. Jesus. <sighs> now? This guy's fucking cool. For a while. <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it. I have a good time right now. I have a great time now. Because How long I, have you been sober? March 5th will be four years. The detox program was horrible, but we made it through. I was literally Mel Robbins going in five-minute increments. That was all I could do. All I could do was get through five minutes. And I would count, I'd pick a random number, and I'd say, 43. One, two, three, four. I get to 43 and pick another number. 12. One, two, three, four. And I would do this. And all of a sudden, I had five minutes. And then, girl, can you get through another five? All right, let's go. Finally, five came in 10. 10 to 15. 15 to 30. 30 to an hour. An hour to a day. A day to a week. And we just build and built and built and as this confidence came up the panic attacks were still there but i was able to i was say girl you got you have a, you have two days sober you can do this come on just breathe it out where did the resolve come from to get sober like what kept you going things were so ugly and bad and traumatizing and there was this a re-victimization every day and a re appearance of feelings of all kinds of things there was an ugliness that resided over me that was self-imposed that i knew i was better than and i know i knew even then there's somebody so awesome down here that he wants to come out and he wants to be here he wants to help people and you can't do that if you're fucked up yourself girl you can't do that if you're a if you're a drunk, you can't you can't make others feel good about themselves when you don't feel good about you. What have you learned about yourself now that you're sober? I've learned what I can tolerate and what I will not tolerate. And I've also learned that I'm not afraid to say yes and I'm not afraid to say no to all kinds of things in my life. I wasn't afraid to say, yes, I'm going to get this weight off of me. I lost 55 pounds. I wasn't afraid to say, yes, 
I'm going to spend all this money and become a realtor after I, I separated from my job. It's amazing. I have learned that I have a strength. I have a gift. I have an outgoing personality by nature, but I'm not afraid to use that. I'm not afraid to be and live in that and, and do this kind of good work and hopefully just help one more person. Getting it right actually means being okay with getting it wrong. I have this perfectionist in me, this this kid who has left, this kid who has pulled himself out, this kid who needs things to just be right, just to be right, right now. But perfection, for me, is starting to look like the ugliness, the, the sadness, the fuckery of it all <laughs> is okay. And it's part of who I am. How old are you, Kyle? I'll be 34 next week. So what would the 34-year-old Kyle, like if you could go back into that scene in your life when you were eight years old. Oh, Jesus. And your grandmother's leaving and this man you haven't met is about to come in. Coaching yourself. Yeah. What would you tell yourself that none <laughs> of the adults told you? First of all, I give him a big hug because I love hugs. <laughs> Secondly, um, I would just tell that guy, uh, hey man, it's going to suck. It's going to be some shit that you're going to see and you're going to do. But it doesn't have to be who you are forever. Just hang in there. Just love everybody. Love yourself. And know that you're good enough to get through it. And you deserve the good life you're going to have. And there's going to be a big party waiting for you when you get there. <laughs> no booze, though. <laughs> no, no. A big, I'm sorry. A big celebration. <laughs> Let me clarify. I wish I had known that the only, that you can be... I accept the fact that I could live like an asshole for so long and then one day decide, nope, not cool anymore. Not going to be that guy. And now I don't have to be an asshole anymore. I can relate to that. I've stopped therapy. I'm going to start back up. And we're going to finish. We're going to put to bed a couple of things. What are the still... couple things you need to put to bed? You know, the anxiety uh, stems from just this this place of... Um, there, were, there were, you know... I, I don't want to call, call them hallucinations, but kind of like a, a place in my life where I, I felt like there were people looking down and judging me. And I, there's just this... Of course this there were. Over... You were fucking drunk. <laughs> I was a fucking drunk. They should have judged you. Absolutely. But but a sense where like people could could see in and and, and know like almost like a thought police. Here's what I actually think is the place for you to have a quantum leap. Yeah. And that is for you to write out every single person that you would be afraid to bump into. Whoa. Because real estate is a business where you put yourself out there. Driving a lift is a business where somebody can get into your car at random. Yeah. And you are walking around with the ghosts of the past. Totally. Unresolved. And I believe that until you actually learn the lessons that are in this chapter, the next one's not beginning, to the extent that there are people in your life that you are not comfortable seeing or being around or it would suck if you bumped into them 
you owning your own transformation by reaching out. And look, you can write a one paragraph thing that says, as part of my recovery, I'm reaching out and apologizing to people. And I don't even remember what I did to you. I was so fucked up. Wow. But all I know is that in order for my, to be successful and happy, I need to apologize for whatever I may have done. And I need to say for myself that I have changed, that I am a different person, and that I hope if I ever bump into you, you greet me as a friend. Holy shit, Mel. And that is where your anxiety stems from. Oh my God. It's that the ghost of who you used to be is out in the psyches of other people. They're not reading your minds. You're holding a space where you're trying to make sure that you don't fucking bump into somebody. Yeah. Oh my God. You're nail on the head. And so I want you to make a list of every single person that you would feel any agita yeah. bumping into. Okay? Okay. And then I want you to come up with a one paragraph just thing that's about you doing it for you and basically just saying as part of your healing you're doing this because here's the thing that i see for you i see a guy that if you can overcome the kind of shit show that you used to be and take control of your life in the way that you have you can build any kind of business that you want you can be judgment free of yourself you can be fucking happy you can have a relationship where you're not in the relationship playing games because you're afraid somebody's leaving, but you're just fully yourself. What happened? The love life is definitely a place that I still struggle. Well, because you're not in it. No, I'm not. What would it look like for you to just be you in a relationship? I don't know what that guy looks like. It's hard for me to like to let anyone fully, fully, fully in and be be pure and clear and honest and and just let them see to expose it all, all of the shit. I think that your next, the next chapter of your life doesn't begin until you are, and so I can guarantee you the anxiety will go away because your anxiety is all about managing unknown. One hundred percent. And the only unknown in your life right now is whether or not somebody from your past needs to be shown an apartment tomorrow. You're not wrong, Mel. (laughs) Well, it's because I've lived with anxiety for 24 years and I've made that list and I've wronged a lot of people. And when you think you can just forgive yourself but not do that extra layer, because here's the thing. And this is true with relationships too, Kyle. And it's a really hard thing to understand. We spend so much time trying to manipulate other people into liking us. And we spend so much time in relationships giving people little pieces of information. Uh Uh-huh. But holding on to the gold. Are you in a romantic relationship right now? No, not... I'm the closest I've been, but I'm not, we're not. Okay. So what are you not, what are you holding on to? First of all, it's, it's terrifying to, to tell people I'm sober, especially, you know, it still is. It's still the, the fear of being Why? rejected for a good choice. Who the fuck cares? I get it. I mean, I, in the, I, talking about it objectively, it totally makes sense. But see, you don't own the sobriety yet. You're not proud of it. 
I am fucking proud of it. Okay, then who the fuck cares? If you're with some ding dong that can't handle <laughs> yeah. the fact that you're sober. He doesn't deserve to be happy. Dude, I, it's on him. I, I, yeah. If you're embarrassed or ashamed or managing sobriety because you're afraid of the reaction of some guy, then it's on you. Yeah. You don't have a shot of meeting the one until you fully own who you are. Yeah. And realize that the right person for you to either date or be in a committed partnership has no issue with you being sober. Yeah. Right now, you have the issue. You have the story. And so this is the biggest breakthrough that you could have, which is truly owning what happens if you, you're you sober. That's part of who you are. Absolutely. And so what are you thinking about right now? as it relates to sobriety and dating and your the still the, the bullshit that's there yeah because i feel like i feel like i got on the defense early in this in, in these relationships in these new relationships and i'm like 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 people are like well why are you sober why this but hold on <laughs> sorry do you see how rattled you're getting yeah yeah because it's it's something that i'm like i'm pissed off about why because i shouldn't have to fucking defend my decisions excuse me why are you... Why, your whole body language just yeah, changed. I'm sure it did. This is the core <laughs> of everything. Uncross your fucking arms. Whew. Nobody is attacking you. It's totally vulnerable. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> You know, it's interesting. In life, there's um, there's certain subjects, and your sobriety is one of them. So there's certain subjects for people where they get really hooked. One of them is sexual abuse. Another one might be divorce or, you know, kind of whether or not you have kids, bankruptcy. And for you, it's sobriety. You are so fucking hooked and angry that you're sober. And when the topic comes up you can blow smoke out your ass and you know fart unicorns and rainbows about how amazing <laughs> it is but the truth is there are days that you're pissed that you're sober yeah that's true the coolest thing about you is that you beat an addiction that you survived that you made a choice that you make a choice every day that most fuckers are not strong enough to make and instead of being proud of that and actually understanding that talking about it in a way that is responsible and proud and not like on a soapbox that's your gift yeah and in the one area where you want intimacy you're acting like a douchebag about it shit yeah wow we got work to do what about the anger? I will have to work. Are you pissed that you're missing out on something? Like, is there, is the, like, what is the, yeah. what is the root I mean, of the anger? Mel Robbins, there is a place in me, inside of me that says, why can't I do that too? Why am I not good enough to drink right now? Yeah, there's some anger. I guess there is some anger down there because I want to, I want to do all the things too. And it feels like a limit that's imposed. And I try and just create this space without limits, but... This is something that when unbridled 
takes my life out of control. So it pisses me off that I have to put a limit on something. You don't have to put a limit on sobriety. That's true. You're sober because you have to be. And the reason why, and this is the final lesson for you, any time that the fuck you, fuck the world side of you comes out, you lose. Hmm. And whenever the fuck you comes out, that is the old Kyle. Yeah. Wow. And so I really want you to get this around the sobriety because you're not 100% proud of being sober. I'd rather have you be a little sad that it is what it is and that you did enough partying for 10 lifetimes and to own that realness and it's fine every once in a while to be a little annoyed that it is what it is but the fuck you piece never works Hmm. and you got really kind of prickly and nasty and snarky when you started describing how you felt when people that you're dating ask about sobriety. Yeah. And so there's a link between the button of not feeling good enough and feeling vulnerable and your immediate reaction being fuck you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, Kyle, you want to be a seven figure earner in real estate? Yes. You do? Yes. You make this list and you will make that happen because there will be nothing holding you back in business. Nothing. The other shit with real estate, you can do better than almost anybody I've ever met. You're outgoing, you're a talker, you hustle, you're a connector. That's all that real estate is. But if you can get rid of this teeny little bit of residue from your past, your business will explode because you will be free. The third thing is, in the current relationship, you gotta bring your full self And you got to remind yourself that when somebody reacts negatively, they judge you or they leave, it's on them. The second you start manipulating this bullshit, you've manipulated them, you're responsible for how they react. And then finally, the piece that will really help you is thinking about the areas in your life where you still don't feel good enough and realizing that you are susceptible to going from Kyle to fuck you let's come up with a name or kyle the real estate mogul kyle the like happy millionaire kyle the like kyle the difference maker kyle the sober something that is this next chapter who is that guy give me like a A moniker yeah i want to say kyle the guide kyle the guide okay fabulous kyle the guide awesome and what are what are your attributes If somebody were to meet you and then leave, they'd go, wow, that Kyle is... Funny. Yeah? Um, Kind. Yep. Inspiring. Great. Um, Fun. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Successful. Successful. Yeah. Okay. I didn't hear a fuck you in there. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. Where'd that go? So Kyle the guide. Kyle the guide. Is the next chapter. Awesome is right. Awesome.
Oh my God, you're amazing. You're amazing. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mel. I'm going to do a first draft on my apology note. I'm going to start it today. I might not send it today, but I'm going to get ready to send. There's no doubt in my mind that Kyle now feels respected and loved and ready to change too. It's so easy, isn't it, to get caught spinning your wheels when you try to change on your own? That's why I keep saying it's so much easier and more fun when we do it together. Because until Kyle had the insight that he was still fucking pissed about being sober, absolutely nothing was going to change. And there's no way he was going to gain that insight on his own. So takeaway number one, if you're somebody like Kyle, that's trying hard, that's crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but you feel like you're just not making any headway, I guarantee you there is something you cannot see or that you are refusing to see. The other thing about Kyle that I want to point out, Kyle is a great example of someone who is very busy, but is busy spinning in circles. And you know, I've been like that in my past too. I think one of the reasons why people stay so busy is because if we have to slow down, we would be forced to deal with whatever pain is underneath the surface. So if you re-listen to the coaching segment with Kyle, and I encourage you to do it, I want you to pay attention to something. I want you to listen to the pace, even in his voice, because whenever he slowed down, that's when the greatest moments of insight and emotion happened. So the obvious takeaway for all of us is that we need to slow down and tune in to the emotions that are in there. In order to see the problem, you're going to have to slow down. And look, if you're scared of what you might find, you don't have to do it alone. Go talk to somebody. It'll be faster and a hell of a lot more fun. Now, the second takeaway, which is related, is something that I want to say about addiction. And that is that any single destructive habit that you have, it's also a mask for pain. We talked about this in Kim's episode. Remember Kim had the trouble with smoking? And we discussed the fact that researchers now believe that addictions can be classified as habit dysfunctions. That just means patterns of behavior that have gone awry. And yes, it's true. And yes, there is a chemical component to addiction. But the real killer is the fact that you're self-soothing emotional pain. In Kyle's case, he used alcohol. Kim used cigarettes, and Jessie, she used food. Remember, she labeled herself as an emotional eater who was soothing herself with comfort food. And even after you break the physiological dependence of your addiction, if you haven't gotten to the root of the emotional pain that led you to the addiction in the first place, you're never going to break the underlying addiction. So while Kyle is sober, and that's incredible, and Kim is quitting, and that's incredible, and Jessie is taking responsibility for her health, that's incredible. The next level of healing and power is in dealing with the emotional pain that you're masking. It is going to be uncomfortable to deal with it, but it is the only way that you're going to truly heal. Now, the final and third takeaway is a tool that you can use to forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made in your past. And that tool 
is to embrace and be proud of where you're at right now. You know, one of the things that you've learned in this episode listening to Kyle is that he hasn't embraced his sobriety. And by not embracing his sobriety, he is unable to get rid of the shame of his past. I mean, think about that for a minute. How could you possibly move beyond the mistakes that you've made in your past if you're not even proud and celebratory of how far you've come? And by being embarrassed and defensive of his sobriety, you know what he's doing? He's invalidating his own progress. That's why I told him he has to make a list of everybody he's incomplete with, and he's got to start the process of not only making amends, but also publicly acknowledging how far he's come now that he's sober. Look, the moment you take responsibility for your past, that's really important. But it is also essential that you take pride in how far you've come. You're only human. And you'll gain the freedom and control back in your life the second you start feeling proud of where you are. Well, Mel Robbins told me to uncross my fucking arms. That was the Real Talk Express coming back. That was like that was the same kind of thing my aunt did. I didn't even realize I was doing it, and she she broke she broke me down in a, in a in a positive way. It was exactly what I needed. I felt the moment of breakthrough. In this coaching session, you're going to meet a woman named Tara who's been looking for love for almost 40 years, and now that she's found it, she's about to screw it up. My name is Tara Morris. I'm 42 years old. I'm originally from Marshfield, Massachusetts. Uh, I've lived all over the world, though. Um, And I am a photographer and a yoga teacher and a world traveler and an entrepreneur. I'm here to talk to Mel, um, and I believe she's going to help me with my daddy issues. (laughs) Did you notice how she laughed when she said daddy issues? The fact is, the environment you grew up in, it can make or break your ability to be and stay in a loving relationship. And in this coaching session, you're going to learn that Tara grew up in an abusive and alcoholic home. And I'm telling you that as a trigger warning. And also because our conversation opens up with a very detailed description of her family's long history of abuse. And when you hear it, it'll make perfect sense why her dating history sounds like this. God forbid you're a drunk guy that hits on me at a bar. I mean, I'll just, I mean, I'll just literally, without even having my heart rate raise, I'll just slowly rip you apart (laughs) and sort of get off on it. You know what I mean? Like, like bitchy, like a bitchy man hater. That sucks. You know, I should also tell you, I know Tara. She's one of my favorite yoga instructors in the Boston area. And I wanted her on the show because she's struggling with something so many of us can relate to. And that's how our past can creep into our current relationships. Now, she just described herself as a bitchy man hater. But please, please listen all the way to the end, because that's actually not the real problem. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. 
Hi Mel, I'm Aisha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you Mel. Hi Mel, I want to be coached by you. Pick me Mel. Hi Mel, my name is Louise and from Brazil. 54321, come on Mel Robbins, please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh shit. Now I really know what to do and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Hey, Tara. So I know you're here for advice about your relationship with your boyfriend, but you just said that you need help with daddy issues. So can you tell me why you think you have daddy issues? What's your family history? So as I've gotten older, I understand it more now, so I can tell it to you that way. My grandmother married this guy named uh, Leslie, who's my grandfather. My f grandfather was cheating on my grandmother with the town tramp. When my grandmother was giving birth, his mistress was also giving birth to his kid. And she, the town tramp named the kid Leslie after my f grandfather, who had a full-blown family. So my grandmother was all, fuck this, and moved them into rural New Hampshire in the 40s. And my grandfather resented her so much that every night of my mother's life, she was lined up against a wall and just right-hooked, beaten, and then made to sit down and finish dinner, like choking back tears. And then she married my dad, who was run over by a train when he was seven and is a nice enough guy, but... He was blamed. His his father was humiliated that he had a handicapped son and drank and smoked himself to death by the time my dad was 18. So there's that guy is my dad and that chick is my mom, right? So so they meet and she's terrified of men and he's terrified of women because he has one leg since he was seven. And she's has, is from a lineage of, of major abuse. And that those are my parents, Right. So so my mother never had to say men are bad. Da, 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 da. I absorbed that shit. Right. And I, what I absorbed from my dad is this way of this deep self-hatred and self-loathing, even though he never told me he hated himself or that I should hate myself. It's this like this absorption of these two people, which makes me so fucking terrified to have a kid because what am, what's in me that's just like, my kid's just gonna sponge up, you know? And so the fear of men is, is bazillions of hours meditating and everything is just, when a guy likes me, I'm like, I feel like a caged animal. I feel like, you're going to take away all my friends and all my fun and you're going to fucking knock me up and I'm not going to be able to be an entrepreneur and I'm just going to be like looking out a fucking suburban window like with a baby, you know? And so, so the reaction of that and then my dad's a drunk and all that. So I just get off like cutting men down. So like 10 years on Match.com, I'd be like... Oh, my God. I was like, why aren't they Surprise. calling back? I'm surprised you're not a serial killer. Thank you. On Match.com. Totally. Looking right. for assholes to pick <laughs> off. 
<laughs> right? So, uh, so, but I kind of was. I was like, I'll just fucking castrate him without my heart rate even rising. And just like, and God forbid you're a married man that, that, that hit on me. I would just ruin you. I would just humiliate you in these like really subtle ways. And if you were a guy that, that was rich, I would just, I would just take you down with these, with my words. You know, I was just like, angry just so angry you know and i still am i just now i'm in a relationship right and then this whole now my mom's in her 30th year of parkinson's and my dad's starting at noon with a madras and people are now coming to my mother's nursing home being like yeah i just saw your dad asleep at the wheel you know he's 80 years old and an active alcoholic so it's like there's a lot there you know there's a lot there and i'm trying to deal with being in a relationship and being like what a whatever a woman should be like you know like hey isn't he funny <laughs> you know like i can't do that like i don't know i just don't know what to really i don't know how to be someone that's just like supports my man you, you know so I don't know if you know alcoholics, but that's just another way to say a full-blown liar, right? Do you remember the moment you realized the guy's a, he's a drunk? Yeah, my mom hated him. And she would talk shit openly about him. And so then our nighttime ritual where my mother got her ass kicked every night, we would hear my father beep his horn and we would already be eating dinner. We didn't wait for him. And we would freeze Right. And then he would just come stumbling up and just glug, 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 glug the fucking vodka and just sit down. And we were just all like shaking and terrified. And then um, junior year in high school, uh, I was a major overachiever, by the way. I was like, so what would happen when he would he was beating up your mom? What would you do? He would he he's only hit her a couple times, but they would just fight. And and then um, so was it like. I'm not going to do anything to call attention to myself. Yes. Is it like I'm hiding? Terrified. Like how did, so terrified. He would beat my sister. He would. He didn't. Not regularly, but she was the one that tried to disobey them. And I And she. I just. I remember vividly her, him holding her against the wall and just beating her. And my mother trying to fucking screaming and kicking, trying to get him off her. And I became a complete straight-A student, did not eat one thing, a classic anorexic overachiever, and extremely depressed and got classed opt optimist, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just the, I mean, it's... Because like, you're a good liar. Absolutely. And, and, and I am my dad's salesman, right? I'm my dad's, my dad loses his leg, what is he going to do? Well, he can sit at a bar stool and he can make everybody laugh, right? He can't, he can't charm a woman because it's not like he went to Vietnam and lost his fucking leg. He tried to jump a train in the first grade and slipped under it, right? So, so I have my dad's like, da, 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 right? So that works great out, out there at home. You know, I remember him banging against the walls in the hallway, against the wall of my room, and classic, every Saturday morning, he'd be like, going to the P.O., the post office, the motherfucker would never come home. 
He would never, he did no, He did his errands and then he went to the bar, which was fine by us, by the way. We couldn't stand him, right? So then it was like, then what came first, the chicken or the egg? Everyone hating him at home or him never coming home? I don't know. There's a lane in here about the fact that as a kid, you actually were never seen, that there wasn't an adult that came in. And, actu- and pulled you out of the situation. And there wasn't an adult that came in and got rid of your dad. And there wasn't an adult that came in and made him get sober or made the abuse stop. And there wasn't an adult that said, you're amazing and you're getting the A's and holy shit, you have anorexia, you need help. And so maybe what you're really starting to get to the root of is that for so long, people haven't seen the real you. It might not be coming at all from fear of men. It might be coming from a sense that nobody really fucking gets you and cares about you. Mm. You know, when when the adult not noticing that I was anorexic or saying that I was getting AIDS or or is all the adult we're talking about is my mom, right? right? Who I just naturally protect because she was sure the fuck better than him, right? But when when I've had a therapist be like, what's up with your mom? And I, it's like, like, I get so like, she was amazing, why? <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? But like, she did her best and that's for sure. Not saying, no one's saying she didn't, but like, but seeing my the way my friends parent their kids, that shit wouldn't go by them. I remember being like, mom, what happens if I get pregnant? She goes, don't bother coming home. I'm like, good talk. Really good talk. Thanks. What do you wish you would have said? What do you wish you would have done? Like, if you could go back and... so Because and here's right. the thing. I think you get like... Right. About your mom because you, in the contrast with your, you know, your drunken father, she's the angel. And at the same time, what happened was not okay. And she was not there. Meaning maybe she couldn't be, maybe she was doing the best that she can, but that doesn't excuse the fact that it was not fucking okay. And what do you wish? Like if you could go back and just separate the fact it's not a fucking judgment on her. Mm. It's an acknowledgement of what you needed from her. Who Like more more of a friendship. Like I know it's like you can't be your, your kid's friend, but you can kind of be. You know, and so I wish she was a little bit more like, hey, do you have a boyfriend? Or I remember my first boyfriend broke up with me and I was crying so, so hard. And she just walked by my door and goes, somebody better have died for all that crying. And that was it. I was uncontrollably sobbing. My very first heartbreak. I, I could I could draw you the scene. It, it was it's so it was so traumatizing. And really mom you're a fucking bitch the bigger issue that i suspect you have gone so far around protecting your mother that you've never allowed yourself to say what you fucking allowed to happen mom is fucked up he just dragged the whole operation down and she let it happen there is some yes level in your own power your own healing your own ability to draw the line in the sand and actually have the life that you want instead of surviving the one that you had 
as cheesy as that sounds, that is about allowing yourself to say, it's not fucking right. You should have left him. The fact that you chose him over us, it's not okay. And it left you with this anger. Like, I think more of the anger, it has less to do with your father and probably more to do with your mom. As much as you love her. I think that's really right. She didn't have any money. So I think she thought she'd be homeless if she left him. I'm sure she did. Yeah, you know, so I think, I feel like she felt trapped. She was a kid. She couldn't leave her family. Now she can't leave her fucking shitbag husband. And now she can't, now she's trapped in her body. You're the same way. I know. <laughs> Where's the edgy and the bitchiness and the, I'm going to, I'm going to literally rip your head off the anger. Where is it still present in your life? My relationship with Albie. Why? Um, cause I think he's crazy and I get, and I resent him for being my man and having his shit and having his anger and then why are you with him because i love him i i know you love being with him but why are you with him but i i i actually love him okay. no I, I actually love him yeah. okay and i i love being with him i hate fighting with him i'm not an easygoing person and neither is he right so it's it's just not easy and i think I wish it was. I wish he was just like a milk toast guy, but then I kind of really don't. No, you don't. I know. I know. Where the edge is working in your life, keep it. But where is it that you're not happy? Is it mostly in the drama with you and Albie? Yeah. So what is it about the relationship that's not working? Tell me what you guys fight about. Like, what's the yeah, dynamic issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think um, th- this is my part. This is um, I. My contribution to it is these subtle ways I don't see with the tone um, that is all based in um, this an emasculating um, uh, view of him, right? So I'm, I'm bossy, I'm bitchy, I'm, right? And he'll take it and I'll take it and I'll take it. And I don't even know if he puts it together, but then he'll outburst on, um, um, me snuggling with my dog too much. Or is he pissed that you're showing the dog more affection than you show him? That's what it is. Yeah. So it just, it sounds like you're not very loving. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. What? I'm serious. Yeah, I know. I know. That's just not something that I could be like, totally good point. You know, like that's no, hard I mean, to hear. But, but yeah. So yeah, you no, said I'm not, earlier I'm that not, you're I'm not, I'm not. You're not gentle. You're not yes. loving. You're yes. not kind. <laughs> I think you are to me. Awesome. <laughs> well, you said you're afraid of men. No, that's a hundred percent true. But Mel, I'm just sweating because it's true. So and you're and not you're loving. You're little... not kind. You're not gentle. Hot. Yeah, seriously. It's the worst. Well, you're testing him. Let's see how much of an asshole I can be to you. And let's see if you're actually a good guy. Yeah. And he is clearly a nice guy if he's stuck around for... Yeah. So then he's a nice guy that you're continuing to poke, 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 poke. Are you still a nice guy or are you fucking asshole? Come on, come on. Come and get me. Come and get me. Come and get me. Fuck you. Fuck you. Let's see. Oh, you still love me? What's what's wrong with you? 
And so the line in the sand that we keep talking about, this next chapter, is you fundamentally reinventing how you are in your relationship with him. If you truly love him, which you do, and you want something very different than what you witnessed growing up, you have to shift how you are being. And that edge that works in the yoga studio and that edge that works in business and that edge that worked as, you know, a kid in an alcoholic household, it will not work in this relationship. And so the question then becomes, how do you actually shift it and who do you want to be? I would have to um, act a little bit. Yes. I would have to try. Yes. Right. Like I do with everything and everybody. Yes. Right. I mean, I don't just walk around just like blurting shit out. I try to be nice to people. Yes. Right. And that's why I am. And you he's know? actually the most important person other than yourself to try to be nice to. Like his his purpose, even though a therapist might tell you this, is not so you can work out the decades of shit that you have built up with your father and your anger of all men. It's actually to have a loving relationship. The first chapter was kill all men. <laughs> Check. This next chapter is what? Love. Yes. Him. One man. Yes. Yeah. Totally. You know, I, Chris and I have been together for 21 years. Amazing. Well, it is amazing. And Chris will tell you that I am the biggest pain in the ass to live with. That my there are so many things that I do that are irritating. There are aspects of my personality that are super grating. And that if he were to be in this relationship looking for reasons to not like me <laughs> he would find hundreds of them all day long the same is true with chris we have very different communication styles he's a thinker i'm a talker he likes to process things in a methodical way i am full of anxiety so i'm like decision 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 I think it's worked because I'll make 115 decisions in an hour and Chris will have thought through them and we end up making the same one by the end. Totally. Same, same with Albie and I. But it drives me bananas that he thinks that way. So when you're somebody that has survived a lot, when you're somebody that's driven, when you're somebody that is a manipulator and a liar and a games person like I am and like you are, um, you get addicted to being right about things because it gives you control. And I could have single-handedly destroyed my relationship with Chris by focusing on the fact that I'm right about everything. I'm right about how you should think. I'm right about what we should have for dinner. I'm right about everything. And it wasn't until I made a decision that it actually wasn't giving me what I wanted. Like I, I, I am in this relationship with this remarkable guy who's not perfect, but I love him and I am destroying this because all I can focus on is the shit that irritates me or being right, or it's my way for, just because. 
And I had to make a decision, just like you have to make a decision. Line in the sand. The the way that I this is this was the insight. I realized that what, what made me very successful as a trial lawyer was destroying my marriage. How? Oh, well, when I'm in a courtroom, all you do is argue. And you're right. And you grandstand. And, you know, you say whatever you need to say. And it's all about you and you're in control and you interrogate people and you argue and you, that's what you do in a courtroom. And I was very, very good at it. But when I walked through the front door of our apartment, being a lawyer was not going to give me the relationship that I wanted. And so being the man killer is not going to give you the relationship that you want. And so there's a way in which you have a mindset as a yogi where you intentionally try to have a certain nature and a certain point of view, correct? Yes. What is it? Um, as a yogi, yeah. is, is there's a few, but one is a, a sense of sameness and togetherness, and, and you know that, that we're all the same, that we're all in this together. Um, another one is loving kindness. I mean, there's a there's a bunch. When I'm teaching yoga, I am the best version of myself. Correct. I mean, that's why my eyes are shut. Is I have to just just go deep to everything I've read and everything I know, and and not be like traffic was terrible today. You Power know, dog. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. I just, I have to like excavate it up. You, you know. Because these people deserve that, you know? And so that's what I try to do. Albie deserves it. And so I think what would be different about how you are in your relationship with Albie if when you walked in the door, the yoga teacher showed up? Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking of like all these little things like going to bed early without him. I don't really give a shit. Mm-hmm. It, it, when I really think about it, it's mean. He hates that. I am realizing that the reason we get along for two weeks and then have a big blowout is like, is it whatever I'm doing is building up? I mean, he's got to fix himself, but that's not my problem. I have these parts of my mother, right? That You're mean, like yes, your mother. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes. It's really hard to hear and it's really hard to agree with because I I immediately want to be like, I just bought the motherfucker a MacBook Pro. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not just like Cruella But, but you DeVille. know what? Hold on. If you're anything like me, you bought it not only because part of you loves him and wants to give a great gift, but because then that guy owes you something. Just the way That's that you deep. said it. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So the thing, to, and this is such an incredibly powerful insight, that when you embrace the fact that you're fucking mean, <laughs> like this is actually not about hating men. This is about the meanness that you observed and adopted from your mom. And it's at a deep level you don't realize that you're doing it. You don't want to fucking do it. So the old chapter is, I'm a mean man killer. And and just mean, period. I'm an angry, mean person. No, you're not. 
you're a freaking incredible yogi. You're full of joy and love. You freaking document it and create it for a living. That's not who you are. So if in the next chapter, you are just the yoga instructor, your love and your joy, and you start to go to war against all those places where you're fucking mean, you're cold, you go to bed before he does, you buy him the MacBook and resent it instead of being so thrilled that you have the money to do something incredible for him, that you you know are more affectionate, that you're just all these things that don't feel natural because my nature is to be a little bit colder. My nature is to be judgy. My nature, because that's what I saw. What are the ways in which you're a mean bitch to him? <laughs> I mean, you just named it, going to bed before him. Um, um, uh, questioning um, his adulthood, sort of like we have three dogs. So it's like, you know, I'm always like, did you walk him? Did you, you know, like just not patronizing him, but like being condescending in that uh -huh. way. Um, I mean, just you just so called it out, just buying him gifts and doing everything for him and then resenting him for it. That shit's deep as fuck. Um, and every time we have a fight, I mean, I, I've moved out of it. I own the house. I've moved out of my own house just to get away from him oh, twice, just over fights. Right. And, and it just kills him. And what's interesting is I guarantee you so much of his stuff is being triggered by yours because you're the more powerful dominant one in the relationship. Right. And the other thing that I used to, that I struggled with too, is that that emasculating of your partner, it doesn't work. And the only thing that repairs it is kindness and love. And when you come from a place of kindness and love, even though it feels like you're acting for a yes. while, and then all of a sudden it become your nature because that's really what you want. Right. And you know this, but because you've seen and experienced the meanness, it's what takes over when you're not paying attention. Yeah, you could not be more right. It makes me um hate myself though. It make you know not though, but like it makes me be like oh that sucks. Oh, I I I figured I was a fraud. That's probably why I was closing my eyes, and now I know I'm a fraud. No, you're not. You're just not good at it in relationship. Yeah. You've never had somebody stick around long enough for you to care to fix this. You're not a fraud at all. In fact, I think the authentic you is the one that's in the yoga room. Yeah, it feels it. I mean, it, feel, it, it feels it. It does feel it. 100%. And the reason why is because you're super intentional about everything that comes out of your mouth and how you behave because you're intentional about creating an experience for yourself and for the people that show up. You can do the exact same thing in your marriage. That skill that you practice every single day as a yogi, that is the exact same skill that you can bring into your relationship. Yeah. But so the insight for you that I think will change everything about your business and everything about this relationship is understanding that you are a mean, cold person. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Albie's going to be like, what the fuck, dude? You know, and even the, the I'm such a good friend because I have shown them nothing but like, 
a, a generous in every way friend and they have mirrored that back i have amazing friends right of course i try in my friendships you know and it's like i have to do that with like the loving part and it's it's i can i actually see my parents bedroom when i when i and i'm not making an excuse but i just my parents have never even touched each other you know so so fucking what i know you have to stop using that as an excuse like now comes the like let's go you are so goddamn transformed that it's no longer okay to use this shit as an excuse you of all people know how to create something from nothing you of all people know what happens when you act with intentionality and gratitude if you truly want love if you truly want this to work that has to go to the past you're in the right here right now what do you want it to look like and i think you want the love and the kindness and it's going to feel weird for the first three to four months to act this way and the meanness is going to come back and that's okay don't despair but push it to the side and pull the love back up awesome because i really do believe this has less to do with men than you think what is the next chapter for you um all the things i hear all the things people reflect at me about my teaching authentic um genuine i guess would be the same way um inspirational but those sort of things are like are like my big part i mean what i want to be with albie now that you're saying this in such a real honest way i've i've heard it in a few ways like i'm so alpha or i'm so masculine or you know and i just and everyone that tells me that is a dude and i want to tell them to fuck off you Mm -hmm. know but but you, the way you're saying it is is hits harder. Oh, I know for an actual fact my mother's mean. I, and and how wouldn't I absorb that? And I actually am that way. And that is true. And so my new way would just be of all the bazillion books I've read. So reread them again with this new insight and so to to act in loving kindness and to act generously in that the most intimate relationship which is the scary it i can even just picturing like telling my puppy to move over there so i could scratch albie's back makes me almost want to roll my eyes why because i'm mean why do I do that? Why do I do it that? It doesn't well, matter why exactly. the fuck you do it. Exactly. You have to change it. Exactly. I was going to say, all I, I that my first part is just like, why am I like this? Why am I like this? I've read every book. I've done everything. It's like, okay, I got it. I got why. Just put the dog aside and rub his back. He's not ready to go to bed. I know you're ready to go to bed. Sit down with him on the couch and read on the couch until you're both ready to go to bed. Just... Come on. It comes down to how much you want it. Right. I think that's why I asked you if you really love him. And if the answer is yes, then you could turn this around in a week. No, that's Who's not leaving. Yes. And cares about him. Yeah. See, every time you're mean, it tells him you're not coming back. Like there's the threat of you always leaving. And what do you think that does to him? This makes him on edge, makes him anxious, makes him act a fool. Scared? Yeah. Withhold from you? 
be resentful of you, not be intimate. I mean, a million things. That's really good. Another thing that's really hard to do, you're going to hate this. I bet. Hate it. Is it sweet and shit? <laughs> no, it's more like a mind trick that's very hard for somebody like you and me to do. All right, what is it? Assume good intent. Give me an example. It's very easy to jump to conclusions that somebody's doing something to be a jerk or that he's taking too long because he's a dick or he's didn't walk the dogs because X, Y, Z. So like if walking the dogs and you mentioned that you would come in and you would say to him, did you walk the dogs? Kind of in this accusatory, non-trusting way. If instead you walk in the door and the answer is no, I didn't, you assume good intent. Oh, well, maybe he was so wrapped up in work that he innocently forgot. Oh, well, maybe he thought, maybe he walked them at lunch. Oh, maybe they were sleeping all afternoon and he didn't actually want to wake them up. So instead of assuming the mean thing, which is you're a lazy jerk, always try to assume good intent. Very difficult to do. Yeah, it's going to take some time. That's going to have to be a habit. Well, here's the, here's the other thing about it. The behaviors that you're that you and I exhibit aren't getting you what you want. Exactly. So meanness doesn't get him to remember to walk the dogs. It starts a fight. Correct. And then I think he's so sensitive and so annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's then it's a, a power struggle. Yes. And then he doesn't walk the dogs on purpose because he doesn't want to be bossed around. And he's like, it creates all this stupid stuff. And so these are just little brain adjustments and attitude adjustments that start to beat the meanness out of you. And you'll start to catch yourself and be like, oh my God, there I go again. Like I asked him to do X, Y, Z. He didn't. I'm already assuming he's a loser. What if I assumed good intent? He just forgot he was busy. He didn't mean to do it personally. Right, right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking, my mind's going in a hundred examples. Give me one. Um, there was his, um, his shoes, his sneakers were outside the door this today and there was what appeared to be dog shit um um scraped on the edge of the steps and i own a two family so i have a tenant that walks in and out of there and i was like i just have to ask if if that's dog shit that you scraped on the uh steps outside and then put the shoes next to it and he just stared at me for like the three seconds where you know that that was the wrong thing to say you know and he was like no i'm like i just asked and he was like i didn't rub dog shit on our front steps and right. here's the thing and the fact that you would accuse me of that yeah is mean and demoralizing that's that's the subtext. Yes, and here's another subtext, and this one you're going to hate. Remember how you described what it was like when your dad pulled in? Yeah. That's how you make him feel. What mood are you going to be in when you walk in the door? Like, he's bracing himself, and I can say that because I know that I... There's times in my past where I definitely either made my kids feel that way 
or I made Chris feel that way. That sucks. Do you think it's true? Yeah, because I think he's actually said that before. Because we're in therapy, you know, and so I obviously got us into therapy for him. Wink, <laughs> wink, wink, wink. You know what I mean? Of course. You know, which he calls me out on every day because he's not stupid, right? And last night was a terrible therapy session. I mean, he really has been like, you're mean. I mean, everything you're saying, it, the reason it's hitting this nerve is because I've heard it from him and because I have a million friends. I teach 200 yoga people yoga a week. No, I'm not. You should he- you, sh- you should read the emails coming in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it really is a brand new experience for me starting at 40 to be in an intimate relationship. And it is where all my growth has to be, right? Because I've had 40 years of growing in the other ways of the self and the friend and the and the parents and the forgiveness and the... And then you put me in this new relationship, which is, I don't know why it's so triggering. It must be so close. It's like so different. Well, you had no model. But but I had no model, but it the rules are different than a friendship. No, they're not. It feels it. Only because you're not following the rules of the friendship. That's a good point. The best love affairs are ones where you're friends who have incredible sex. That's all that a relationship that really works is. Right. That's what I that's what I want. But I'm not doing that. I, I'm doing that in in um that making him a cup of coffee, making his lunch, all that stuff. I absolutely do, right? It's the softness part that I'm not great at. See, to me, softness is mo- nothing more than being present to love. And being present to joy and being present to connection. Home, when it feels um, threatening, it feels scary to do that. Like I feel like my mother gave, you know, like, and be left void and trapped and with nothing. The irony is the strategy that you're using in order to avoid feeling trapped is making you trapped. And I get that you're afraid, that's normal, but letting letting it dictate and and allow you to justify being mean, that's a choice. You know, I think that you should come up with a new ritual that when you pull in your driveway, you take a deep breath, like whatever you do to prepare to like get in the headspace of being a yogi um, and leading a class or going and getting on your own mat, you need to come up with something that you do before you walk in that house. That is all about getting present to love and to joy and to intimacy and maybe acknowledging that it terrifies you, but leaving that terror and that meanness out of the house. Because what I want for you is when Albie hears your car pull in, he's like, awesome, she's home. This is even sadder because he knows I have so many bags with me and he knows how much I love the dogs. He greets me in the yard to take up all my stuff and so the dogs can jump all over me. And when I feel really embarrassed about saying this, when he comes home, the dogs are staring at the door with their tails wagging. So I let them out and then come back upstairs. 
Mm-hmm. And he just comes upstairs. I'm like already back at my computer. And I'm like, hey, babe. You know, and I might even have dinner ready. Right. So I think that that's a check. Right. Like I have the. I have the mater- I have the I have like the duty done, right? I make the lunch, I buy the groceries, I get the thing, I get the dinner ready, which is great if it's an expression of love, but there's a piece that you don't do that's really the scary part. Yes. Which would be standing in the yard letting him greet the dogs and then me just like he does to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's modeling that behavior like people tell you what they want. I buy gi- I buy Chris gifts all the time. Because that's my language for expressing love. I compliment him all the time because that's my language for expressing love. Chris, you know, I, I, I finally have started saying, I really need you to compliment me more. Oh, cool. <laughs> but so that's not in his nature. See, I didn't realize it, but I'm trying to train him by complimenting him. He actually is the kind of guy that needs more back rubs. That's not the way in which I necessarily express myself. So I've become more affectionate. And it's only because I don't want to be mean and I don't want to create a distance. I want there to be this incredible connection. And so I work so hard to change who I'm being in the relationship because of that. Because I know that if I just kind of go on autopilot, I will behave in a way that could upend any relationship in a year. Absolutely. And the same is going to be true for you. Absolutely. And it is the most magical thing in the world when you learn that you can 100% control this stuff. Like, here's the cool thing. Because of all the work that you've done, you are so equipped to pivot on a dime and flip this thing to a point where it's unrecognizable how in love, how much love, how much joy there is. And here's the thing. This is something that Mandy, my business partner, said casually one day to me. And we were talking about a couple that we both know that was getting a divorce. And she nonchalantly said, well, of course they are. I said, well, why of course? And she said, well, the wife is all about connection and the husband is all about power. And when you have two people that are in a relationship where one person is about power and one person is about connection, the person that craves power will always dominate the hell out of the person that craves connection. When you have two people that crave power, they blow each other up And when you can get to a point where you have two people that actually crave connection, it will really work. I I love it. I love it. I can see it. I can see we we both do the power thing probably because he has to regain it in some way because he he is a man. He's a dude, dude, you know, you you know, um, and I bet if I can crave connection and put all my energy into that now i'm just seeing all these really undercutty silent ways that i'm just mean and so i know for a fact you know that i'll be a that he'll mirror the connection part yeah and when you when you have such a simple construct whether it's being mean versus being loving or am i seeking power in this interaction 
or am I seeking connection? It, it gives you an immediate distinction to pivot your behavior. Yes. Do you see a couple places, like one, two, or three plays that you could be, you could switch from power to connection? Well, the, the greeting. Yep. Um, dictating when we go to bed. Yep. Right? And, and waiting for them and having it be more important that we go to bed together. Um, the dog thing. Awesome. That's good. Now, in terms of business, I guarantee you the exact same struggle is happening in your business. Yes. Credit card and all my taxes due and everything. It came to $50,000. And this is in September. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to have five $10,000 weeks. Right. You have to work your fucking ass off. But to did have you a make it happen? Absolutely. Well, so here's the thing. You're not playing a big enough game. So you and I, I suspect, I, I, I have very little drama around money because I think about money like math and one big game. And same with you. This is where you need your edge. Yes. So this is the area where all, like take the edge out of your relationship, take the edge out of your past, take your edge out of how you talk to yourself and pour that edge into business. You could have a $10,000 week every single week of the year if you wanted to. That's such a good point to take the edge out because I, because I don't want, like you said, I don't want to lose it and it's in me. Yes. It's in me. It just is. That's really good. And just the way I know, just the game of it and the math of it and not be like, I don't deserve that. It just has nothing like, to do with emotion. As Go nothing. freaking make the numbers add up. Totally. Period. Totally. Like this is where you totally. take power totally. and edge goes right into the business world. Totally. Okay. So before you walk in your house, you're going to do your little thing where you get present for a minute and you get centered on being love and joy and connection, connection, connection. And then when you're about to look at the week ahead in business, you're like, where's the fucking power and meanness? Let's go. Let's make some math happen. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? I love it. Me too. Yeah. And just run at it. Yeah. And you're a mean, power hungry motherfucker. Yes. I you're love allowed that. to be in business. I love that. I love that. So that I can still have, take that out on someone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Or not, not literally, but you know, and then just all these eye openings of, um, of what I have been doing to create Albie's response makes me just want to run home and hold them and just say sorry you know and and like you said flip it on its head within a week for me the possibility of having an actual happy life a happy content loving life where where i'm in a relationship where it where i i'm in the relationship that i look up to that'd be amazing that'd be amazing and the the fact that i uh, it, and then the freedom the the freedom part is freedom from the victimhood of life just like oh i guess you say i have a mean boyfriend that just gets angry at me every couple weeks you know and that's not very empowering that doesn't feel good that makes me feel trapped you know and and the fact that i can do this myself is is empowering and freeing at the same time. God, I fucking love her. 
You know, if you think that was awesome, you should hear her lead a yoga class. What's amazing about Tara is she knows exactly what she wants, and she's so transformed, and she's been able to create these amazing relationships with friends and with her students. But when it came to the one thing she wanted more than anything, she kept repeating the patterns of the past. I can relate to that. It's always the damn patterns from the past. You know, there's so many takeaways from this, but let me boil this down because this is truly, truly, truly about relationships. The one thing I want you to recognize is that all relationships are the same. Your friendships, your work relationships, your relationships with your kids, with your family, with your siblings, with your lover, we're all the same because we all want the same thing. We all want to know that we matter. And when you make people feel like they matter, you will win in any relationship. And so all three takeaways are going to help you operate in a way so that the people in your life feel as though they matter. The first takeaway is a tool that you can use to help you change behavior. In the area of your life, where you're being your best self in those relationships, that's what we're going to use to help you change how you're behaving in the cruddy relationships. So Tara was her best self with her friends and when she was a yogi. So all she needs to do to change her relationship with Albie is adopt that best self character everywhere. And remember the advice that I gave Tara. When she pulls into the driveway, she needs to take a moment and intentionally switch gears from the bitchy man-hater into the best self-yogi that she is. The second tool that's going to help you really deepen your relationships, and this is a difficult one, is I want you to assume good intent. When the people in your life piss you off, when you feel frustrated, when somebody supposedly wrongs you, before you snap, before you get your edge, I want you to assume good intent. And it is especially hard to do if you're a sarcastic person or if you have a lot of evidence that the other people in your life have done you wrong, but it works. Where did Tara do this? She did this in the story with the dog's poop on the dog stoop. That's a rhyme. I don't even I wasn't even intending to rhyme for y'all there, but the dog poop. Remember that story where she was basically assuming Albie did that on purpose? What kind of a jerk does that? A bitchy man hater. What does a yogi assume? I don't know that the universe put it there, but it certainly wasn't her boyfriend. So when you are wanting to make your relationship better, assume good intent. And I, I will make a confession. I have gotten a lot out of this one in my own marriage. And when I started trying to assume good intent with everything that Chris did or didn't do, I was a little startled to find how much of a bitchy man-hater was in me and how often I wasn't assuming the good intent. And finally, the third takeaway is about power versus connection. This is the only thing that you ever need to know about relationships. The only thing. You're either craving power or you're craving connection in any moment. That's it. Power versus connection. 
And the only relationships that are truly satisfying and that go to the distance are the ones where both people crave connection. So if you catch yourself in a conversation and you realize your edge is coming out, switch to craving connection. It will change things immediately. And I have an update. Tara's doing great. Albie's doing great. But since the taping of this coaching session, Tara's father died. And when I heard the news, I wanted to be sure that I was in the very first yoga class that she taught after his funeral. When I walked in, it was an absolutely packed class. And for the first 10 minutes, we just sat on our mats in silence and listened to Tara as she cried and as she told us stories about her father and her mother and how she had a panic attack before she delivered the eulogy. She also talked a lot about letting go and how in her father's death, she was able to let go of the anger and just take a look at his entire life in a continuum. She was able to see with clarity what it must have been like to be a little boy in the 1950s that lost his leg and became the shame and the burden to his family, and how that anger grew inside her father and turned him into the person that she knew. Now, she didn't excuse the abuse or the alcoholism, but for the first time, she could truly see his story. And what have we been talking about in all of these coaching sessions? Seeing and owning your story. As the class came to a close, Tara had something powerful to say to all of us. And so I want to bring you into that class and let you listen for yourself. And let's just take a second and acknowledge that we really know nothing about what it's like to be somebody else, period. And then let's just think again of our, the two people, whether you knew them or not, whether you liked them or not, the two people that gave us this beautiful ride called life. And let's do one own together, thinking of your two parents and calling out to them in own. Inhale. In this final coaching session, you're going to meet Ashlyn. She struggles with issues that every one of us can relate to, self-acceptance and self-love. I'm Ashlyn. I'm from Southern Oregon. I'm 19 years old. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing because I'll have the desire to do something, but then I'll hold myself back. You know, just always that thought of never being enough. And it's paralyzing sometimes just to sit there and be like, I want to do this simple thing, but like there's this thought in my head that's just tearing me back. Now I need to warn you, in this coaching session, Ashlyn and I cover some very serious topics like suicide, self-harm, underage sex, and drugs. But this isn't a dark conversation. In fact, you're about to listen 
as somebody discovers their power and experiences a rebirth. I was doing my hair and uh-huh. I was trying to make a perfect ponytail and I couldn't, so I like ripped my hair out. <laughs> I developed a problem with hurting myself. What else have you done to hurt yourself? Uh, to cut myself when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, after that I got into like alcohol and mm-hmm. then uh, um, drugs, cocaine, uh, ecstasy, anything I can get my hands on. Marijuana, LSD, shrooms. I hated feeling. And when did the cutting start? When I was 14. It helped me feel something. Mm-hmm. It was right. a release. <sighs> yeah. You're listening to live coaching sessions with real people. Hi, Mel. I'm Asha Hamid from Pakistan. Love you, Mel. Hi, Mel. I want to be coached by you. Pick me, Mel. Hi, Mel. My name is Louise. I'm from Brazil. Five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Mel Robbins. Please pick me. Facing real problems. Anxiety of what other people think. Self-acceptance is my biggest thing. Procrastination is causing me to just build a wall. The fear of losing weight. That shit's deep as fuck. And experiencing real change. That's powerful. That was the Real Talk Express. <sighs> oh, shit. Now I really know what to do, and I feel empowered. That is nuts, Mel. You blew <laughs> my shit away. This is Kick-Ass with Mel Robbins. Hey. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Welcome. So let's go back. Tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? What was it like? So I was born in California. My parents got divorced when I was about two to three years old. Why'd they get divorced? I think because of the religion that they were in. Which is? They were both Jehovah Witnesses at the time. And are they still part of the church? Just my mom. My dad left afterwards. Okay, so he divorced your mom and left the church. Mm -hmm, Yes. What is a Jehovah's Witness? They are they are Christians uh-huh. and they believe in Christ. They just don't celebrate holidays. They don't do birthdays. Why? Um, they think that it's like linked to pagan beliefs, just like uh, like Christmas and and uh, Halloween. So they. So did you never celebrate your birthday growing up? I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, were you in the church? I was until I was twelve years old. And then what happened? I decided to sneak out when I was 12 years old with a boy and how I guess you can call them the elders or the priests of the congregation Mm -hmm. they came to my house and like tried to talk to me and reason with me but then they ended up like uh booting me out what does that mean I could go out and do ministry and that was taken like away from me that privilege so it, they like said it on the stage and for me at tw- like now saying it now like doesn't seem like a big deal but i was 12 years old like it was a big impact on me well let's break this down a little bit because i think it's a lot bigger than you realize okay you're raised a jehovah's witness and at the age of 12 yeah you decide that you're going to break a church rule and you're going to sneak out and go hang out with a boy and did you hook up with the boy not like intimately but we made out and stuff but not okay so how did they even find out i left the door unlocked of your house yeah so they just kind of put two and two together your mother did so you get in trouble what happens next in terms of the church i just stopped going no i want to hear about the two 
people, the elders, the the folks that came over that then started making this a very serious situation. They were stern and they were very like by the book Old Testament. What does that mean? Um in the Old Testament it was just like rules and stuff like okay, did you do this or did you okay, then that's wrong. You you're done. So what were you feeling in your body when these two strange, older Old Testament men show up at your house and basically tell you you've crossed in a line? I just felt like I wasn't being understood. I felt like I was being told who I was or what to do without even, like, help. Like, it was more just like, we're here to see if you did something wrong. We're not here to help you. You know, mm-hmm. okay. I was super angry. I want to go back to the the piece about the self love and the birthdays, and what are the things that the church made you feel that you're still struggling with? I can't do anything fun. <laughs> okay, that fun is a bad thing. Yeah, and also the the self love that you're not worthy of celebrating, or that it's a bad thing. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Praise, like personal praise. It makes me uncomfortable, can you tell? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like there's going to be a moment where it's like going to flip. Like like if something's good, it's not going to stay good. Look, for some people, being a Jehovah's Witness really works. Mm -hmm. For you, it really screwed up your brain. And it screwed up your worldview. And it made you feel a deep sense of shame and anxiety and uncertainty about some of the most amazing aspects of life, which is celebrating yourself and loving yourself and having fun. That's true. And because it was never explained to you, you talk very, very clearly about the rules and about the Old Testament and about you cross a line and about all the shit you can't do. I'm sure swearing's one of them. Um, And all of those constraints and all of that make wrong, it put you into a psychological box that you're still trying to break out of. Do you think I have the key to that box? Nope. No? (laughs) Not yet. Okay. Because I don't think you see the box. Like, you can't escape the trap that you're in until you actually see the trap. That makes sense. And maybe you're so uncomfortable with where you're at that one of the reasons why you're so busy in your mind is because it keeps you from having to stop and consider how stuck you really are. And I recognize it because I'm somebody that's suffered from anxiety from a very for a very long time, and there's a busyness that comes with anxiety where it's very hard to be settled. It's very hard to be present. It's very hard to be in the moment that you're in because it's easier to just be busy, 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 distract yourself, distract yourself, distract yourself. And then you have a breakdown and then you solve the breakdown and then you get busy, 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 but you're not happy. Yeah. For some people, it might be an extremely empowering paradigm to live in. For you, it just didn't make any sense. Tell me about your relationship with your dad. 
Um, my relationship with my dad now is super awesome. Growing up, it was distant. I told him that uh, it felt like he was taking out his anger and feelings from my mom, like in translating them like onto me. So what was it like when he left? For a really long time, they actually lived in the same neighborhood. So uh, we'd be able to just kind of walk back and forth whenever. And um, it was weird because I don't think I ever had like a dad. My dad feels weird when he hugs me sometimes. Like He feels weird or you feel weird? Both of us, for sure. Why do you think it's weird? Um, I don't think he is used to the affection at all. From a kid? Yeah. And no, from his family. Like his parents, uh, he was from Japan. He came here. His parents were Cho's witnesses. And uh, his mom was very, like, reserved. And then his dad died when he was 20-something years old. And he was a big part of why he was in the religion. Uh -huh. So then after that, he kind of was just like, I'm out. Yeah. And then is he, did he remarry? Like what happened? Mm -hmm. He remarried um, someone. <laughs> she, uh, she was an exotic dancer at the time. You mean like a stripper? She was a stripper. Okay. And it was very interesting. It's amazing how you try to make everything nice. I do. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. But this isn't a, their story. Yeah. It's yours. How did it really feel for you to have your dad marry a woman that was a stripper? There's nothing wrong with being a stripper, but how did it feel as a kid to have was, that happen? I was just like, why out of all people? Because <laughs> like, he would bring home like a different girl every month, it seemed like. Your dad starts dating like somebody that's just gotten a divorce does. Mm -hmm. He's bringing home a different woman every month or so it seems. What's that like for you, the daughter that is distant and the daughter that he shows no affection to? Maybe that, like my, like I wasn't good enough to fill that hole. Well, no, but what did it feel like oh, for it, you? See, to me, for the challenge with you is you're so cerebral. You're so up in your head. Yeah. That I need to get you back into your body. Okay. You're a thinker. And that's the trap. And I don't think you've ever allowed yourself to really be honest with yourself about the stuff that you felt as all of this was processing. Like it is literally like talking to somebody who's numb. You're very smart. And you're like this close to breaking out of that box. But the amount of stuff that you endured as a kid, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah I feel like I definitely always try to numb myself you know there's a million reasons why you might do it maybe all the rules just started to make you feel numb maybe it made you feel like your feelings didn't count so why bother you know, you just got really resigned as a little kid because you got shut down so much and you got redirected so much. And even though you didn't want your dad to leave, it didn't matter because he left. And even though you didn't want him to bring home a different person, it didn't matter because he did. And even though you wanted to be closer, it didn't matter. And so you start to feel like it doesn't matter. 
what I feel, so I'm just not fucking going to. <laughs> that sucks. It Hopefully. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I see everyone being so miserable. Like, everyone's so sad all the time. And I'm just like, like I want to be that light. I want to show people that it's possible to, like, be happy genuinely. Like, but I got to do that first. Yes. <laughs> yes, and you can. But being happy genuinely means being brutally honest with yourself about the things that you're not happy about. And it's not okay that you were a kid and you felt like your feelings didn't matter. And in fact, if anything, you were punished for them. And that's what happened. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you can have a ton of bad stuff happen to you. You can do a ton of bad stuff and you can still be authentically happy, but only if you get super clear about the things that you've never allowed yourself to feel. And you also go to work on truly resolving the unresolved things. Like I actually think you're probably really pissed at your dad and that's okay. You can love somebody, be very angry with them. That's good to know. You know, you can, you can literally be terrified of disappointing your mom and you can make requests about what you need from her. And see, the thing for you is you can't be authentically happy if you're numb as hell and you've got a plastic smile on your face. And so where are the areas in your life that you feel numb? right now breathing sometimes i just feel like i don't even breathe you probably don't like i don't open up maybe i think the breathing metaphor is an excellent one it sounds like you've lived a very shallow not meaning shallow as in not meaningful but a very surface level existence i'm not surprised it's hard to take a deep breath don't do this. Don't do that. Don't feel. Don't celebrate yourself. Don't praise yourself. Don't go out with boys. Don't, 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 don't. You just just kept it right at the surface. You can't get too deep because when you go deep, man, when you get real, you get your butt handed to you. How long have you suffered from anxiety? Probably since I was born. What's the first time you remember having like a really bad bout of anxiety? I was doing my hair. Uh -huh. And I was trying to make a perfect ponytail, and I couldn't, so I, like, ripped my hair out. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, and then, it, like, I kept doing that. So did you develop, like, a problem with pulling your hair? I think I, I developed a problem with hurting myself. What else have you done to hurt yourself? Uh, to cut myself when I was 14. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after that, I got into, like, alcohol and mm -hmm. then uh, um, drugs, too. What kind of drugs? Uh cocaine uh ecstasy uh -huh. um anything i can get my hands on like what Pain else killers what else uh marijuana molly lsd shrooms why'd you get into drugs i know why but why I do you want to numb did? myself uh-huh i hated feeling and when did the cutting start when i was 14 it helped me feel something uh -huh. it was a I release that's the most common thing that people say about cutting. 
that when you're suffering from depression, when you feel extraordinarily numb, when you start to feel suicidal, that you that the cutting actually affirms that you're alive. Did you ever get to the point where you wanted to kill yourself? Oh, yeah. What happened? The first time I was sitting on my couch, uh, I was super depressed at the time. I was homeschooled. I was four in the morning. I was dating this guy at the time who I gave my virginity to. And like my biggest dream, especially Jehovah's Witness growing up, was like I was going to give my virginity to the person I married. How old were you? 14. Okay. And uh, he cheated on me a bunch with like a different amount of girls. And there was this one girl who would message me all the time telling me about their relationship while we're still together. And uh, it got to the point where that night she was just like, he doesn't love you. He loves me. Like, he's a liar. Um, he doesn't want to be with you. He's going to break up with you. And at the very end, she was like, you should just kill yourself. And she just kept saying that. And just kept saying that. And uh, at the time, I had a, a bottle of pills that had the, the same amount that would be enough to kill me at the time. And I was just sitting there. I was just like, I hate this, right? I, I cut myself like the two biggest cuts I've ever done. Uh, I still have scars this day, uh, which I don't like sometimes. But um, I remember calling my boyfriend at the time and uh, I told him, I was like, can you just tell her stop? right? Like, you know, this is going on. She just told me to kill myself. I want to do it. Just tell her stop. And he's just like, I don't care. He's like, I'm going to go to bed. It's too late. Like it's four in the morning. And I, that, that ripped my heart out. I was just like, oh, like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> you know, like just going to do it. I took it. I didn't take it actually. I held it and I was just like crying. Just like, praying almost just being like is there anything is there any anything that i can grab onto right now and uh, a picture of my sister my little sister came in my head and i knew in that moment i couldn't leave her with that impression of me leaving that would be that would be selfish it was crazy is three months later i had a best friend of mine kill himself and i was just like oh my god i almost did that <laughs> There's so much suffering in this world. <laughs> There's so much suffering in you. Man, I want to figure this out so I can help others. I need to figure it out for myself first. Yes, you do. But here's the thing that you also have to understand. Uh -huh. You are a kid. Where were your parents? Uh, my mom was probably in her room and my dad was somewhere else. But where were they? This didn't happen overnight. Like at some point, the, the the thing that's really troubling is you're trying to process this alone as if it's all on you. And look, your parents did their best, but it's not okay what happened. It's not okay that you get excommunicated from a church and all that anybody's making you feel is shame for embarrassing them. It's not okay that your dad pieces out and he's dating somebody new every single month and you don't feel like you have a father figure in your life it's not okay that you're cutting yourself and nobody sees it <laughs> um that day where i did that the next morning i actually went to go talk to my sister i uh and i don't talk 
I didn't talk to my family about anything. Well, of course not. Why would you? Because you'd be told about the rules and you'd be told that your feelings don't matter and you'd be told to, sh to shut up or to do whatever. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, I... I well, of course, they trained you to believe that your feelings don't matter. Like, I feel like that's wrong that's with me. Do you think it's okay for a 14-year-old who's cutting herself, who's about to take pills, who's in a relationship with somebody's abusive, do you think it is entirely her fault or do you think that somewhere some adult should be paying attention? That it's not okay for a 14-year-old girl to feel that alone. It's not all on you. And there's nothing wrong with you saying that and you can love your mother and you can love your father and you can still say what happened to me is not okay you were asleep at the fucking wheel and i tell me all the cries for help that you gave i would sleep in my bed all day long i wouldn't get up i would number eat. one what's another one i wouldn't eat number two what's another one i'd cut myself Number three, what's another one? I'd isolate myself. I wouldn't talk to anyone. Number four. Um, I would rebel. I'd, like, you know, yell and get attention in the wrong ways. Yep. Number five. How about the drugs? Number six. Yeah. You're obviously out every night if you're doing Molly every damn day for 30 days. Number seven. What does a 14-year-old girl have to do? to get the attention of her parents. I want to say scream until they noticed. <laughs> but that's not that's not healthy. It's ineffective. You know, at some point, self-love also means being brave enough to admit to yourself that you were in a situation where nobody was actually paying attention. And see, the thing that I want you to understand is that until you see the role that your upbringing and that your parents played in having this behavior go on and on, you will not break out of the box because you're busy, even as a 14, 15, and 16-year-old who's cutting herself trying to figure this out yourself. And what I'm trying to tell you is that <clears throat> we all need help. We all need support and it's not just on you. And when you have the maturity to look back on your childhood and say, hey, this wasn't okay and this wasn't okay. And if, if you two had been awake and you two had seen the cries for help, maybe I wouldn't have tried to kill myself. Maybe I wouldn't have anxiety. Maybe I wouldn't. It will allow you to not feel like you're so screwed up because I think that's what you live with. You live in this state where you're still numb and you're desperate to be happy and yet you're still trying to just fix it on your own, fix it on your own, fix it on your own, fix it on your own. And if we can get you to really see, whoa, wait a minute, holy cow. Part of my problem is, is that I was trained to think a certain way by that church. Holy cow. No wonder I'm so scared of pointing out things that are wrong. No wonder I don't know what to do because I've always been told what not to do. Yeah, okay. 
I want to ask a couple questions. So was that the only time you tried to commit suicide or you thought about it? No. Okay, tell me about the next time. It was actually just a couple weeks ago. Really? Yeah. Okay. It was just this hole I like climbed back into or like I never came out of. You need help. Yeah. You need to be, have you ever been in therapy? Yeah. Well, you need to be in therapy and you need to dig out all of these roots and you need to look at all the stuff that's too painful to look at. But I want to go back three weeks ago when you, now did you attempt suicide? I just literally wanted to so bad. Like, I really don't think I ever would. But ever since I was 14 when I had that one instance, it was like there was this voice in the back of my head that was always like, you're going to do it one day. Like, one day you're going to, it's going to get to that point. Like, you're going to do it. Like, you're... Do you think you will? I don't know. I don't want to. I really don't. And I, when I almost so, did it... So, but hold on. I want to go back two to three weeks because, number one, I got to make sure. Do you feel like hurting yourself right now? No. So you're in a different space? I would believe so. I do know I have stuff to deal with that I, if I don't deal with, it'll come back. Come back. From my point of view, other than the the obvious fact that you absolutely need to be in therapy and you need to be working with somebody who can help you in a methodical and supported way go back and deal with all of the trauma from your youth. And the trauma is not only issues related to dad and issues related to mom, but also all of the shame that you feel based on the behavior that you engaged in as a way to act out. And if you can get to the point where you can really own all of the things that you did, good and bad, after you were kicked out of the church, if you can really own that with a sense of compassion, like, wow, that poor teenage Ashlyn, that poor kid, she was just, she just wanted love. She just wanted to have somebody notice. She just wanted somebody to pay attention. She just wanted to live. I mean, she just, that poor kid, that's all she was doing. She didn't know any better. Like if you could have a level of self-compassion, then, then you would be able to start to get out of the box. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you're endorsing the behavior. Mm. (laughs) That's not what you're saying. But you have the maturity and the ability to understand that authentic happiness means that you can take a look objectively at what happened and realized that's what happened. You can have empathy and sympathy for your humanity in terms of how you responded to it. And then you can, with all of that, move forward from it. There are things that you have learned. There is wisdom inside of everything that you've survived that you need in order to be authentically happy. And running from that stuff and burying that stuff and also letting your parents off the fucking hook because you don't want to disappoint them, that's all going to keep you numb. 
So let's let's start right now. Okay. What are the things that, you know, if you were sitting down with your dad and you were going to have a conversation where you were going to tell him that these were the things that happened that were not okay and this is what I needed from you. I needed him there for me. Like, I wanted him there every day. I wanted him there, like, to pick me up from school, you know, to to hug me and tell me he loves me. Mm-hmm. Like, at least. I wanted to spend some time with him. I wanted, a, I wanted more than a friend. I wanted someone that would discipline me. I wanted someone to tell me right from wrong. Not just be like, oh, it's whatever. Like, I wanted someone to care. I wanted him to care. And what do you need from him now? See, that's the cool thing, too. And this is the opportunity. So the not saying it and being locked in a box is the Old Testament chapter. The New Testament chapter for you is the freedom and the the authenticity and the courage to say, okay, we screwed that section up. I realize you did the best that you could, but this is what I needed from you. Give him a chance to acknowledge it, to apologize, to say what he needs to say. Now, what do you need from him now? I feel like I... Oh, no. <laughs> I will say what I want to say. I will say what I need to say. Yes! <laughs> awesome. Um, Good catch. I would love if you were to, like, call me, like, with my sister once a, once a week. Okay. Cool. What else? Uh, to visit him. He lives in Florida, so uh, to visit him every six months would be... Great. So you want him to send you a ticket. Yeah. So you can come down and see him every six months and to make that a priority. Mm-hmm. What else? To make me a priority in my little sister's life, too. And so I want you to make sure you get what you need. You make the request and then you tell him that he needs to do this with your sister. You need a ticket every six months. You need him to call you once a week. What else do you need from him? Do you need an apology? Yeah. Yeah. I would I would like that. <laughs> Great. How do you feel? I feel relieved in the simplest way, which is I'm still trying to grasp. I'm like still wondering, is it this simple? Uh-huh. <laughs> it always is. But it's very hard for somebody like you that's intellectual because your habit is to question everything. And the reason why you have that habit is because of all the rules in the church that made no sense to you. And so when you're in a situation where you feel a little trapped or where you start to go numb, you've trained yourself just to start thinking and questioning and then you spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. And so whenever you find yourself in that trap, basically go, oops, I'm back in the Old Testament. I'm back in the rules. I'm back to feeling numb. I'm back to fire and brimstone. What does a little love and acceptance look like right now? What does a little courage look like right now? And that will be the guide forward. Now let's talk about your mom. So without censoring yourself, there are no rules. Just have the courage to say what's there for you. What do you need to say to your mom? Why did you take everything out on me? 
why do you always stay in this mindset of 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 misery and then complain about it but don't do anything about it it's like i'm her pro project right it's like a I didn't do this with my life, so I want you to do it with your life. But if you do it with your life to where I feel like I'm not, like I, I didn't do good enough with mine, then I want to put you back down to my level. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Do you feel guilty still if you celebrate your birthdays? Oh, yeah. For real? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it kind of like crazy that 12 years of your life could literally leave a lasting impression that makes you feel guilt for something as awesome as your birthday? Our brains are weird. <laughs> they are weird. And so I'm glad you said that because I want you to understand that what you're dealing with is a pattern that got encoded in your brain. So our brains love to um, learn information in chunks hates single bits of information, whenever the brain can make an association, it will fuse things together and make it one piece of information. And then it will code that one piece of information as a chunk, boom, and stick it right in the interior part of your brain. I'm gonna give you an example. Okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. I want you to say the first word that comes to mind. Okay. Ready? Peanut butter. Balls. <laughs> Peanut butter balls? Yeah. What? <laughs> Like, have you ever had peanut butter balls? No. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> In literally a thousand people asking that question, everyone says jelly. Uh oh. <laughs> peanut butter balls? That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So we'll go with it. Peanut okay. butter balls. So in your brain, if I say peanut butter, you're like balls. Okay. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> that gets coated together. Okay, mm -hmm. I go peanut butter jelly. It gets coated together. So whenever anybody says peanut butter, you think balls. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how a brain learns information in chunks. So it'll make associations like black and white. It'll make association like peanut butter jelly or peanut butter balls. It'll make associations um, winter cold, mm -hmm. summer hot. Your brain made an association with birthdays. What is it? Pain. <laughs> yeah. When you hear the word birthday, because of how you were raised, the association that got fused together naturally was pain. Yeah. What is your birthday? March 11th. I want you to ask a good friend to be responsible for planning your birthday celebration. Okay. <laughs> Who is the person going to be that you're going to ask? His name is Nate. The reason why I want you to do that is because I can't trust you to do it. Okay. And you're going to be uncomfortable. And because of your brain, which is associated birthday with what? Pain. Pain. You will be fighting against that internal wiring. And I don't want you to have to. I want Nate to take care of it. I want Nate to make it happen. I want Nate to make it amazing. And no matter what a pain in the ass you are, it is supposed to happen, okay? And then after a couple years of doing that, you will start to break apart the association. Now, an association like birthday and pain, that association got created in the Old Testament. That is part of your past. We are starting a new chapter with new associations. So... 
birthday is pain. What is love? What's the association with self-love? I want to say abandonment when you said love. Okay, so the Old Testament, it was love is abandonment. Mm -hmm. So what is the new chapter? Love means what? Accepting. Fabulous. So in the new chapter, the association with sex and love and relationship and orgasm and pleasure, what's that association? Go for it. Go for it. I love it. Okay. Um, So you can start to see that in the old chapter, right, the Old Testament, which was when you're numb, Mm -hmm. when you're constrained, when you're trapped, when you're by the rules, when you're not disappointing people, when you are cutting yourself, when you're in pain, any time that you find yourself there, and you will, Mm -hmm. I want you to recognize, oh, shoot, I just like, I'm in the old chapter, girl, it's time to like, we got to turn the page because I'm in the new chapter. Yeah. I'm going to give you in a couple of assignments. Obviously, number one, you're going to talk to your dad. Number two, you're going to talk to your mom. Okay. Number three, I would like you to start to consider how you can move out. I think it's very important for you to get some physical space from your mom because she does a lot of things that trigger you. And I do think it's time for you to start to chart your own course. I want you to to find a therapist and go to work at really deconstructing the Old Testament chapter of your life and rebuilding or building rather the new chapter that's defined by love and acceptance and going for it and authenticity and connection, okay? Now, I have looked at your social media channel and I don't look scared. <laughs> And I have a recommendation for you. So you have mentioned a couple times that you sometimes feel like a fraud because here you are talking about self-love, but you don't feel it, Mm -hmm. okay? I think your social media channel would be a thousand times more powerful if you were actually talking about what you're dealing with. Okay. What if you took a photo of the scars on your arm for cutting and you wrote a post about how these are four years old but the scars are still there and every day can be a struggle despite how happy you are and for those of you that are out there that struggle every day i want you to know that i relate and that i can be there too when you have a great day write about that but always with that deeper root of and if you knew where i came from If you see an abandoned, you know, drug wrapper on the ground, take a photo of it. Boy, I used to be way into this kind of stuff because I would do anything to numb myself. That is what will build you a following. It will help you influence people because you're being authentic. And it will create a voice that is needed in the world around the idea of your dealing with stuff and you're getting through it it's like being that light of hope without being some expert Mm. from above and the fact is that through that you can start immediately influencing people and having a real conversation and not running from your past but owning that shit and not being ashamed of it and turning it into something for good and for authentic happiness. I like that a lot. 
Me too. So you started to tear up when I suggested, can I see the cuts on your arm? Yeah. Uh... Holy shit. Wow, they're really there. Yeah. Let me see. Wow. You can feel them. Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. I really can. Have you ever put them on social media? No. So you got really like, <laughs> when I suggested you do it. Why? Yeah. The attention. Of course, there's probably always going to be those people that are like, oh, she's just doing that for the attention. And that, I don't like that. We well, could write about that. You could say, I almost didn't post this because I, my immediate reaction to posting it was that some people might think I did it just for the attention. And I realized I often stop myself from doing things because I'm worried about what other people think. Now, see, that's authentic, right? Okay. When you feel yourself silence, when you feel yourself go numb, when you feel yourself start to edit, when you feel yourself being worried about disappointing, <gasps> there I am, I'm back in the Old Testament. Whoop, we got a time warp. Let's go forward. Turn the page. So I want you to understand that loving yourself means having the courage to go have the real conversation with your dad. And you will not be able to love your father until you complete the stuff from the past. Yeah. And I thought it was superficial. That's real right there. I thought self-love was, oh, you know, (laughs) you know, put some makeup on, take a bath, like take care of yourself. (laughs) But like, no, self-love is taking care of your shit and then doing better. I'm really excited for you. Me too. I, I just, I feel relieved. Awesome. (laughs) I do too. I'm not as messed up as I thought I was. And there are solutions. Do you feel like you have the key to get out of the trap? Yeah. I feel like I was blindfolded. Uh Uh-huh. And then like, I just took the blindfold off and I was like, oh, wait, the path's right here in front of me. Just knowing that I know the next steps it takes is relieving to me. For the longest time, I didn't even know the first step. And now I have four, which is really cool because now I really know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel empowered. I'm excited to figure my shit out. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, I'm excited to find those roots and to love them and to really figure out my problems, you know, and to, to do something about it, not just complain about it or talk about it take action on it in a honest way i wanted to end kick ass with mel robbins on this coaching session for a reason because one of the things i've always said is that change is hard when you do it on your own but it can be simple and even fun when we do it together and when you finally have that bit of clarity as ashlyn now does it is empowering to figure your shit out In fact, if you have any problem that can be solved with action, you don't have a problem. And so I want to leave you in action with a few takeaways from this coaching session. First, you can love someone and still be angry at them. You can be afraid of disappointing somebody and still make requests of them. This was such a huge insight in my own life that just because I was angry with someone didn't mean I didn't love them. And so Ashlyn is now empowered to talk to her parents, her father in particular, and ask for what she needs from him, which is more effort on his part and the ability to see him more often. And you can do the exact same thing in your life with the people that you love. Wherever you're disappointed, that's cool, that's normal, you're human, and you can change it. And you can start changing it by simply starting a conversation. And here's what you say. 
I love you. I'm afraid of upsetting you, but I really need to have this conversation with you. And the rest will flow from there. The second takeaway is to be honest about where in your life you feel numb, because that's where the roots are. If you remember the coaching session with Evelyn, she described feeling numb whenever she procrastinated. Feeling numb, it's a really important clue as to the areas of your life that need attention and healing. And if you listen to this conversation and you can relate to Ashlyn and you're feeling numb and you're scared about how numb you feel, I want you to know you need to do something about it and that you're not alone. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255, and a trained professional will talk to you for free as long as you need. And on this note, Ashlyn has something she wants to say to you. If you're listening to this and you felt the way I felt, I want you to know as stupid as this sounds that you know it always gets better it only gets better if you choose to get better you have to help yourself first yes you do and now you can and the third takeaway from this coaching session is to all the parents that are listening look i'm a parent of three kids and it is easy to judge ashlyn's parents and say where the hell were they but let's face it we all miss signs so you can ask yourself right now where is your kid or any child in your life, completely checked out. Where are you missing potential signs? Because if your instincts say something might be up, that they seem a little checked out, you need to check in. And look, even if something isn't up, even if everything's fine, checking back in only makes someone feel affirmed and loved. So why not? The fourth takeaway from this coaching session is about the idea of celebration. You just heard an extreme example of how someone's spirit can get diminished when they're not celebrated. And while you may celebrate your birthdays, there are probably areas in your life where celebration is missing. So think about that for a second. Are you good at celebrating your accomplishments? I'm even talking about the little stuff. Your accomplishments that you got up on time this morning. You actually made it to the gym today. Or that you're simply trying your best. Celebration is critical for a healthy life. And our team was so moved by Ashlyn's story that we couldn't miss the opportunity to help her celebrate her birthday for the very first time. And the final takeaway is about transparency. If there's one thread throughout all of these coaching sessions in Kick Ass with Mel Robbins, it's that you won't be able to kick ass until you own your story. When you own your story, that's where all the power lies. Kim owned the story of quitting and being a baby. Marcus owned his unique story in business. Jessie owned her story around narcissism. Evelyn owned her story as an abuse survivor. Stephen owned the fact that he was a manipulator. Tara owned how mean she was. Kyle owned his sobriety. And Ashlyn is owning the darker parts of her past and her healing. 
It's only when you're transparent about your past that you have the power to own and change the future. In fact, I have an incredible update from Ashlyn. We've been watching her on social media. She's doing incredible, and she's also being incredibly powerful and transparent about her past. She recently posted a photo of her scars on Instagram and wrote this to accompany the photo. When I was 14 years old, I started cutting myself. After a terrible first half to my freshman year at a new school, I decided to move from California to Oregon. I was alone, homeschooled, and didn't know how to deal with unwanted emotions. This led to years of self-harm. Something that started off as a harmful distraction to feel something turned into years of self-sabotage, including self-medicating with hard drugs like cocaine, molly, and much more. I soon got addicted to being high, whether it was getting drunk on a school night or trying anything that would numb me. Fast forward five years, now I'm 19 years old. I no longer cut myself, self-medicate, or use any hard drugs whatsoever. There's so much more to my story that I haven't been able to open myself up to tell. I now realize more than ever how important it is for me to stay vulnerable and tell the whole truth even when it's hard. I still struggle with limiting beliefs and even suicidal thoughts. I used to hate this part of myself. Now I'm learning that there will always be, quote, bad about me. But that's okay. I'm learning to deal with me, to love me, all of me, always, always. Finally, let's talk about you. It's time for you to kick ass and own your own story. I'm sure listening to these coaching sessions was as impactful for you as it was for me. I got something powerful from each and every one of these conversations, and I'll be honest, I got some work to do. And that's not a bad thing. Things are always changing around us, and that means we've got to change too. So as I take my life, marriage, business, health, and relationships to the next level, I hope you're inspired to go for that next level too. And as I've said multiple times, yes, you can try to change on your own, but why the hell would you want to? When we do it together, it's so much easier and a hell of a lot more fun. So if you have questions, need help, or are inspired to share your story, I want to hear from you. Yes, I mean this. You can reach out to me at my website, melrobbins.com. And if you want a daily boost, a kick in the ass, make sure you follow and connect with us on social media. We are on there every single day. Everything we put out is designed to give you the kick in the ass, the inspiration, the laugh, the hope, the push that you need. And as a bonus for listening, I've got a gift for you. If you go to melrobbins.com slash kickass, you can download a guide that will help you apply some of the takeaways from these coaching sessions and help you kick ass in your own life. From the bottom of my heart, I'm actually sad that this is over. But I want to thank you for joining me in these coaching sessions. I truly hope you were entertained, inspired, and that you learned something valuable and new. Now, go kick ass. This has been an Audible Original Publishing production of Kick Ass with Mel Robbins, Advice from the author of The Five-Second Rule. 
created and hosted by yours truly, Mel Robbins. Executive producers, Keith O'Connell and Mike Charzik. Producers, Kat Lambricks, Mel Robbins, Mandy Bergen, and Tracy Mers. Editorial director, Rose Hilliard. Edited by Sarah Cosa. Mixed and mastered by Darren Vermas. Copyright 2018 by Mel Robbins. Sound recording copyright 2018 by Audible Originals, LLC. This audiobook is presented solely for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, professional coach, psychotherapist, or other qualified professional. In fact, if you need one, hire one. The conversations in this project contain references to persons whose viewpoints are not represented. Their memories of events referenced in this project may differ dramatically since there are always two sides to every story. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.